Chapter 37 Bright-Eyed Lauren led the way across a courtyard. That is what most of the discussion was about, Master Lauren explained, his voice as passionless as stone. You had to have a tuition. Everyone does. I had recovered my composure and apologized for my terrible manners. He nodded calmly and offered to escort me to the office of the bursar to ensure that there was no confusion regarding my admission fee. After it was decided to admit you in the manner you had suggested, Lauren gave a brief but significant pause, leading me to believe that it had not been quite as simple as that. There was the problem that there was no precedent set for giving out funds to enrolling students. He paused again. A rather unusual thing. Lauren led me into another stone building, through a hallway, and down a flight of stairs. Hello, Riam. The bursar was an elderly, irritable man who became more irritable when he discovered that he had to give money to me rather than the other way around. After I got my three talents, Master Lauren led me out of the building. I remembered something and dug into my pocket, glad for an excuse to divert the conversation. I have a receipt from the broken binding. I handed him the piece of paper, wondering what the owner would think when the university's master archivist showed up to redeem the book a filthy street urchin had sold him. Master Lauren, I appreciate your agreeing to do this, and... I hope you won't think me ungrateful if I ask another favor. Lauren glanced at the receipt before tucking it into a pocket and looked at me intently. No, not intently, not quizzically. There was no expression on his face at all, no curiosity, no irritation, nothing. If not for the fact that his eyes were focused on me, I would have thought he'd forgotten I was there. Feel free to ask, he said. That book, it's all I have left from that time in my life. I would very much like to buy it back from you someday, when I have the money. He nodded, still expressionless. That can be arranged. Do not waste your worry on its safety. It will be kept as carefully as any book in the archives. Lauren raised a hand gesturing to a passing student. A sandy-haired boy pulled up short and approached nervously. Radiating deference, he made a nod that was almost like a bow to the master archivist. Yes, Master Lauren. Lauren gestured to me with one of his long hands. Simon, this is Quoth. He needs to be shown about, signed to classes and the like. Kilvin wants him in artificing. Trust to your judgment otherwise. Will you tend to it? Simon nodded again and brushed his hair out of his eyes. Yes, sir. Without another word, Lauren turned and walked away, his long strides making his black master's robe billow out behind him. Simon was young for a student, though still a couple years my senior. He stood taller than me, but his face was still boyish his manner boyishly shy. Do you have somewhere to stay yet? He asked as we started to walk. Room at an inn or anything? I shook my head. I just got in today. 
I haven't thought much further than getting through admissions. Simmon chuckled. I know what that's like. I still get sweaty at the beginning of each term. He pointed to the left, down a wide lane lined with trees. Let's head to Muse first, then. I stopped walking. I don't have a lot of money, I admitted. I hadn't planned on getting a room. I was used to sleeping outside, and I knew I would need to save my three talents for clothes, food, paper, and next term's tuition. I couldn't count on the master's generosity two terms in a row. Admissions didn't go that well, huh? Simmons said sympathetically as he took my elbow and steered me toward another one of the gray university buildings. This one was three stories tall, many-windowed, and had several wings radiating out from a central hub. Don't feel bad about it. I got nervous and pissed myself the first time through, figuratively. I didn't do that badly, I said suddenly, very conscious of the three talents in my purse. But I think I offended Master Lauren. He seems a little... chilly? Simon asked. Distant? Like an unblinking pillar of stone? He laughed. Lauren is always like that. Rumor has it that Elksa Dahl has a standing offer of ten gold marks to anyone who can make him laugh. Oh. I relaxed a little. That's good. He's the last person I'd want to get on the wrong side of. I'm looking forward to spending a lot of time in the archives. Just handle the books gently and you'll get along fine. He's pretty detached for the most part, but careful around his books. He raised an eyebrow and shook his head. He's fiercer than a mother bear protecting her cubs. In fact, I'd rather get caught by a mother bear than have Lauren see me folding back a page. Simon kicked at a rock, sending it skipping down the cobblestones. Okay, you've got options in the muse. A talent will get you a bunk and a meal chit for the term, he shrugged. Nothing fancy, but it keeps the rain off. You can share a room for two talents or get one all to yourself for three. What's a meal chit? Meals are three a day over in the mess. He pointed to a long, low-roofed building across the lawn. The food isn't bad so long as you don't think too hard about where it might have come from. I did some quick arithmetic. A talent for two months' worth of meals and a dry place to sleep was as good a deal as I could hope for. I smiled at Simon. Sounds like just the thing. Simmon nodded as he opened the door into the muse. Bunks it is, then. Come on, let's find a steward and get you signed up. The bunks for non-Arcanum students were on the fourth floor of the east wing of Muse, farthest from the bathing facilities on the ground floor. The accommodations were as Sim had described, nothing fancy. But the narrow bed had clean sheets, and there was a trunk with a lock where I could keep my meager possessions. All the lower bunks had already been claimed, so I took an upper one in the far corner of the room. As I looked out one of the narrow windows from on top of my bunk, I was reminded of my secret place high on Tarbian's rooftops. The similarity was oddly comforting. Lunch was a bowl of steaming hot potato soup, beans, narrow rashers of fatty bacon, and fresh brown bread. The room's large plank tables were nearly half full, seating about two hundred students. The room was full of the low murmur of conversation, punctuated by laughter and the metallic sound of spoons and forks scraping against the tin trays. 
Simmons steered me to the back corner of the long room. Two other students looked up as we approached. Simmons made a one-handed gesture to me as he set down his tray. Everyone, meet Quoth, our newest dewy-eyed first-termer. He gestured from one person to the next. Quoth, these are the worst students the Arcanum has to offer. Manette and Willem. Already met him, Willem said. He was the dark-haired sealdom from the archives. You really were headed to admissions, he said mildly surprised. I thought you were dealing me false iron. He reached out his hand for me to shake. Welcome. Tailu anyway, Manette muttered, looking over at me. He was at least fifty years old with wild hair and a grizzled beard. He wore a slightly disheveled look, as if he'd only woken up a few minutes ago. Am I as old as I feel, or is he as young as he looks? Both. Simmons said cheerfully as he sat down. Quoth, Manette here has been in the Arcanum for longer than all of us put together. Manette snorted. Give me some credit. I've been in the Arcanum longer than any of you have been alive. And still a lowly Illyr, Willem said. His thick Siaru accent made it hard to tell if he was being sarcastic or not. Huzzah to being an Illyr! Manette said earnestly. You boys will regret it if you move any farther up the ranks. Trust me. It's just more hassle and higher tuitions. We want our guilders, Manette, Simmons said. Preferably sometime before we're dead. The guilder is overrated too, Manette said, tearing off a piece of bread and dunking it in his soup. The exchange had an easy feel, and I guessed this was a familiar conversation. How'd you do? Simmon asked Willem eagerly. Seven and eight, Willem grumbled. Simmon looked surprised. What in God's name happened? Did you punch one of them? Fumbled my cipher, Willem said sullenly. And Lauren asked about the influence of subinfudation on Modegan currency. Kilvin had to translate. Even then, I could not answer. My soul weeps for you, Sim said lightly. You trounced me these last two terms. I was bound to catch a break sooner or later. I got five talents even this term. He held out his hand. Pay up! Willem dug into his pocket and handed Sim a copper jot. I looked at Manette. Aren't you in on it? The wild-haired man huffed a laugh and shook his head. There'd be some long odds against me, he said, his mouth half full. Let's hear it, Simmons said with a sigh. How much this term? One and six, Manette said, grinning like a wolf. Before anyone could think to ask me what my tuition was, I spoke up. I heard about someone getting a thirty-talent tuition. Do they usually get that high? Not if you have the good sense to stay low in the rankings, Manette grumbled. Only nobility, Willem said. Crimelish bastards with no business having their study here. I think they stock up high tuitions just so they can complain. I don't mind, Manette said. Take their money. Keep my tuition low. I jumped as a tray clattered down onto the other side of the table.
I assume you're talking about me. The owner of the tray was blue-eyed and handsome, with a carefully trimmed beard and high Modegan cheekbones. He was dressed in rich muted colors. On his hip was a knife with a worked wire hilt, the first weapon I'd seen anyone wearing at the university. Savoy? Simon looked stunned. What are you doing here? I ask myself the same thing. Savoy looked down at the bench. Are there no proper chairs in this place? He took his seat, moving with an odd combination of graceful courtliness and stiff, affronted dignity. Excellent. Next I'll be eating with a trencher and throwing bones to the dogs over my shoulder. Etiquette dictates it to be the left shoulder, your highness, Manette said around a mouthful of bread, grinning. Savoy's eyes flashed angry, but before he could say anything, Simmons spoke up. What happened? My tuition was sixty-eight strelum, he said indignantly. Simmons looked nonplussed. Is that a lot? It is a lot, Savoy said sarcastically. And for no good reason. I answered their questions. This is a grudge, plain and simple. Mandrag does not like me. Neither does him. Besides, everyone knows they squeeze a nobility twice as hard as you lot, bleeding us dry as stones. Simmons' nobility? Manette pointed a spoon. He seems to do fine for himself. Savoy exhaled sharply through his nose. Simmons' father is a paper duke bowing to a tin king in Etur. My father's stables have longer bloodlines than half you Eturian nobles. Simmons stiffened slightly in his seat, though he didn't look up from his meal. Willem turned to face Sovoy, his dark eyes going hard, but before he could say anything, Sovoy slumped, rubbing his face in one hand. I'm sorry, Sim. My house and name to you. It's just things were going to be better this term, but now they're worse instead. My allowance wouldn't even cover my tuition, and no one will extend me more credit. Do you know how humiliating that is? I've had to give up my rooms at the Golden Pony. I'm on the third floor of Muse. I almost had to share a room. What would my father say if he knew? Simon, his mouth full, shrugged and made a gesture with his spoon that seemed to indicate that there was no offense taken. Maybe things would go better for you if you didn't go in there looking like a peacock, Manette said. Leave off the silk when you go through admissions. Is that how it is? Savoy said, his temper flaring again. Should I abase myself? Rub ashes in my hair? Tear my clothes? As he grew angrier, his lilting accent became more pronounced. No, they are none of them better men than me. I need not bow to them. There was a moment of uncomfortable silence at the table. I noticed more than a few of the surrounding students were watching the show from the nearby tables. Heitletium, Sovoy continued. There is nothing in this place I do not hate. Your weather is wild and uncivilized, your religion barbaric and prudish, your horrors are intolerably ignorant and unmannerly. Your language barely has the subtlety to express how wretched this place is. Savoy's voice grew softer the longer he spoke, until he almost seemed to be speaking to himself. My blood goes back fifty generations. 
older than tree or stone. And I am come to this. He put his head against the palms of his hands and looked down at his tin tray. Barley bread! God's all around us, a man is meant to eat wheat! I watched him while chewing a mouthful of the fresh brown bread. It tasted wonderful. I don't know what I was thinking, Silvoy said suddenly, getting to his feet. I can't deal with this! He stormed off, leaving his tray on the table. That's Savoy, Manette said to me in an offhand manner. Not a bad sort, though he's usually not nearly as drunk as that. He's Modegan? Simon laughed. You don't get more Modegan than Savoy. You should not prod at him, Willem said to Manette. His rough accent made it hard for me to tell if he was rebuking the older student, but his dark sealedish face showed definite reproach. As a foreigner, I guessed he sympathized with Savoy's difficulty adjusting to the language and culture of the Commonwealth. He is having a rough time of it, Simon admitted. Remember when he had to let his manservant go? Mouth full, Manette made a gesture with both hands as if playing an imaginary violin. He rolled his eyes, his expression vastly unsympathetic. He had to sell his rings this time around, I added. Willem, Simon, and Manette turned to look at me curiously. There were pale lines on his fingers, I explained, holding up my hand to demonstrate. Manette gave me a close looking over. Well, now, our new student seems to be all manner of clever. He turned to Willem and Simon. Lads, I'm in a betting mood. I'll wager two jots that our young Quoth here makes it to the Arcanum before the end of his third term. Three terms? I said, surprised. They told me all I had to do was prove I mastered the basic principles of sympathy. Manette gave me a gentle smile. They tell everyone that. Principles of sympathy is one of the classes you'll have to slog through before they elevate you to Elir. He turned back to Will and Sim expectantly. How about it? Two jots? I'll bet. Willem gave me a small, apologetic shrug. No offense. I play the odds. What'll you be studying, then? Manette asked as they shook on it. The question caught me off guard. Everything, I guess. You sound like me thirty years ago, Manette chuckled. Where are you going to start? The Chandrian, I said. I'd like to know as much about them as possible. Manette frowned, then burst out laughing. Well, that's fine and good, I suppose. Sim here studies fairies and pixies. Will there believes in all manner of silly damned sealedish sky spirits and such. He puffed himself up absurdly. I'm big on imps and shamblemen myself. I felt my face get hot with embarrassment. God's body, Manette, Sim cut him off. What's gotten into you? I just bet two jots on a boy who wants to study bedtime stories, Manette groused, gesturing to me with his fork. He meant folklore, that sort of thing. Willem turned to look at me. You looking to work in the archives? Folklore's a piece of it. I hedged quickly, eager to save face. 
I want to see if different cultures' folktales conform to Tecum's theory of narrative septagy. Sim turned back to Manette. See? Why are you so twitchy today? When's the last time you slept? Don't take that tone with me, Manette grumbled. I caught a few hours last night. And which night was that? Sim pressed. Manette paused, looking down at his tray. Felling night? Willem shook his head, muttering something in Siaru. Simon looked horrified. Manette, yesterday was kindling. Has it been two days since you slept? Probably not, Manette said uncertainly. I always lose track of things during admissions. There aren't any classes. It throws off my schedule. Besides, I've been caught up in a project in the fishery. He trailed off, scrubbing at his face with his hands, then looked up at me. They're right. I'm a little off my head right now. Tecum Septigy folklore and all that. It's a bit bookish for me, but a fine thing to study. I didn't mean any offense. None taken, I said easily and nodded at Sovoy's tray. Slide that over here, would you? If our young noble's not coming back, I'll have his bread. After Simon took me to sign up for classes, I made my way to the archives, eager to have a look around after all these years of dreaming. This time, when I entered the archives, there was a young gentleman sitting behind the desk, tapping a pen on a piece of paper that bore the marks of much rewriting and crossing out. As I approached, he scowled and scratched out another line. His face was built to scowl. His hands were soft and pale. His blinding white linen shirt and richly dyed blue vest reeked of money. The part of me that was not long removed from Tarbian wanted to pick his pocket. He tapped his pen for another few moments before laying it down with a vastly irritated sigh. Name, he said without looking up. Quoth. He flipped through the ledger, found a particular page, and frowned. You're not in the book. He glanced up briefly and scowled again before turning back to whatever verse he was laboring over. When I made no signs of leaving, he flicked his fingers as if shooing away a bug. Feel free to piss off. I've just... Ambrose put down his pen again. Listen, he said slowly, as if explaining to a simpleton. You're not in the book. He made an exaggerated gesture toward the ledger with both hands. You don't get inside. He made another gesture to the inner doors. The end. I've just gone through admissions. He tossed up his hands, exasperated. Then of course you're not in the book. I dug into my pocket for my admission slip. Master Loren gave me this himself. I don't care if he carried you here piggyback, Ambrose said, pointedly redipping his pen. Now quit wasting my time. I have things to do. Wasting your time? I demanded, my temper finally wearing thin. Do you have any idea what I've gone through to get here? Ambrose looked up at me, his expression growing suddenly amused. Wait, let me guess, he said, laying his hands flat on the table and pushing himself to his feet. You were always smarter than the other children back in Clodhump or whatever little one-whore town you're from. Your ability to read and count left the local villagers awestruck. 
I heard the outer door open and shut behind me, but Ambrose didn't pay it any attention as he walked around to lean against the front of the desk. Your parents knew you were special, so they saved up for a couple of years, bought you a pair of shoes, and sewed the pig blanket into a shirt. He reached out to rub the fabric of my new clothes between his fingers. It took months of walking, hundreds of miles bumping along in the backs of mule carts, but in the end, he made an expansive gesture with both hands. Praise Talu and all his angels, here you are, all bright-eyed and full of dreams. I heard laughter and turned to see that two men and a young woman had come in during his tirade. God's body, Ambrose, what's got you started? Goddamn first-termers, Ambrose groused as he headed back around to sit behind the desk. Come in here dressed like rag piles and act like they own the place. The three newcomers walked toward the doors marked stacks. I fought down a hot flush of embarrassment as they looked me up and down. Are we still heading to the Aeolian tonight? Ambrose nodded. Of course, sixth bell. Aren't you going to check to see if they're in the book? I asked as the door closed behind them. Ambrose turned back to me, his smile bright, brittle, and by no means friendly. Listen, I'm going to give you a little advice for free. Back home, you were something special. Here, you're just another kid with a big mouth. So address me as Relar, go back to your bunk, and thank whatever pagan god you pray to that we're not Inventus. My father and I would chain you to a post like a rabid dog. He shrugged. Or don't. Stay here. Make a scene. Start to cry. Better yet, take a swing at me. He smiled. I'll give you a thrashing and get you thrown out on your ear. He picked up his pen and turned back to whatever he was writing. I left. You might think that this encounter left me disheartened. You might think I felt betrayed, my childhood dreams of the university cruelly shattered. Quite the contrary. It reassured me. I had been feeling rather out of my element until Ambrose let me know, in his own special way, that there wasn't much difference between the university and the streets of Tarbian. No matter where you are, people are basically the same. Besides, anger can keep you warm at night and wounded pride can spur a man to wondrous things. Chapter 38 Sympathy in the Mains Mains was the oldest building at the university. Over the centuries, it had grown slowly in all directions, engulfing smaller buildings and courtyards as it spread. And it had the look of an ambitious architectural breed of lichen that was trying to cover as many acres as it could. It was a hard place to find your way around. Hallways took odd turns, dead-ended unexpectedly, or took long, rambling, roundabout paths. It could easily take twenty minutes to walk from one room to another, despite the fact that they were only fifty feet apart. More experienced students knew shortcuts, of course, which workrooms and lecture halls to cut through to reach your destination. At least one of the courtyards had been completely isolated and could only be accessed by climbing through a window. Rumor had it, there were some rooms bricked off entirely, some with students still inside. 
Their ghosts were rumored to walk the halls at night, bewailing their fate and complaining about the food in the mess. My first class was held in Mainz. Luckily, I had been warned by my bunkmates that Mainz was difficult to navigate, so despite getting lost, I still arrived with time to spare. When I finally found the room for my first class, I was surprised to find it resembled a small theater. Seats rose in tiered semicircles around a small, raised stage. In larger cities, my troupe had performed in places not unlike this one. The thought relaxed me as I found a seat in the back. I was a jangling mass of excitement as I watched other students slowly trickle into the room. Everyone was older than me by at least a few years. I reviewed the first thirty sympathetic bindings in my head as the theater filled with anxious students. There were perhaps fifty of us in all, making the room about three-quarters full. Some had pen and paper with hardbacks to write on. Some had wax tablets. I hadn't brought anything, but that didn't worry me overmuch. I've always had an excellent memory. Master Hem entered the room and made his way onto the stage to stand behind a large stone work table. He looked impressive in his dark master's robes, and it was bare seconds before the whispering, shuffling theater of students hushed to silence. So, you want to be arcanists, he said. You want magic like you've heard about in bedtime stories. You've listened to songs about Tabberlin the Great, Roaring sheets of fire, magic rings, invisible cloaks, swords that never go dull, potions to make you fly. He shook his head, disgusted. Well, if that's what you're looking for, you can leave now, because you won't find it here. It doesn't exist. At this point, a student came in, realized he was late, and moved quickly into a vacant seat. Hem spotted him, though. Hello! Glad you chose to attend. What's your name? Gel, the boy said nervously. I'm sorry, I had a bit of a hard time- Gel, Hem interrupted. Why are you here? Gel gaped for a moment before managing to say, For principles of sympathy? I do not appreciate tardiness in my class. For tomorrow you may prepare a report on the development of the sympathy clock, its differences from the previous, more arbitrary clocks that used harmonic motion, and its effect on the accurate treatment of time. The boy twisted in his seat. Yes, sir. Hem seemed satisfied with the reaction. Very well. What is sympathy, then? Another boy hurried in, clutching a hardback. He was young, by which I mean he looked to be no more than two years older than me. Hem stopped him before he could make it into a seat. Hello there, he said in an over-courteous tone. And you are... Basil, sir. The boy stood awkwardly in the aisle. I recognized him. I had spied on his admissions interview. Basil, you wouldn't happen to be from ill, would you? Hem asked, smiling sharply. No, sir. Ah, Hem said, feigning disappointment. I had heard that Yilish tribes use the sun to tell time, and as such have no true concept of punctuality. However, as you are not Yilish, I can see no excuse for being late. Can you? 
Basil's mouth worked silently for a moment, as if to make some excuse, then apparently decided better of it. No, sir. Good. For tomorrow, you can prepare a report on Yil's lunar calendar compared to the more accurate, civilized Aturin calendar that you should be familiar with by now. Be seated. Basil slunk wordlessly into a nearby seat like a whipped dog. Hem gave up all pretext of lecture and lay in wait for the next tardy student. Thus it was that the hall was tensely silent when she stepped hesitantly into the room. It was a young woman of about eighteen a rarity of sorts. The ratio of men to women in the university is about ten to one. Hem's manner softened when she entered the room. He moved quickly up the steps to greet her. Ah, my dear, I'm suddenly pleased that we have not yet begun today's discussion. He took her by the elbow and led her down a few of the steps to the first available seat. She was obviously embarrassed by the attention. I'm sorry, Master Hem, Mains is bigger than I guessed. No worry, Hem said in a kindly fashion. You're here, and that's what matters. He solicitously helped her arrange her paper and ink before returning to the stage. Once there, it seemed as if he might actually lecture. But before he began, he looked back to the girl. I'm sorry, miss. She was the only woman in the room. Poor manners on my part. What is your name? Rhea. Rhea? Is that short for Rian? Yes, it is, she smiled. Rian, would you please cross your legs? The request was made with such an earnest tone that not even a titter escaped the class. Looking around, Rian crossed her legs. Now that the gates of hell are closed... Hem said in his normal, rougher tones, We can begin. And so he did, ignoring her for the rest of the lecture, which, as I see it, was an inadvertent kindness. It was a long two and a half hours. I listened attentively, always hoping that he would come to something I hadn't learned from Abenthe. But there was nothing. I quickly realized that while Hem was discussing the principles of sympathy, he was doing it at a very, very basic level. This class was a colossal waste of my time. After Hem dismissed the class, I ran down the stairs and caught him just as he was leaving through a lower door. Master Hem! He turned to face me. Oh, yes, our boy prodigy. I wasn't aware you were in my class. I didn't go too fast for you, did I? I knew better than to answer that honestly. You covered the basics very clearly, sir. The principles you mentioned today will lay a good foundation for the other students in the class. Diplomacy is a large part of being a trooper. He puffed up a bit at my perceived compliment, then looked more closely at me. Other students? he asked. I'm afraid I'm already familiar with the basics, sir. I know the three laws and the fourteen corollaries, as well as the first ninety- Yes, yes, I see. He cut me off. I'm rather busy at the moment. We can speak of this tomorrow before class. He turned and walked briskly away. Half a loaf being better than none, I shrugged and headed for the archives. If I wasn't going to learn anything from Hem's lectures, I might as well start educating myself. This time when I entered the archives, there was a young woman sitting behind the desk. She was strikingly beautiful with long, dark hair and clear, bright eyes. 
a notable improvement over Ambrose, to be sure. She smiled as I approached the desk. What's your name? Quoth, I said, son of Arladin. She nodded and began to page through the ledger. What's yours? I asked to fill the silence. Fella, she said without looking up, then nodded to herself and tapped the ledger. There you are. Go on in. There were two sets of double doors leading out of the antechamber, one marked stacks and the other tomes. Not knowing the difference between the two, I headed to the ones labeled stacks. That was what I wanted, stacks of books, great heaps of books, shelf after endless shelf of books. I had my hands on the handles of the doors before Fella's voice stopped me. I'm sorry, it's your first time in here, isn't it? I nodded not letting go of the door's handles. I was so close. What was going to happen now? The stacks are arcanum only, she said apologetically. She stood up and walked around the desk to the other set of doors. Here, let me show you. I reluctantly let go of the door's handles and followed her. Using both hands, she tugged one of the heavy wooden doors open, revealing a large, high-ceilinged room filled with long tables. A dozen students were scattered throughout the room, reading. The room was well lit with the unwavering light of dozens of sympathy lamps. Fella leaned close to me and spoke in a soft voice. This is the main reading area. You'll find all the necessary tomes used for most of the basic classes. She blocked the door open with her foot and pointed along one wall to a long section of shelving with three or four hundred books, more books than I had ever seen in one place before. Fella continued to speak softly. It's a quiet place, no talking above a whisper. I noticed that the room was almost unnaturally quiet. If you want a book that isn't there, you can submit a request at the desk, she pointed. They'll find the book and bring it out to you. I turned to ask her a question and only then realized how close she was standing. It says a great deal about how enamored I was with the archives that I failed to notice one of the most attractive women in the university standing less than six inches away. How long does it usually take them to find a book? I asked quietly, trying not to stare at her. It varies. She brushed her long black hair over her shoulder. Sometimes we're busier than others. Some people are better at finding the appropriate books. She shrugged and some of her hair swung back down to brush against my arm. Usually no more than an hour. I nodded, disappointed by not being able to browse the whole of the archives, but still excited to be inside. Once again, half a loaf was better than none. Thanks, fella. I went inside and she let the door swing shut behind me but she came after me just a moment later. One last thing, she said quietly. I mean, it goes without saying, but this is your first time here. Her expression was serious. The books don't leave this room. Nothing leaves the archives. Of course, I said. Naturally. I hadn't known. Fella smiled and nodded. I just wanted to make sure. A couple of years ago, we had a young gent who was used to carrying off books from his father's library. I'd never even seen Lauren frown before that, or talk much above a whisper. But when he caught that boy in the street with one of his books...
she shook her head as if she couldn't hope to explain what she had seen. I tried to picture the tall, somber master angry and failed. Thanks for the warning. Don't mention it. Fella headed back out into the entrance hall. I approached the desk she had pointed out to me. How do I request a book? I asked the scrib quietly. He showed me a large log book half filled with students' names and their requests. Some were requests for books with specific titles or authors, but others were more general requests for information. One of the entries caught my eye. Basil, Yillish Lunar Calendar, History of a Turin Calendar. I looked around the room and saw the boy from Hem's class hunched over a book, taking notes. I wrote, Quoth, The History of the Chandrian, Reports of the Chandrian and Their Signs, Black Eyes, Blue Flame, etc. I went to the shelves next and started looking over books. I recognized one or two from my studies with Ben. The only sound in the room was the occasional scratch of a pen on paper or the faint bird-wing sound of a page turning. Rather than being unsettling, I found the quiet strangely comforting. Later, I was to find out that the place was nicknamed Tombs because of its crypt-like quiet. Eventually, a book called The Mating Habits of the Common Dracus caught my eye, and I took it over to one of the reading tables. I picked it because it had a rather stylish embossed dragon on the cover, but when I started reading, I discovered it was an educated investigation into several common myths. I was halfway through the title piece, explaining how the myth of the dragon, in all likelihood, involved from the much older mundane Dracus when a scriv appeared at my elbow. Quoth? I nodded, and he handed me a small book with a blue cloth cover. Opening it, I was instantly disappointed. It was a collection of fairy stories. I flipped through it, hoping to find something useful, but it was filled with sticky-sweet adventure stories meant to amuse children. You know the sort. Brave orphans trick the Chandrian, win riches, marry princesses, and live happily ever after. I sighed and closed the book. I had half expected this. Until the Chandrian killed my family, I thought there were nothing more than children's stories, too. This sort of search wasn't going to get me anywhere. After walking to the desk, I thought for a long moment before writing a new line in the request ledger. Quoth, The history of the Order Amir, the origins of the Amir, the practices of the Amir. I reached the end of the line, and rather than start another one, I stopped and looked up at the scriv behind the desk. I'll take anything on the Amir, really, I said. We're a little busy right now, he said, gesturing to the room. Another dozen or so students had filtered in since I had arrived. But we'll bring something out as soon as we can. I returned to the table and flipped through the children's book again before abandoning it for the bestiary. The wait was much longer this time, and I was learning about the strange summer hibernation of Susquinian when I felt a light touch on my shoulder. I turned, expecting to see a scriv with an armload of books, or maybe Basil come to say hello. I was startled by the sight of Master Loren looming over me in his dark master's robes. Come, he said softly, and gestured for me to follow. Not knowing what might be the matter, I followed him out of the reading room. 
we walked behind the scrivs desk and down a flight of stairs to a small, featureless room with a table and two chairs. The archives was filled with little rooms like this, reading holes designed to give members of the Arcanum a place to sit privately and study. Lauren lay the request ledger from Tomes on the table. I noticed your request while assisting one of the newer scrivs in his duties, he said. You have an interest in the Chandrian and the Emir? He asked. I nodded. Is this in regard to an assignment from one of your instructors? For a moment, I thought about telling him the truth, about what had happened to my parents, about the story I had heard in Tarbian. But Manette's reaction to my mention of the Chandrian had shown me how foolish that would be. Until I'd seen the Chandrian myself, I didn't believe in them. If anyone would have claimed to have seen them, I would have thought they were crazy. At best, Lauren would think I was delusional. At worst, a foolish child. I was suddenly pointedly aware of the fact that I was standing in one of the cornerstones of civilization, talking to the master archivist of the university. It put things in a new perspective for me. The stories of an old man in some dockside tavern suddenly seemed very far away and insignificant. I shook my head. No, sir. It's merely to satisfy my curiosity. I have a great respect for curiosity, Lauren said with no particular inflection. Perhaps I can satisfy yours a bit. The emir were part of the church back when the Aeturan Empire was still strong. Their credo was Ivare Enim Yuge, which roughly translates as For the Greater Good. They were equal part knight-errant and vigilante. They had judiciary powers and could act as judges in both the religious and secular courts. All of them, to varying degrees, were exempt from the law. I knew most of this already. But where did they come from? I asked. It was as close as I dared come to mentioning Scarpy's story. They evolved from traveling judges, Lauren said, men who went from town to town, bringing the rule of law to small Aeturan towns. They originated in Aetur, then? He looked at me. Where else would they have originated? I couldn't bring myself to tell him the truth, that because of an old man's story, I suspected the Amir might have roots much older than the Aeturan Empire, that I hoped they might still exist somewhere in the world today. Lauren took my silence as a response. A piece of advice, he said gently. The Amir are dramatic figures. When we are young, we all pretend to be Amir and fight battles with willow-switch swords. It is natural for boys to be attracted to those stories. He met my eyes. However, a man, an arcanist, must focus himself on the present day. He must attend to practical things. He held my eyes as he continued to speak. You are young. Many will judge you by that fact alone. I drew a breath, but he held up a hand. I am not accusing you of engaging in boyish fancy. I am advising you to avoid the appearance of boyish fancy. He gave me a level look, his face as calm as always. I thought of the way Ambrose had treated me and nodded, 
feeling color rise to my cheeks. Lauren brought out a pen and drew a series of hashes through my single line of writing in the ledger book. I have a great respect for curiosity, he said, but others do not think as I do. I would not see your first term unnecessarily complicated by such things. I expect things will be difficult enough for you without that additional worry. I bowed my head, feeling as if I'd somehow disappointed him. I understand. Thank you, sir. Chapter 39 Enough Rope The next day I was ten minutes early to Hem's class, sitting in the front row. I hoped to catch Hem before the class started, thereby saving myself from having to sit through another one of his lectures. Unfortunately, he did not appear early. The lecture hall was full when he entered by the hall's lower door and climbed the three steps onto the raised wooden stage. He looked around the hall, eyes searching me out. Ah, yes, our young prodigy. Stand up, would you? Uncertain as to what was going on, I stood. I have pleasant news for everyone, he said. Mr. Quoth here has assured me as to his complete grasp of the principles of sympathy. In doing so, he has offered to give today's lecture. He made an expansive gesture for me to join him on the stage. He smiled at me with hard eyes. Mr. Quoth? He was mocking me, of course, expecting me to slink down into my seat, cowed and ashamed but I had had enough of bullies in my life. So I climbed onto the stage and shook his hand. Using a good stage voice, I spoke to the students. I thank Master Hem for this opportunity. I only hope that I can help him shed some light on this most important subject. Having started this little game, Hem was unable to stop it without looking foolish. As he shook my hand, he gave me the look a wolf gives a treed cat. Smiling to himself, he left the stage to assume my recently vacated seat in the front row. Confident of my ignorance, he was willing to let the charade continue. I would never have gotten away with it if not for two of Hem's numerous flaws. First, his general stupidity in not believing what I had told him the day before. Second, his desire to see me embarrassed as thoroughly as possible. Plainly said, he was giving me enough rope to hang myself with. Apparently, he didn't realize that once a noose is tied, it will fit one neck as easily as another. I faced the class. Today I will be presenting an example of the laws of sympathy. However, as time is limited, I will need help with the preparations. I pointed to a student at random. Would you be so good as to bring me one of Master Hem's hairs, please? Hem offered one up with an exaggerated graciousness. As the student brought it up to me, Hem smiled in genuine amusement, certain that the more grandiose my preparations were, the greater my embarrassment would be in the end. I took advantage of this slight delay to look over what equipment I had to work with. A brazier set off to one side of the stage, and a quick rifling of the drawers in the work table revealed chalk, a prism, sulfur matches, an enlarging glass, some candles, and a few oddly shaped blocks of metal. 
I took three of the candles and left the rest. I took Master Hem's hair from the student and recognized him as Basil, the boy Hem had browbeat yesterday. Thank you, Basil. Would you bring that brazier over here and get it burning as quickly as you can? As he brought it closer, I was delighted to see that it was equipped with a small bellows. While he poured alcohol onto the coal and struck a spark to it, I addressed the class. The concepts of sympathy are not entirely easy to grasp, but underneath everything there remain three simple laws. First is the doctrine of correspondence, which says, Similarity enhances sympathy. Second is the principle of consanguinity, which says, A piece of a thing can represent the whole of a thing. Third is the law of conservation, which says energy cannot be destroyed nor created. Correspondence, consanguinity, and conservation, the three C's. I paused and listened to the sound of a half-hundred pens scratching down my words. Beside me, Basil pumped industriously at the bellows. I realized I could grow to enjoy this. Don't worry if it doesn't make sense yet. The demonstration should make everything abundantly clear. Looking down, I saw the brazier was warming nicely. I thanked Basil and hung a shallow metal pan above the coals and dropped two of the candles in to melt. I set a third candle in a holder on the table and used one of the sulfur matches in the drawer to set it alight. Next, I moved the pan off the heat and poured its now-melted contents carefully onto the table, forming a fist-sized blob of soft wax. I looked back up at the students. In sympathy, most of what you are doing is redirecting energy. Sympathetic links are how the energy travels. I pulled out the wicking and began kneading the wax into a roughly human-shaped doll. The first law I mentioned, similarity enhances sympathy simply means that the more things resemble each other, the stronger the sympathetic link between them will be. I held the crude doll up for the class to inspect. This, I said, is Master Hem. Laughter muttered back and forth across the hall. Actually, this is my sympathetic representation of Master Hem. Would anyone like to take a guess as to why it is not a very good one? There was a moment of silence. I let it stretch out for a while. A cold audience. Hem had traumatized them yesterday, and they were slow in responding. Finally, from the back of the room, a student said, It's the wrong size. I nodded and continued to look around the room. He isn't made of wax, either. I nodded. It does bear some small resemblance to him, in general shape and proportion, Nevertheless, it is a very poor sympathetic representation. Because of that, any sympathetic link based off it would be rather weak. Perhaps 2% efficiency. How could we improve it? There was another silence, shorter than the first. You could make it bigger, someone suggested. I nodded and waited. Other voices called out, You could carve Master Ham's face on it. Paint it. Give it a little robe. Everyone laughed. I held up my hand for quiet and was surprised by how quickly it fell. Practicality aside, assume you did all these things. A six-foot, fully clothed, masterfully carved master hem stands beside me, I gestured. Even with all that effort, the best you might hope for is ten or fifteen percent sympathetic link. Not very good. Not very good at all. 
This brings me to the second law, consanguinity. An easy way to think of it is, once together, always together. Due to Master Hem's generosity, I have one of his hairs. I held it up and ceremoniously stuck it on the head of the doll. And as easy as this, we have a sympathetic link that will work at 30 to 35 percent. I had been watching Hem. While at first he seemed a little wary, he had lapsed back into a self-satisfied smirk. He knew that without the appropriate binding and properly focused ailer, all the wax and hair in the world wouldn't do one whit of good. Sure that he had taken me for a fool, I gestured to the candle and asked him, With your permission, master. He made a magnanimous wave of compliance and settled back into his chair, folding his arms in front of him, confident in his safety. Of course, I did know the binding. I told him so, and Ben had taught me about the ailer, the riding crop belief, back when I was twelve. But I didn't bother with either. I put the doll's foot into the candle flame, which guttered and smoked. There was a tense, held-breath quiet as everyone stretched in their seats to get a look at Master Hem. Hem shrugged, feigning astonishment, but his eyes had the look of a jaw trap about to close. A smirk tugged at one corner of his mouth, and he began to rise from his seat. I feel nothing, but exactly, I said, cracking my voice like a whip, startling the student's attention back to me. And why is that? I looked expectantly at the lecture hall. Because of the third law that I mentioned, conservation. Energy cannot be destroyed or created, merely lost or found. If I were to hold a candle underneath our esteemed teacher's foot, very little would occur, and since only about 30% of the heat is getting through, we do not even get that small result. I paused to let them think for a moment. This is the prime problem in sympathy. Where do we get the energy? Here, however, the answer is simple. I blew out the candle and relit it from the brazier. Muttering the few necessary words underneath my breath. By adding a second sympathetic link between the candle and a more substantial fire, I broke my mind into two pieces, one binding hem and the doll together, the other connecting the candle and the brazier. We get the desired effect. I casually moved the foot of the wax doll into the space about an inch above the candle's wick, which is actually the hottest part of the flame. There was a startled exclamation from where Hem was sitting. Without looking in his direction, I continued speaking to the class in the driest of tones. And it appears that this time we are successful. The class laughed. I blew out the candle. This is also a good example of the power that a clever sympathist commands. Imagine what would happen if I were to throw this doll into the fire itself. I held it over the brazier. As if on cue, Hem stormed onto the stage. It may have been my imagination, but it seemed to me that he was favoring his left leg slightly. It appears that Master Hem wishes to resume your instruction at this point. Laughter rippled through the room, louder this time. I thank you all, students and friends, and thus my humble lecture ends. At this point, I used one of the tricks of the stage. 
There is a certain inflection of voice and body language that signals a crowd to applaud. I cannot explain how exactly it is done, but it had its intended effect. I nodded my head to them and turned to face Hem amidst applause which, though far from deafening, was probably more than any he had ever received. As he took the last few steps toward me, I almost backed away. His face was a fearsome red, and a vein pulsed at his temple as if it were about to explode. For my own part, my stage training helped me maintain my composure. I returned his gaze levelly and held out my hand for him to shake. It was with no small account of satisfaction that I watched him give a quick glance to the still applauding class, swallow, and shake my hand. His handshake was painfully tight. It might have gotten worse if I hadn't made a slight gesture over the brazier with the wax doll. His face went from its livid red to an ashen white more quickly than I would have believed possible. His grip underwent a similar transformation, and I regained my hand. With another nod toward the seated students, I left the lecture hall without a backward glance. Chapter 40 On the Horns after Hem dismissed his class, news of what I had done spread through the university like wildfire. I guessed from the students' reactions that Master Hem was not particularly well-loved. As I sat on a stone bench outside the mews, passing students smiled in my direction. Others waved or gave laughing thumbs up. While I enjoyed the notoriety, a cold anxiety was slowly growing in my gut. I'd made an enemy of one of the nine masters— I needed to know how much trouble I was in. Dinner in the mess was brown bread with butter, stew, and beans. Manette was there, his wild hair making him look like a great white wolf. Simon and Sovoy groused idly about the food, making grim speculations as to what manner of meat was in the stew. To me, less than a span away from the streets of Tarbian, it was a marvelous meal indeed. Nevertheless, I was rapidly losing my appetite in the face of what I was hearing from my friends. "'Don't get me wrong,' Savoy said. "'You've got a great weighty pair on you. I'll never call that into question. But still,' he gestured with his spoon, "'they're going to string you up for this.' "'If he's lucky,' Simmons said. "'I mean, we are talking about malfeasance here, aren't we?' "'It's not a big deal.' I said with more assurance than I felt. I gave him a little bit of a hot foot, that's all. Any harmful sympathy falls under malfeasance. Manette pointed at me with his piece of bread, his wild, grizzled eyebrows arching seriously over his nose. You've got to pick your battles, boy. Keep your head down around the masters. They can make your life a real hell once you get into their bad books. He started it. I said sullenly through a mouthful of beans. A young boy jogged up to the table, breathless. "'Your quoth?' he asked, looking me over. I nodded, my stomach suddenly turning over. "'They want you in the master's hall!' "'Where is it?' I asked. "'I've only been here a couple of days.' "'Can one of you show him?' the boy asked, looking around the table. "'I've got to go tell Jameson I found him.' I'll do it, Simmons said, pushing away his bowl. I'm not hungry anyway. Jameson's runner boy took off, and Simmons started to get to his feet. Hold on, I said, 
pointing to my tray with my spoon. I'm not finished here. Simmons' expression was anxious. I can't believe you're eating, he said. I can't eat. How can you eat? I'm hungry, I said. I don't know what's waiting in the master's hall, but I'm guessing I'd rather have a full stomach for it. You're going on the horns, Manette said. It's the only reason they'd call you there at this time of night. I didn't know what he meant by that, but I didn't want to advertise my ignorance to everyone in the room. They can wait until I'm done. I took another bite of stew. Simmon returned to his seat and poked idly at his food. Truth be told, I wasn't really hungry anymore, but it galled me to be pulled away from a meal after all the times I'd been hungry in Tarbian. When Simmon and I finally got to our feet, the normal clamor in the mess quieted as folk watched us leave. They knew where I was headed. Outside, Simmon put his hands in his pockets and headed roughly in the direction of Hollows. All kidding aside, you're in a good bit of trouble, you know. I was hoping Hem would be embarrassed and keep quiet about it, I admitted. Do they expel many students? I tried to make it sound like a joke. There hasn't been anyone this term, Sim said with his shy, blue-eyed smile. But it's only the second day of classes. You might set some sort of record. This isn't funny, I said, but found myself wearing a grin regardless. Simmon could always make me smile, no matter what was going on. Sim led the way, and we reached hollows far too soon for my liking. Simmon raised a hand in a hesitant farewell as I opened the door and made my way inside. I was met by Jameson. He oversaw everything that wasn't under direct control of the masters. The kitchen, the laundry, the stables, the stock rooms. He was nervous and bird-like. A man with the body of a sparrow and the eyes of a hawk. Jameson escorted me into a large windowless room with a familiar crescent-shaped table. The Chancellor sat at the center, as he had during admissions. The only real difference was that this table was not elevated, and the seated masters were close to eye level with me. The eyes I met were not friendly. Jameson escorted me to the front of the crescent table. Seeing it from this angle made me understand the references to being on the horns. Jameson retreated to a smaller table of his own, dipping a pen. The Chancellor steepled his fingers and spoke without preamble. On the fourth of Catellan, Hem called the masters together. Jameson's pen scratched across a piece of paper, occasionally dipping back into the inkwell at the top of the desk. The Chancellor continued formally. Are all the masters present? Master Physiker, said Arwell. Master Archivist, said Lauren, his face impassive as ever. Master Arithmetician, Brander said, cracking his knuckles absently. Master Artificer, grumbled Kilvin without looking up from the tabletop. Master Alchemist, said Mandrag. Master Rhetorician, Hem's face was fierce and red. Master Sympathist, said Alxadal. Master Namer. Elodin actually smiled at me. Not just a perfunctory curling of the lips, but a warm, toothy grin. I drew a bit of a shaky breath 
relieved that at least one person present didn't seem eager to hang me up by my thumbs. And Master Linguist, said the Chancellor. All eight, he frowned. Sorry, strike that. All nine masters are present. Present your grievance, Master Hem. Hem did not hesitate. Today, first-term student Quo, not of the Arcanum, did perform sympathetic bindings on me with malicious intent. Two grievances are recorded against Kvoth by Master Hem, the Chancellor said sternly, not taking his eyes away from me. First grievance, unauthorized use of sympathy. What is the proper discipline for this, Master Archivist? For unauthorized use of sympathy leading to injury, the offending student will be bound and whipped a number of times, not less than two nor more than ten, singly across the back. Lauren said it as if reading off directions for a recipe. Number of lashes sought? The Chancellor looked at Hem. Hem paused to consider. Five. I felt the blood drain from my face, and I forced myself to take a slow, deep breath through my nose to calm myself. Does any master object to this? The Chancellor looked around the table, but all mouths were silent. All eyes were stern. The second grievance, malfeasance. Master Archivist? Four to fifteen single lashes and expulsion from the university, Lauren said in a level voice. Lashes sought? Hem stared directly at me. Eight. Thirteen lashes and expulsion. A cold sweat swept over me, and I felt nausea in the pit of my stomach. I had known fear before. In Tarbian, it was never far away. Fear kept you alive. But I had never before felt such a desperate helplessness, a fear not just for my body being hurt, but for my entire life being ruined. I began to get lightheaded. Do you understand these grievances set against you? The Chancellor asked sternly. I took a deep breath. Not exactly, sir. I hated the way my voice sounded, tremulous and weak. The Chancellor held up a hand, and Jameson lifted his pen from the paper. It is against the laws of the university for a student who is not a member of the Arcanum to use sympathy without permission from a master. His expression darkened, and it is always always expressly forbidden to cause harm with sympathy, especially to a master. A few hundred years ago, arcanists were hunted down and burned for things of that sort. We do not tolerate that sort of behavior here. I heard a hard edge creep into the Chancellor's voice. Only then did I sense how truly angry he was. He took a deep breath. Now do you understand? I nodded shakily. He made another motion to Jameson, who set his pen back to the paper. Do you, Quoth, understand these grievances set against you? Yes, sir, I said as steadily as I could. Everything seemed too bright, and my legs were trembling slightly. I tried to force them to be still, but it only seemed to make them shake all the more. Do you have anything to say in your defense? the Chancellor asked curtly. I just wanted to leave. I felt the stares of the Masters bearing down on me. 
my hands were wet and cold. I probably would have shaken my head and slunk from the room had the Chancellor not spoken again. Well, the Chancellor repeated testily, no defense? The words struck a chord in me. They were the same words that Ben had used a hundred times as he drilled me endlessly in argument. His words came back admonishing me. What? No defense? Any student of mine must be able to defend his ideas against an attack. No matter how you spend your life, your wit will defend you more often than a sword. Keep it sharp. I took another deep breath, closed my eyes, and concentrated. After a long moment, I felt the cool impassivity of the heart of stone surround me. My trembling stopped. I opened my eyes and heard my own voice say, I had permission for my use of sympathy, sir. The Chancellor gave me a long, hard look before saying, What? I held the heart of stone around me like a calming mantle. I had permission from Master Hem, both express and implied. The Masters stirred in their seats, puzzled. The Chancellor looked far from pleased. Explain yourself. I approached Master Hem after his first lecture and told him I was already familiar with the concepts he had discussed. He told me we would discuss it the next day. When he arrived for class the next day, he announced that I would be giving the lecture in order to demonstrate the principles of sympathy. After observing what materials were available, I gave the class the first demonstration my master gave me. Not true, of course. As I've already mentioned, my first lesson involved a handful of iron drabs. It was a lie, but a plausible lie. Judging by the master's expressions, this was news to them. Somewhere deep in the heart of stone, I relaxed, glad that the master's irritation was based on Hem's angrily abridged version of the truth. You gave a demonstration before the class? The chancellor asked before I could continue. He glanced at Hem, then back at me. I played innocent. Just a simple one. Is that unusual? It is a little odd, he said, looking at Hem. I could sense his anger again, but this time it didn't seem to be directed at me. I thought it might be the way you proved your knowledge of material and moved to a more advanced class. I said innocently, Another lie, but again, plausible. Elksa Dahl spoke up. What did the demonstration involve? A wax doll, a hair from Hem's head, and a candle. I would have picked a different example, but my materials were limited. I thought that might be another part of the test, making do with what you were given. I shrugged again. I couldn't think of any other way to demonstrate all three laws with the materials on hand. The Chancellor looked at Hem. Is what the boy says true? Hem opened his mouth as if he would deny it then apparently remembered that an entire classroom full of students had witnessed the exchange. He said nothing. Damn it, Hem! Elksa Dahl burst out. You let the boy make a simulacra of you, then bring him here on malfeasance? He sputtered. You deserve worse than you got! Elir Kvoth could not have hurt him with just a candle, Kilvin muttered. He gave his fingers a puzzled look as if he were working something out in his head. 
not with hair and wax. Maybe blood and clay. Order! The Chancellor's voice was too quiet to be called a shout, but he carried the same authority. He shot looks at Elksadal and Kilvin. Quoth, answer Master Kilvin's question. I made a second binding between the candle and the brazier to illustrate the law of conservation. Kilvin did not look up from his hands. Wax and hair? He grumbled, as if not entirely satisfied with my explanation. I gave a half-puzzled, half-embarrassed look and said, I don't understand it myself, sir. I should have gotten ten percent transference at best. It shouldn't have been enough to blister Master Hem, let alone burn him. I turned to Hem. I really didn't mean any harm, sir, I said in my best distraught voice. It was just supposed to be a bit of a hot foot to make you jump. The fire hadn't been going more than five minutes, and I didn't imagine that a fresh fire at ten percent could hurt you. I even wrung my hands a little, every bit the distraught student. It was a good performance. My father would have been proud. Well, it did, Hem said bitterly. And where is the damn mummet, anyway? I demand you return it at once. I'm afraid I can't, sir. I destroyed it. It was too dangerous to leave laying around. Hem gave me a shrewd look. It's of no real concern, he muttered. The Chancellor took up the reins again. This changes things considerably. Hem, do you still set grievance against Quoth? Hem glared and said nothing. I move to strike both grievances, Arwell said, the physicker's old voice coming as a bit of a surprise. If Hem set him in front of the class, he gave permission. And it isn't malfeasance if you give him your hair and watch him stick it on the mummet's head. I expected him to have more control over what he was doing, Hem said, shooting a venomous look at me. It's not malfeasance, Arwell said doggedly, glaring at Hem from behind his spectacles, the grandfatherly lines on his face forming a fierce scowl. It would fall under reckless use of sympathy, Loren interjected coolly. Is that a motion to strike the previous two grievances and replace them with reckless use of sympathy? asked the Chancellor, trying to regain a semblance of formality. Aye, said Arwill, still glaring fearsomely at Hem through his spectacles. All for the motion, the Chancellor said. There was a chorus of eyes from everyone but Hem. Against? Hem remained silent. Master Archivist, what is the discipline for reckless use of sympathy? If one is injured by reckless use of sympathy, the offending student will be whipped, singly, no more than seven times across the back. I wondered what book Master Lorne was reciting from. Number of lashes sought? Hem looked at the other master's faces, realizing the tide had turned against him. My foot is blistered halfway to my knee, he gritted. Three lashes. The chancellor cleared his throat. Does any master oppose this action? Aye, Elksadal and Kilvin said together. Who wishes to suspend the discipline? Vote by show of hands. Elksadal, Kilvin, and Arwill raised their hands at once, followed by the chancellor.
Mandrag kept his hand down, as did Lauren, Brander, and Hem. Elodin grinned at me cheerily, but did not raise his hand. I kicked myself for my recent trip to the archives and the bad impression it made on Lauren. If not for that, he might have tipped things in my favor. Four and a half in favor of suspending punishment, the Chancellor said after a pause. The discipline stands. Three lashes to be served tomorrow, the third of Echis at noon. As I was deep into the heart of stone, all I felt was a slight analytical curiosity about what it would be like to be publicly whipped. All the masters showed signs of preparing to stand and leave, but before things could be called to a close, I spoke up. Chancellor. He took a deep breath and let it out in a gush. Yes. During my admission, you said that my admittance to the Arcanum was granted, contingent upon proof that I had mastered the basic principles of sympathy. I quoted him nearly word for word. Does this constitute proof? Both Hem and the Chancellor opened their mouths to say something. Hem was louder. Look here, you little cocker! Hem! The Chancellor snapped. Then he turned to me. I am afraid proof of mastery requires more than a simple sympathetic binding. A double binding, Kilvin corrected gruffly. Elodin spoke, seeming to startle everyone at the table. I can think of students currently enrolled in the Arcanum who would be hard-pressed to complete a double binding, let alone draw enough heat to blister a man's foot to the knee. I had forgotten how Elodin's light voice moved through the deep places in your chest when he spoke. He smiled happily at me again. There was a moment of quiet reflection. True enough, admitted Elxadal, giving me a close look. The Chancellor looked down at the empty table for a minute. Then he shrugged, looked up, and gave a surprisingly jaunty smile. All in favor of admitting first-term student Kvolt's reckless use of sympathy as proof of mastery of the basic principles of sympathy, vote by show of hands. Kilvin and Elxadal raised their hands together. Arwell added his a moment later. Elodin waved. After a pause, the Chancellor raised his hand as well, saying, Five and a half in favor of Kvolt's admission to the Arcanum. Motion passed. Meeting dismissed. Telu shelter us. Fools and children all. He said the last very softly as he rested his forehead against the heel of his hand. Hem stormed out of the room with Brander in tow. Once they were through the door, I heard Brander ask, Weren't you wearing a gram? No, I wasn't, Hem snapped. And don't take that tone with me as if this were my fault. You might as well blame someone stabbed in an alley for not wearing armor. We should all take precautions. Brander said placatingly, you know as well as— Their voices were cut off with the sound of a door closing. Kilvin stood and shrugged his shoulders, stretching. Looking over to where I stood, he scratched his bushy beard with both hands. A thoughtful look on his face, then strode over to where I stood. Do you have your sigildry yet, Ilir Kovoth? I looked at him blankly. Do you mean runes, sir? I'm afraid not. Kilvin ran his hands through his beard thoughtfully. Do not bother with the basic artificing class you have signed for. Instead, you will come to my workroom tomorrow, noon. 
I'm afraid I have another appointment at noon, Master Kilvin. Hmm, yes. He frowned. First bell, then. I'm afraid the boy will be having an appointment with my folk shortly after the whipping, Kilvin, Arwell said with a glimmer of amusement in his eyes. Have someone bring you to the Medica afterwards, son. We'll stitch you back together. Thank you, sir. Arwell nodded and made his way out of the room. Kilvin watched him go, then turned to look at me. My workshop. Day after tomorrow. Noon. The tone of his voice implied that it wasn't really a question. I would be honored, Master Kilvin. He grunted in response and left with Alxadal. That left me alone with the still-seated Chancellor. We stared at each other while the sound of footsteps faded in the hallway. I brought myself back up out of the heart of stone and felt a tangle of anticipation and fear at everything that had just happened. I'm sorry to be so much trouble so soon, sir, I offered hesitantly. Oh, he said, his expression considerably less stern now that we were alone. How long had you intended to wait? At least a span, sir. My brush with disaster had left me feeling giddy with relief. I felt an irrepressible grin bubble onto my face. At least a span, he muttered. The Chancellor put his face into his hands and rubbed, then looked up and surprised me with a wry smile. I realized he wasn't particularly old when his face wasn't locked in a stern expression. Probably only on the far side of forty. You don't look like someone who knows he's going to be whipped tomorrow, he observed. I pushed the thought aside. I imagine I'll heal, sir. He gave me an odd look. It took me a while to recognize it as the one I'd grown accustomed to in the troop. He opened his mouth to speak, but I jumped on the words before he could say them. I'm not as young as I look, sir. I know it. I just wish other people knew it, too. I imagine they will before too long. He gave me a long look before pushing himself up from the table. He held out a hand. Welcome to the Arcanum. I shook his hand solemnly, and we parted ways. I worked my way outside and was surprised to see that it was full night. I breathed in a lungful of sweet spring air and felt my grin resurface. Then someone touched me on the shoulder. I jumped fully two feet into the air and narrowly avoided falling on Simon in the howling, scratching, biting blur that had been my only method of defense in Tarbian. He took a step back, startled by the expression on my face. I tried to slow my pounding heart. Simon, I'm sorry, I'm just... Try to make a little noise around me. I startle easily. Me too, he murmured shakily, wiping a hand across his forehead. I can't really blame you, though. Riding the horns will do that to the best of us. How did things go? I'm to be whipped and admitted to the Arcanum. He looked at me curiously, trying to see if I was making a joke. I'm sorry? Congratulations? He made a shy smile at me. Do I buy you a bandage or a beer? I smiled back. Both. By the time I got back to the fourth floor of the Mews, rumor of my non-expulsion and admission into the Arcanum had spread ahead of me. 
I was greeted by a smattering of applause from my bunkmates. Hem was not well loved. Some of my bunkmates offered odd congratulations, while Basil made a special point of coming forward to shake my hand. I had just climbed up to a sitting position on my bunk and was explaining to Basil the difference between a single whip and a six-tail when the third-floor steward came looking for me. He instructed me to pack up my things, explaining that Arcanum students were located in the West Wing. Everything I owned still fit neatly into my travel sack, so it was no great chore. As the steward led me away, there was a chorus of goodbyes from my fellow first-term students. The West Wing bunks were similar to those I had left behind. It was still rows of narrow beds, but here they weren't stacked too high. Each bed had a small wardrobe and desk in addition to a trunk. Nothing fancy, but definitely a step up. The biggest difference was in the attitudes of my bunkmates. There were scowls and glares, though for the most part I was pointedly ignored. It was a chilly reception, especially in the light of the welcome I had just received from my non-Arcanum bunkmates. It was easy to understand why. Most students attend the university for several terms before being admitted into the Arcanum. Everyone here had worked their way up through the ranks the hard way. I hadn't. Only about three-quarters of the bunks were full. I picked one in the back corner, away from the others. I hung my one extra shirt and my cloak in the wardrobe and put my travel sack in the trunk at the foot of my bed. I lay down and stared at the ceiling. My bunk lay outside the light of the other students' candles and sympathy lamps. I was finally a member of the Arcanum, in some ways exactly where I had always wanted to be. Chapter 41 Friend's Blood The next morning I woke early, washed up, and grabbed a bite to eat at the mess. Then, because I had nothing to do before my whipping at noon, I strolled the university aimlessly. I wandered through a few apothecaries and bottle shops, admired the well-kept lawns and gardens. Eventually, I came to rest on a stone bench in a wide courtyard. Too anxious to think of doing anything productive, I simply sat and enjoyed the weather, watching the wind tumble a few scraps of waste paper along the cobblestones. It wasn't too long before Willem strolled over and sat himself next to me without an invitation. His characteristic sealedish dark hair and eyes made him seem older than Simon and me, but he still had the slightly awkward look of a boy who wasn't quite used to being man-sized yet. Nervous? he asked with the harsh burr a Siaru accent makes. Trying not to think about it, actually, I said. Willem grunted. We were both quiet for a minute while we watched the students walk past. A few of them paused in their conversations to point at me. I quickly grew tired of their attention. Are you doing anything right now? Sitting, he said simply. Breathing. Clever. I can see why you're in the Arcanum. Are you busy for the next hour or so? He shrugged and looked at me expectantly. Would you show me where Master Arwell is? He told me to stop by after. Certainly, he said, pointing to one of the courtyard's outlets. Medica is on the other side of archives. We made our way around the massive windowless block that was the archives. Willem pointed. 
That is Medica. It was a large, oddly shaped building. It looked like a taller, less rambling version of Maine's. Bigger than I thought it would be, I mused. All for teaching medicine? He shook his head. They do much business in tending the sick. They never turn anyone away because they can't pay. Really? I looked at Medica again, thinking of Master Arwell. That's surprising. You need not pay in advance, he clarified. After you recover... He paused, and I heard the clear implication, if you recover. You settle accounts. If you have no hard coin, you work until your debt is... He paused. What is the word for shayim? He asked, holding out his hands with the palms up and moving them up and down as if they were the pans of a scale. Wade? I suggested. He shook his head. No. Shayim! He stressed the word and brought his hands even with each other. Oh! I mimicked the gesture. Balanced! He nodded. You work until your debt is balanced with the medica. Few leave without settling their debts. I gave a grim chuckle. Not that surprising. What's the point of running away from an arcanist who has a couple drops of your blood? We eventually came to another courtyard. In the center of it was a pennant pole with a stone bench underneath it. I didn't need to guess who was going to be tied to it in an hour or so. There were about a hundred students milling around, giving things an oddly festive air. It's not usually this big, Willem said apologetically, but a few masters canceled classes. Hem, I'm guessing, and Brandur. Willem nodded. Hem holds grudges. He paused to give emphasis to his understatement. He'll be there with his whole coterie. He pronounced that last word slowly. Is that the right word? Coterie? I nodded, and Willem looked vaguely self-satisfied. Then he frowned. That makes me remember something strange in your language. People are always asking me about the road to Tinue. Endlessly, they say, how is the road to Tinue? What does it mean? I smiled. It's an idiomatic piece of the language. That means, I know what an idiom is, Willem interrupted. What does this one mean? Oh, I said slightly embarrassed. It's just a greeting. It's kind of like asking, how is your day? Or, how is everything going? That is also an idiom, Willem grumbled. Your language is thick with nonsense. I wonder how any of you understand each other. How is everything going? Going where? He shook his head. Tinue, apparently. I grinned at him. Tuan Volgen Okefama, I said, using one of my favorite Siaru idioms. It meant, don't let it make you crazy but it translated literally as, don't put a spoon in your eye over it. We turned away from the courtyard and walked around the university aimlessly for a while. Willem pointed out a few more notable buildings, including several good taverns, the alchemy complex, the sealedish laundry, and both the sanctioned and unsanctioned brothels. We strolled past the featureless stone walls of the archives, 
passed a cooper, a bookbinder, an apothecary. A thought occurred to me. Do you know much herb lore? He shook his head. Chemistry mostly, and I dapple in archives with puppets sometimes. Dabble, I said, emphasizing the buh sound for him. Dapple is something else. Who's puppet? Will paused. Hard to describe. He waved a hand to dismiss the question. I'll introduce you later. What do you need to know about herbs? Nothing, really. Could you do me a favor? He nodded, and I pointed to the nearby apothecary. Go buy me two scruples of gnarl root. I held up two iron drabs. This should cover it. Why me? He asked warily. Because I don't want the fellow in there giving me the you're awfully young look. I frowned. I don't want to have to deal with that today. I was nearly dancing with anxiety by the time Willem got back. He was busy, he explained, seeing the impatient expression on my face. He handed me a small paper packet and a loose jingle of change. What is it? It's to settle my stomach, I said. Breakfast isn't sitting too well, and I don't fancy throwing up halfway through being whipped. I bought a cider at a nearby pub, using mine to wash down the gnarl root, trying not to grimace at the bitter, chalky taste. Before too long, we heard the belling tower striking noon. I think I must go to class. Will tried to mention it nonchalantly, but it came out almost strangled. He looked up at me, embarrassed, and a little pale under his dark complexion. I am not fond of blood, he gave a shaky smile. My blood, friend's blood. I don't plan on doing much bleeding, I said, but don't worry. You've gotten me through the hard part, the waiting. Thank you. We parted ways and I fought down a wave of guilt. After knowing me less than three days, Will had gone out of his way to help me. He could have taken the easy route and resented my quick admittance into the Arcanum as many others did. Instead, he had done a friend's duty, helping me pass a difficult time, and I had repaid him with lies. As I walked toward the pennant pole, I felt the weight of the crowd's eyes on me. How many were there? Two hundred? Three? After a certain point is reached, the numbers cease to matter, and all that remains is the faceless mass of a crowd. My stage training held me firm under their stares. I walked steadily toward the pennant pole amid a sea of susurrous murmurings. I didn't carry myself proudly, as I knew that might turn them against me. I was not repentant, either. I carried myself well, as my father had taught me, with neither fear nor regret on my face. As I walked, I felt the null root begin to take firm hold of me. I felt perfectly awake while everything around me grew almost painfully bright. Time seemed to slow as I approached the center of the courtyard. As my feet came down on the cobblestones, I watched the small puffs of dust they raised. I felt a breath of wind catch the hem of my cloak and curl underneath to cool the sweat between my shoulder blades. It seemed for a second that should I wish to, 
I could count the faces in the crowd around me like flowers in a field. I spotted none of the masters in the crowd except for him. He stood near the pennant pole, looking pig-like in his smugness. He folded his arms in front of himself, letting the sleeves of his black master's robe hang loosely at his sides. He caught my eye, and his mouth quirked up into a soft smirk that I knew was meant for me. I resolved that I would bite out my own tongue before I gave him the satisfaction of appearing frightened or even concerned. Instead, I gave him a wide, confident smile, then looked away as if he didn't concern me in the least. Then I was at the pennant pole. I heard someone reading something, but the words were just a vague buzzing to me as I removed my cloak and lay it across the back of a stone bench that sat at the base of the pole. Then I began to unbutton my shirt as casually as if I were preparing to take a bath. A hand on my wrist stopped me. The man that had read the announcement gave me a smile that tried to be comforting. You don't need to go shirtless, he said. It'll save you from a bit of the sting. I'm not going to ruin a perfectly good shirt, I said. He gave me an odd look, then shrugged and ran a length of rope through an iron ring above our heads. I'll need your hands. I gave him a flat look. You don't need to worry about my running off. It's to keep you from falling over if you pass out. I gave him a hard look. If I pass out, you may do whatever you wish, I said firmly. Until then, I will not be tied. Something in my voice gave him pause. He didn't offer me any argument as I climbed onto the stone bench beneath the pole and stretched to reach the iron ring. I gripped it firmly with both hands. Smooth and cool, I found it oddly comforting. I focused on it as I lowered myself into the heart of stone. I heard people moving away from the base of the pole. Then the crowd quieted, and there was no sound but the soft hiss and crack of the whip being loosened behind me. I was relieved I was to be whipped with a single-headed whip. In Tarbian, I had seen the terrible, bloody hash a six-tail can make of a man's back. There was a sudden hush. Then before I could brace myself, there came a sharper crack than the ones before. I felt a line of dim red fire trace down my back. I gritted my teeth. But it wasn't as bad as I'd thought it would be. Even with the precautions I had taken, I expected a sharper, fiercer pain. Then the second lash came. Its crack was louder, and I heard it through my body rather than with my ears. I felt an odd looseness across my back. I held my breath, knowing I was torn and bleeding. Everything went red for a moment, and I leaned against the rough, tarred wood of the pennant pole. The third lash came before I was ready for it. It licked up to my left shoulder, then tore nearly all the way down to my left hip. I grit my teeth, refusing to make a sound. I kept my eyes open and watched the world grow black around the edges for a moment before snapping back into sharp, bright focus. Then... Ignoring the burning across my back, I set my feet on the bench and loosened my clenched fingers from the iron ring. A young man jumped forward as if he expected to have to catch me. I gave him a scathing look and he backed away. I gathered my shirt and cloak, 
laid them carefully over one arm, and left the courtyard, ignoring the silent crowd around me. Chapter 42 Bloodless It could be worse, that much is certain. Master Arwell's round face was serious as he circled me. I was hoping you would simply welt, but I should have known better with your skin. I sat on the edge of a long table deep inside the medica. Arwell prodded my back gently as he chattered on. But, as I say, it could be worse. Two cuts, and as cuts go, you couldn't have done better. Clean, shallow, and straight. If you do as I tell you, you'll have nothing but smooth silver scars to show the ladies how brave you are. He stopped in front of me and raised his white eyebrows enthusiastically behind the round rings of his spectacles. Eh? His expression wrung a smile from me. He turned to the young man that stood by the door. Go and fetch the next Raylar on the list. Tell them only that they are to bring what is needful to repair a straight, shallow laceration. The boy turned and left, his feet pattering away in the distance. You will provide excellent practice for one of my Raylar, Arwell said cheerfully. Your cut is a good straight one with little chance of complication, but there is not much to you. He prodded my chest with a wrinkled finger and made a tisk noise with his tongue against his teeth. Just bones and a little wrapping. It is easier for us if we have more meat to work with. But, he shrugged, bringing his shoulders almost to his ears and back down, things are not always ideal. That is what a young physiker must learn more than anything. He looked up at me as if expecting a response. I nodded seriously. It seemed to satisfy him, and his squinting smile returned. He turned and opened a cabinet that stood against one of the walls. Give me just a moment, and I will numb the burning that must be all across your back. He clinked a few bottles together as he rummaged around on its shelves. It's all right, Master Arwell, I said stoically. You can stitch me clothes the way I am. I had two scruples of gnawroot numbing me, and I knew better than to mix anesthetics if I could avoid it. He paused with one arm deep into the cabinet and had to withdraw it to turn and look at me. Have you ever had stitches before, my boy? Yes, I said honestly. Without anything to soften the pain? I nodded again. As I sat on the table, my eyes were slightly higher than his. He looked up at me skeptically. Let me see, then, he said, as if he didn't quite believe me. I pulled my pant leg up over my knee, gritting my teeth as the motion tugged on my back. Eventually, I revealed a handspan worth of scar on my outer thigh above my knee from when Pike had stabbed me with his bottle-glass knife back in Tarbian. Arwell looked at it closely, holding his glasses with one hand. He gave it one gentle prod with his index finger before straightening. Sloppy he pronounced with a mild distaste. I had thought it was a rather good job. My cord broke halfway through, I said stiffly. I wasn't working under ideal circumstances. Arwell was silent for a moment, stroking his upper lip with a finger as he watched me through half-lidded eyes. 
And do you enjoy this sort of thing? He asked dubiously. I laughed at his expression, but it was cut short when dull pain blossomed across my back. No, master. I was just taking care of myself as best I could. He continued looking at me, still stroking his lower lip. Show me where the gut broke. I pointed. It isn't the sort of thing that you forget. He gave the old scar a closer examination and prodded it again before looking up. You may be telling me the truth, he shrugged. I do not know, but I would think that if... He trailed off and peered speculatively into my eyes. Reaching up, he pulled one of the lids back. Look up, he said perfunctorily. Frowning at whatever he saw, Arwell picked up one of my hands, pressed the tip of my fingernail firmly, and watched intently for a second or two. His frown deepened as he moved closer to me, took hold of my chin with one hand, opened my mouth, and smelled it. Tennyson? he asked, then answered his own question. No. Nullroot, of course. I must be getting old not to notice it sooner. It also explains why you're not bleeding all over my nice clean table. He gave me a serious look. How much? I didn't see any way of denying it. Two scruples. Arwell was silent for a while as he looked at me. After a moment, he removed his spectacles and rubbed them fiercely against his cuff. Replacing them, he looked straight at me. It is no surprise that a boy might fear a whipping enough to drug himself for it. He looked sharply at me. But why, if he was so afraid, would he remove his shirt beforehand? He frowned again. You will explain all of this to me. If you've lied to me before, admit it, and all will be well. I know boys tell foolish stories sometimes. His eyes glittered behind the glass of his spectacles. But if you lie to me now, neither I nor any of mine will stitch you. I will not be lied to. He crossed his arms in front of himself. So, explain. I do not understand what is going on here. That, more than anything else, I do not like. My last resort, then. The truth. My teacher, Abenthe, taught me as much as he could about the physicer's arts, I explained. When I ended up living on the streets of Tarbian, I took care of myself. I gestured to my knee. I didn't wear my shirt today because I only have two shirts, and it has been a long time since I've had as many as that. And the null root? he asked. I sighed. I don't fit in here, sir. I'm younger than everyone, and a lot of people think I don't belong. I upset a lot of students by getting into the Arcanum so quickly and I've managed to get on the wrong side of Master Hem. All those students, and Hem and his friends, they're all watching me, waiting for some sign of weakness. I took a deep breath. I took the null root because I didn't want to faint. I needed to let them know they couldn't hurt me. I've learned that the best way to stay safe is to make your enemies think you can't be hurt. It sounded ugly to say it so starkly, but it was the truth. I looked at him defiantly. There was a long silence as Arwell looked at me, 
his eyes narrowing slightly behind his spectacles, as if he were trying to see something inside me. He brushed his upper lip with his finger again before he began slowly to speak. I suppose if I were older, he said quietly enough to be speaking to himself, I would say that you are being ridiculous, that our students are adults, not squabbling bickersome boys. He paused again, still stroking his lip absent-mindedly. Then his eyes crinkled upward around the edges as he smiled at me. But I am not so old as that. Hmm. Not yet. Not by half. Anyone who thinks boys are innocent and sweet has never been a boy himself or has forgotten it. And anyone who thinks men aren't hurtful and cruel at times must not leave his house often. And he has certainly never been a physiker. We see the effects of cruelty more than any other. Before I could respond, he said, Close your mouth, Iliak Voth, or I will feel obliged to put some vile tonic in it. Ah, here they come. The last was said to two students entering the room. One was the same assistant who had shown me here. The other was, surprisingly, a young woman. Ah, Rela Mola, Arwell enthused, all signs of our serious discussion passing lightly from his face. You have heard that your patient has two straight, clean lacerations. What have you brought to remedy the situation? Boiled linen, hook needle, gut, alcohol, and iodine, she said crisply. She had green eyes that stood out in her pale face. What? Arwell demanded. No sympathy wax? No, Master Arwell, she responded, paling a little at his tone. And why not? She hesitated. Because I don't need it. Arwell seemed mollified. Yes, of course you don't. Very good. Did you wash before you came here? Mola nodded her short blonde hair bobbing with the motion of her head. Then you have wasted your time and effort, he said sternly. Think of all the germs of disease that you might have gathered in the long walk through the passageway. Wash again, and we will begin. She washed with a thorough briskness at a nearby basin. Arwell helped me lay face down on the table. Has the patient been numbed? she asked, though I couldn't see her face. I heard a shadow of doubt in her voice. Anesthetized, Arwell corrected. You have a good eye for detail, Mola. No, he has not. Now, what would you do if Elia Kvoth reassured you that he has no need for such things? He claims to have self-control like a bar of Ramsden steel and will not flinch when you stitch him. Arwell's tone was serious, but I could detect a hint of amusement hiding underneath. Mola looked at me, then back to Arwell. I would tell him he was being foolish, she said after a brief pause. And if he persisted in his claims that he needed no numbing agent? There was a longer pause from Mola. He doesn't seem to be bleeding much at all, so I would proceed. I would also make it clear to him that if he moved over much... I would tie him to the table and treat him as I saw fit for his well-being. Hmm. Arwell seemed a little surprised at her response. Yes. Very good. 
So, Kvothe, do you still want to forego an anesthetic? Thank you, I said politely. I do not need one. Very well, Mola said, as if resigning herself. First, we will clean and sterilize the wound. The alcohol stung, but that was the worst of it. I tried my best to relax as Mola talked her way through the procedure. Arwell kept up a steady stream of comments and advice. I occupied my mind with other things and tried not to twitch at the null-root-dulled jabs of the needle. She finished quickly and proceeded to bandage me with a quick efficiency I admired. As she helped me to a sitting position and wound linen around me, I wondered if all Arwell students were as well-trained as this one. She was making her final knots behind me when I felt a vague, feather-like touch on my shoulder, almost insensible through the null root that numbed me. He has lovely skin, I heard her muse, presumably to Arwell. Rela, Arwell said severely. Such comments are not professional. I am disappointed by your lack of sense. I was referring to the nature of the scar he can expect to have, she responded scathingly. I imagine it will be little more than a pale line, provided he can avoid tearing open his wound. Hmm, Arwell said. Yes, of course. And how should he avoid that? Mola walked around to stand in front of me. Avoid motions like this. She extended her hands in front of her. Or this. She held them high over her head. Avoid over-quick motions of any kind, running, jumping, climbing. The bandage may come off in two days. Do not get it wet. She looked away from me to Arwell. He nodded. Very good, Rella. You are dismissed. He looked at the younger boy who had watched mutely throughout the procedure. You may go as well, Gary. If anyone asks, I will be in my study. Thank you. In a moment, Arwell and I were alone again. He stood motionless, one hand covering his mouth as I eased my way carefully into my shirt. Finally, he seemed to reach a decision. Elia Kvothe, would you like to study here at the Medica? Very much so, Master Arwell, I said honestly. He nodded to himself, hand still held against his lips. Come back in four days. If you are clever enough to keep from tearing out your stitches, I will have you here. His eyes twinkled. Chapter 43 The Flickering Way Buoyed by the stimulant effects of the Nalrut and feeling very little pain, I made my way to the archives. Since I was now a member of the Arcanum, I was free to explore the stacks, something I'd been waiting my whole life to do. Better still, so long as I didn't ask for any help from the Scrivs, nothing would be recorded in the archives' ledger books. That meant I could research the Chandrian and the Amir to my heart's content, and no one, not even Lauren, need ever know about my childish pursuits. Entering the reddish light of the archives, I found both Ambrose and Fella sitting behind the entry desk. A mixed blessing, if ever there was one. Ambrose was leaning toward her, speaking in a low voice. She had the distinctly uncomfortable look of a woman who knows the futility of a polite refusal. 
One of his hands rested on her knee, while the other arm was draped across the back of her chair, his hand resting on her neck. He meant for it to look tender and affectionate, but there was a tension in her body like that of a startled deer. The truth was, he was holding her there, the same way you hold a dog by the scruff of its neck to keep it from running off. As the door thumped closed behind me, Fella looked up, met my eyes, then looked down and away, ashamed by her predicament, as if she'd done anything. I had seen that look too many times on the streets of Tarbian. It sparked an old anger in me. I approached the desk, making more noise than necessary. Pen and ink lay on the other end of the desk, and a piece of paper three-quarters full of rewriting and crossing out. From the looks of things, Ambrose had been trying to compose a poem. I reached the edge of the desk and stood for a moment. Fella looked everywhere except at me or Ambrose. She shifted in her seat, uncomfortable but obviously not wanting to make a scene. I cleared my throat pointedly. Ambrose looked over his shoulder, scowling. You have damnable timing, Elir. Come back later. He turned away again, dismissing me. I snorted and leaned over the desk, craning my neck to look at the sheet of paper he'd left lying there. I have damnable timing? Please. You have thirteen syllables in a line here. I tapped a finger onto the page. It's not iambic, either. I don't know if it's anything metrical at all. He turned to look at me again, his expression irritated. Mind your tongue, Elir. The day I come to you for help with poetry is the day... Is the day you have two hours to spare, I said. Two long hours, and that's just for getting started. So same can the humble thrush well know its north? I mean, I don't even know how to begin to criticize that. It practically mocks itself. What do you know of poetry? Ambrose said without bothering to turn around. I know a limping verse when I hear it, I said. But this isn't even limping. A limp has rhythm. This is more like someone falling down a set of stairs. Uneven stairs. With a midden at the bottom. It is a sprung rhythm, he said, his voice stiff and offended. I wouldn't expect you to understand. Sprung? I burst out with an incredulous laugh. I understand that if I saw a horse with a leg this badly sprung, I'd kill it out of mercy, then burn its poor corpse for the fear the local dogs might gnaw on it and die. Ambrose finally turned around to face me, and in doing so, he had to take his right hand off Fella's knee, a half-victory. But his other hand remained on her neck, holding her in her chair with the appearance of a casual caress. I thought you might stop by today, he said with a brittle cheerfulness. So I already checked the ledger. You're not in the lists yet. You'll have to stick with tomes or come back later, after they've updated the books. No offense, but would you mind checking again? I'm not sure I can trust the literacy of someone who tries to rhyme North with Worth. No wonder you have to hold women down to get them to listen to it. Ambrose stiffened, and his arm slid off the back of the chair to fall at his side. His expression was pure venom. When you're older, Elir, 
you'll understand that what a man and a woman do together... What? In the privacy of the entrance hall of the archives? I gestured around us. God's body, this isn't some brothel. And in case you haven't noticed, she's a student, not some brass nail you've paid to bang away at. If you're going to force yourself on a woman, have the decency to do it in an alleyway. At least that way she'll feel justified screaming about it. Ambrose's face flushed furiously, and it took him a long moment to find his voice. You don't know the first thing about women. There, at least, we can agree, I said easily. In fact, that's the reason I came here today. I wanted to do some research, find a book or two on the subject. I struck the ledger with two fingers, hard. So look up my name and let me in. Ambrose flipped the book open, found the proper page, and turned the book around to face me. There. If you can find your name on that list, you are welcome to peruse the stacks at your leisure. He gave a tight smile. Otherwise, feel free to come back in a span or so. We should have things updated by then. I had the masters send along a note just in case there was any confusion about my admission to the Arcanum, I said, and drew my shirt up over my head, turning so he could see the broad expanse of bandages covering my back. Can you read it from there, or do I have to come closer? There was a pointed silence from Ambrose, so I lowered my shirt and turned to face Fella, ignoring him entirely. My lady Scriv, I said to her with a bow, a very slight bow, as my back wouldn't permit a deep one. Would you be so good as to help me locate a book concerning women? I have been instructed by my betters to inform myself on this most subtle subject. Fella gave a faint smile and relaxed a bit. She had continued sitting stiff and uncomfortable after Ambrose had taken his hand away. I guessed that she knew Ambrose's temperament well enough to know that if she bolted away and embarrassed him, he would make her pay for it later. I don't know if we have anything like that. I would settle for a primer, I said with a smile. I have it on good report that I don't know the first thing about them, so anything would further my knowledge. Something with pictures, Ambrose spat. If our search degenerates to that level, I'll be sure to call on you, I said without looking in his direction. I smiled at Fella. Perhaps a bestiary, I said gently. I hear they are singular creatures, much different than men. Fella's smile blossomed, and she gave a small laugh. We could have a look around, I suppose. Ambrose scowled in her direction. She made a placating gesture toward him. Everyone knows he's in the Arcanum, Ambrose, she said. What's the harm of just letting him in? Ambrose glared at her. Why don't you run along to Tomes and play the good little fetch-and-carry girl, he said coldly. I can handle things out here by myself. Moving stiffly, Fella got up from the desk, gathered up the books she'd been trying to read, and headed into Tomes. As she pulled the door open, I liked to think she gave me a brief look of gratitude and relief, but perhaps it was only my imagination. As the door swung shut behind her, the room seemed to grow a little dimmer. I am not speaking poetically. The light truly seemed to dim. I looked at the sympathy lamps hanging around the room, 
wondering what was wrong. But a moment later, I felt a slow-burning sensation begin to creep across my back and realize the truth. The null root was wearing off. Most powerful painkillers have serious side effects. Tennyson occasionally produces delirium or fainting. Lycilium is poisonous. Ophalum is highly addictive. Manca is perhaps the most powerful of all, but there are reasons they call it devil root. Null root was less powerful than these, but much safer. It was a mild anesthetic, a stimulant, and a vascular constrictor, which is why I hadn't bled like a stuck pig when they'd whipped me. Best of all, it had no major side effects. Still, there is always a price to be paid. Once Nalrut wears off, it leaves you physically and mentally exhausted. Regardless, I had come here to see the stacks. I was now a member of the Arcanum, and I didn't intend to leave until I'd been inside the archives. I turned back to the desk, my expression resolute. Ambrose gave me a long, calculating look before heaving a sigh. Fine, he said. How about a deal? You keep quiet about what you saw here today, and I'll bend the rules and let you in, even though you aren't officially in the book. He looked a little nervous. How does that sound? Even as he spoke, I could feel the stimulant effects from the Nalrut fading. My body felt heavy and tired. My thoughts grew sluggish and syrupy. I reached up to rub at my face with my hands and winced as the motion tugged sharply at the stitches all across my back. That'll be fine, I said thickly. Ambrose opened up one of the ledger books and sighed as he turned the pages. Since this is your first time in the archives proper, you'll have to pay the stack fee. My mouth tasted strangely of lemons. That was a side effect Ben had never mentioned. It was distracting, and after a moment, I saw that Ambrose was looking up at me expectantly. What? He gave me a strange look. The stack fee? There wasn't any fee before, I said, when I was in the tomes. Ambrose looked up at me as if I were an idiot. That's because it's the stack fee. He looked back down at the ledger. Normally, you pay it in addition to your first term's Arcanum tuition, but since you've jumped rank on us, you'll need to tend to it now. How much is it? I asked, feeling for my purse. One talent, he said, and you do have to pay before you can go in. Rules are rules. After paying for my bunk and muse, a talent was nearly all my remaining money. I was keenly aware of the fact that I needed to hoard my resources to save for next term's tuition. As soon as I couldn't pay, I would have to leave the university. Still, it was a small price to pay for something I dreamed about for most of my life. I pulled the talent out of my purse and handed it over. Do I need to sign in? Nothing so formal as that. Ambrose said as he opened a drawer and pulled out a small metal disc. Stupefied from the side effects of the Nalrut, it took me a moment to recognize it for what it was, a handheld sympathy lamp. The stacks aren't lit, Ambrose said matter-of-factly. 
There's too much space in there, and it would be bad for the books in the long term. Hand lamps cost a talent and a half. I hesitated. Ambrose nodded to himself and looked thoughtful. A lot of folk end up strapped during the first term. He reached down into a lower drawer and rooted around for a long moment. Hand lamps are a talent and a half, and there's nothing I can do about that. He brought out a four-inch taper. But candles are just a halfpenny. Halfpenny for a candle was a remarkably good deal. I brought out a penny. I'll take two. This is our last one, Ambrose said quickly. He looked around nervously before pushing it into my hand. Tell you what, you can have it for free. He smiled. Just don't tell anyone. It'll be our little secret. I took the candle, more than a little surprised. Apparently, I'd frightened him with my idle threat earlier. Either that or this rude, pompous, noble son wasn't half the bastard I'd taken him for. Ambrose hurried me into the stacks as quickly as possible, leaving me no time to light my candle. When the door swung shut behind me, it was as black as the inside of a sack, with only a faint hint of reddish sympathy light coming from around the edges of the door behind me. As I didn't have any matches with me, I had to resort to sympathy. Ordinarily, I could have done it quick as blinking, but my gnaw-root-weary mind could barely muster the necessary concentration. I gritted my teeth, fixed the ailer in my mind, and after a few seconds I felt the cold leach into my muscles as I drew enough heat from my own body to bring the wick of the candle sputtering to life. Books. With no windows to let in the sunlight, the stacks were utterly dark except for the gentle light of my candle. Stretching away into the darkness were shelf on shelf of books. More books than I could look at if I took a whole day. More books than I could read in a lifetime. The air was cool and dry. It smelled of old leather, parchment, and forgotten secrets. I wondered idly how they kept the air so fresh in a building with no windows. Cupping a hand in front of my candle, I made my flickering way through the shelves, savoring the moment, soaking everything in. Shadows danced wildly back and forth across the ceiling as my candle's flame moved from side to side. The Nalrut had worn off completely by this point. My back was throbbing and my thoughts were leaden, as if I had a high fever or had taken a hard blow to the back of the head. I knew I wasn't going to be up for a long bout of reading, but I still couldn't bring myself to leave so soon, not after everything I'd gone through to get here. I wandered aimlessly for perhaps a quarter hour exploring. I discovered several small stone rooms with heavy wooden doors and tables inside. They were obviously meant as a place where small groups could meet and talk without disturbing the perfect quiet of the archives. I found stairwells leading down as well as up. The archives was six stories tall, but I hadn't known it extended underground as well. How deep did it go? How many tens of thousands of books were waiting under my feet? I can hardly describe how comforting it was in the cool, quiet dark. I was perfectly content, lost among the endless books. It made me feel safe, knowing that the answers to all my questions were here, 
somewhere waiting. It was quite by accident that I found the four-plate door. It was made of a solid piece of gray stone the same color as the surrounding walls. Its frame was eight inches wide, also gray, and also one single seamless piece of stone. The door and frame fit together so tightly that a pin couldn't slide into the crack. It had no hinges, no handle, no window or sliding panel. Its only features were four hard copper plates. They were set flush with the face of the door, which was flush with the front of the frame, which was flush with the wall surrounding it. You could run your hand from one side of the door to the next and hardly feel the lines of it at all. In spite of these notable lacks, the expanse of gray stone was undoubtedly a door. It simply was. Each copper plate had a hole in its center, and though they were not shaped in the conventional way, they were undoubtedly keyholes. The door sat still as a mountain, quiet and indifferent as the sea on a windless day. This was not a door for opening. It was a door for staying closed. In its center, between the untarnished copper plates, a word was chiseled deep into the stone. Valeritas. There were other locked doors in the university, places where dangerous things were kept, where old and forgotten secrets slept silent and hidden, doors whose opening was forbidden, doors whose thresholds no one crossed, whose keys had been destroyed or lost or locked away themselves for safety's sake. But they all paled in comparison to the four-plate door. I lay my palm on the cool, smooth face of the door and pushed, hoping against hope that it might swing open to my touch. But it was solid and unmoving as a gray stone. I tried to peer through the holes in the copper plates, but couldn't see anything by the light of my single candle. I wanted to get inside so badly I could taste it. It probably shows a perverse element of my personality that even though I was finally inside the archives, surrounded by endless secrets, that I was drawn to the one locked door I had found. Perhaps it is human nature to seek out hidden things. Perhaps it is simply my nature. Just then I saw the red, unwavering light of a sympathy lamp approaching through the shelves. It was the first sign I'd seen of any other students in the archives. I took a step back and waited, thinking to ask whoever was coming what was behind the door, what Valeritas meant. The red light swelled, and I saw two scribs turn a corner. They paused. Then one of them bolted to where I stood and snatched my candle away, spilling hot wax on my hand in the process of extinguishing it. His expression couldn't have been more horrified if he had found me carrying a freshly severed head. What are you doing with an open flame in here? He demanded in the loudest whisper I had ever heard. He lowered his voice and waved the now extinguished candle at me. Charred body of God! What's the matter with you? I rubbed at the hot wax on the back of my hand, trying to think clearly through the fog of pain and exhaustion. Of course, I thought, remembering Ambrose's smile as he pressed the candle into my hands and hurried me through the door. Our little secret. Of course. I should have known.
One of the scribs led me out of the stacks, while the other ran to fetch Master Lauren. When we emerged into the entryway, Ambrose managed to look confused and shocked. He overacted the part, but it was convincing enough for the scrib accompanying me. What's he doing in here? We found him wandering around, the scrib explained, with a candle. What? Ambrose's expression was perfectly aghast. Well, I didn't sign him in, Ambrose said. He flipped open one of the ledger books. Look, see for yourself. Before anything else could be said, Lauren stormed into the room. His normally placid expression was fierce and hard. I felt myself sweat cold, and I thought of what Tecum wrote in his theophany. There are three things all wise men fear. The sea in storm, a night with no moon, and the anger of a gentle man. Lauren towered over the entry desk. Explain, he demanded of the nearby scriv. His voice was a tight coil of fury. Micah and I saw a flickering light in the stacks, and we went to see if someone was having trouble with their lamp. We found him near the southeast stairwell with this. The scriv held up the candle. His hand shook slightly under Lauren's glare. Lauren turned to the desk where Ambrose sat. How did this happen, Relar? Ambrose raised his hands helplessly. He came in earlier, and I wouldn't admit him because he wasn't in the book. We bickered for a while. Fellow was here for most of it. He looked at me. Eventually, I told him he'd have to leave. He must have snuck in when I went into the back room for more ink. Ambrose shrugged. Or maybe he slipped in past the desk in tomes. I stood there, stupefied. What little part of my mind wasn't leaden with fatigue was preoccupied with the screaming pain across my back. That... That's not true. I looked up at Lauren. He let me in. He sent Fella away, then let me in. What? Ambrose gaped at me, momentarily speechless. For all that I didn't like him, I must give him credit for a masterful performance. Why in God's name would I do that? Because I embarrassed you in front of Fella, I said. He sold me the candle, too. I shook my head, trying to clear my head. No, he gave it to me. Ambrose's expression was amazed. Look at him, he laughed. The little cocker is drunk or something. I was just whipped, I protested. My voice sounded shrill in my own ears. Enough, Lauren shouted, looming over us like a pillar of anger. The scribs went pale at the sound of him. Lauren turned away from me and made a brief, contemptuous gesture toward the desk. Relar Ambrose is officially remanded for laxity in his duty. What? Ambrose's indignant tone wasn't feigned this time. Lauren frowned at him, and Ambrose closed his mouth. Turning to me, he said, Ilir Kvoth is banned from the archives. He made a sweeping gesture with the flat of his hand. I tried to think of something I could say in my defense. Master, I didn't mean... Lauren rounded on me, his expression always so calm before, 
was filled with such a cold, terrible anger that I took a step away from him without meaning to. You mean, he said, I care nothing for your intentions, Ilir Kvoth, deceived or otherwise. All that matters is the reality of your actions. Your hand held the fire. Yours is the blame. That is the lesson all adults must learn. I looked down at my feet, tried desperately to think of something I could say, some proof I could offer. My leaden thoughts were still plodding along when Lauren strode out of the room. I don't see why I should be punished for his stupidity, Ambrose groused to the other scribs as I made my way numbly to the door. I made the mistake of turning around and looking at him. His expression was serious, carefully controlled, but his eyes were vastly amused, full of laughter. Honestly, boy, he said to me, I don't know what you were thinking. You'd think a member of the Arcanum would have more sense. I made my way to the mess, the wheels of my thoughts turning slowly as I plodded along. I fumbled my meal chit into one of the dull tin trays and collected a portion of steamed pudding, a sausage, and some of the ever-present beans. I looked dully around the room until I spotted Simon and Manette sitting in their usual place at the northeast corner of the hall. I drew a fair amount of attention as I walked to the table, understandable as it was scarcely two hours since I'd been tied to the pennant pole and publicly lashed. I heard someone whisper, didn't bleed when they whipped him. I was there. Not one drop. It was the null root, of course. It had kept me from bleeding. It had seemed like such a good idea at the time. Now it seemed petty and foolish. Ambrose would never have managed to gull me so easily if my naturally suspicious nature hadn't been fuddled. I'm sure I could have found some way to explain things to Lauren if I'd had my wits about me. As I made my way to the far corner of the room, I realized the truth. I had traded away my access to the archives in exchange for a little notoriety. Still, there was nothing to do but make the best of it. If a bit of reputation was all I had to show for this debacle, I'd have to do my best to build on it. I kept my shoulders straight as I made my way across the room to Simon and Manette and set down my food. There's no such thing as a stack fee, is there? I asked quietly as I slid into my seat, trying not to grimace at the pain across my back. Sim looked up at me blankly. Stack fee? Manette chortled into his bowl of beans. It's been a few years since I've heard that. Back when I worked as a scriv, we tricked the first-termers into giving us a penny to use the archives. Called it a stack fee. Sim gave him a disapproving look. That's horrible. Manette held up his hands defensively in front of his face. Just a little harmless fun? Manette looked me over. Is that what your long face is for? Somebody call you for a copper? I shook my head. I wasn't going to announce that Ambrose had tricked me out of a whole talent. Guess who just got banned from the archives? I said gravely as I tore the crust off my bread and dropped it into my beans. They looked at me blankly. After a moment, Simon took the obvious guess. Um, you? 
I nodded and began to spoon up my beans. I wasn't really hungry, but I hoped a little food in my stomach might help shake off the sluggishness of the Nalrut. Besides, it went against my nature to pass up an opportunity for a meal. You got suspended on your first day, Simmons said. That's going to make studying your Chandrian folklore a whole lot harder. I sighed. You could say that. How long did he suspend you for? He said banned, I answered. He didn't mention a time limit. Banned? Manette looked up at me. He hasn't banned anyone in a dozen years. What'd you do? Piss on a book? Some of the scrivs found me inside with a candle. Merciful Taylu! Manette laid down his fork, his expression serious for the first time. Old Lore must have been furious. Furious is exactly the right word, I said. What possessed you to go in there with an open flame? Simmon asked. I couldn't afford a hand lamp, I said. So the scriv at the desk gave me a candle instead. He didn't, Sim said. No scriv would... Hold on, Manette said. Was this a dark-haired fellow? Well-dressed? Severe eyebrows? He made an exaggerated scowl. I nodded tiredly. Ambrose. We met yesterday. Got off on the wrong foot. He's hard to avoid, Manette said carefully, with a significant look to the people sitting around us. I noticed that more than a few were casually listening to our conversation. Someone should have warned you to keep clear of him, he added in a softer tone. God's mother, Simmons said, of all the people you don't want to start a pissing contest with. Well, it's been started, I said. I was starting to feel a little more like myself again, less cotton-headed and weary. Either the side effects of the root were fading, or my anger was slowly burning away the haze of exhaustion. He'll find out I can piss along with the best of them. He'll wish he'd never met me, let alone meddled with my affairs. Simmon looked a little nervous. You really shouldn't threaten other students, he said with a little laugh, as if trying to pass my comment off as a joke. More softly, he said, You don't understand. Ambrose is heir to a barony off in Vintus. He hesitated, looking at Manette. Lord, how do I even start? Manette leaned forward and spoke in more confidential tones as well. He's not one of those nobility who dabble here for a term or two then leave. He's been for years, climbed his way up to Raylar. He's not some... Seventh son, either. He's the firstborn heir, and his father is one of the twelve most powerful men in all of Vintas. Actually, he's sixteenth in the peerage, Sim said matter-of-factly. You've got the royal family, the prince regents, Mayor Alvaron, Duchess Samista, Aculius, and Meluin Lackless. He trailed off under Manette's glare. He has money. Manette said simply, and the friends that money buys. And people who want to curry favor with his father, Simmon added. The point is, Manette said seriously, you don't want to cross him. Back in his first year here, one of the alchemists got on Ambrose's bad side. 
Ambrose bought his debt from the moneylender in Imre. When the fellow couldn't pay, they clapped him into debtor's prison. Manette tore a piece of bread in half and daubed butter on it. By the time his family got him out, he had lung consumption. Fellow was a wreck. Never came back to his studies. And the masters just let this happen? I demanded. All perfectly legal, Manette said, still keeping his voice low. Even so, Ambrose wasn't so silly that he bought the fellow's debt himself. Manette made a dismissive gesture. He had someone else do that, but he made sure everyone knew he was responsible. And there was Tabitha, Sim said darkly. She made all that noise about how Ambrose had promised to marry her. She just disappeared. This certainly explained why Fella had been so hesitant to offend him. I made a placating gesture to Sim. I'm not threatening anyone, I said innocently, pitching my voice so anyone who was listening could easily hear. I'm just quoting one of my favorite pieces of literature. It's from the fourth act of Deonica where Tarsus says, Upon him I will visit famine and a fire, till all around him desolation rings, and all the demons in the outer dark look on amazed and recognize that vengeance is the business of a man. There was a moment of stunned silence nearby. It spread a bit farther through the mess than I'd expected. Apparently, I'd underestimated the number of people who were listening. I turned my attention back to my meal and decided to let it go for now. I was tired, and I hurt, and I didn't particularly want any more trouble today. You won't need this piece of information for a while, Manette said quietly after a long period of silence. What with being banned from the archives and all. Still, I'm supposing you'd rather know. He cleared his throat uncomfortably. You don't have to buy a hand lamp. You just sign them out at the desk and return them when you're done. He looked at me as if anxious about what sort of reaction the information might provoke. I nodded wearily. I'd been right before. Ambrose wasn't half the bastard I thought he was. He was ten times the bastard. Chapter 44 The Burning Glass The fishery was where most of the university's works of hands were made. The building held shops for glass blowers, joiners, potters, and glaziers. There was also a full forge and smeltworks that would figure prominently into any metallurgist's daydreams. Kilvin's workshop was located in the artificery, or, as it was more commonly called, the fishery. It was big as the inside of a granary, holding at least two dozen thick-timbered work tables strewn with countless, nameless tools and projects in progress. The workshop was the heart of the fishery, and Kilvin was the heart of the workshop. When I arrived, Kilvin was in the process of bending a twisted length of iron rod into what I could only assume was a more desirable shape. Seeing me peering in, he left it firmly clamped to the table and walked to meet me, wiping his hands on his shirt. He looked me over critically. Are you well, Ilir Kvoth? I'd gone wandering earlier and found some willow bark to chew. My back still burned and itched, but it was bearable. Well enough, Master Kilvin. He nodded. Good. Boys your age shouldn't worry over such small things. 
Soon again you will be as sound as stone. I was trying to think up a polite response when my eye was drawn to something over our heads. Kilvin followed my gaze up over his shoulder. When he saw what I was looking at, a grin split his great bearded face. Ah, he said with fatherly pride, my lovelies. High among the high rafters of the workshop, a half hundred glass spheres hung from chains. They were of varying sizes, though none were much larger than a man's head, and they were burning. Seeing my expression, Kilvin made a gesture. Come, he said, and led me to a narrow stairway made of wrought iron. Reaching the top, we stepped out onto a series of slim iron walkways twenty-five feet above the ground, weaving their way among the thick timbers that supported the roof. After a moment of maneuvering through the maze of timber and iron, we came to a hanging row of glass spheres with fires burning inside them. These, Kilvin gestured, are my lamps. It was only then that I realized what they were. Some were filled with liquid and wicking, much like ordinary lamps, but most of them were utterly unfamiliar. One contained nothing but a boiling gray smoke that flickered sporadically. Another sphere contained a wick hanging in empty air from a silver wire, burning with a motionless white flame despite its apparent lack of fuel. Two hanging side by side were twins, save that one had a blue flame and the other was a hot forge orange. Some were small as plums, others large as melons. One held what looked like a piece of black coal and a piece of white chalk, and where the two pieces were pressed together, an angry red flame burned outward in all directions. Kilvin let me look for a long while before he moved closer. Among the Kildar, there are legends of ever-burning lamps. I believe that such a thing was once within the scope of our craft. Ten years I have been looking. I have made many lamps, some of them very good, very long-burning. He looked at me. But none of them ever-burning. He walked down the line to point at one of the hanging spheres. Do you know this one, Elir Kvoth? It held nothing but a knob of greenish-grayish wax that was burning with a greenish-grayish tongue of flame. I shook my head. Mmm, you should. White lithium salt. I thought of it three span before you came to us. It is good so far. Twenty-four days and I expect many more. He looked at me. You're guessing this thing surprised me, as it took me ten years to think of it. Your second guess, sodium oil, was not as good. I tried it years ago. Eleven days. He moved all the way to the end of the row, pointing at the empty sphere with the motionless white flame. Seventy days, he said proudly. I do not hope that this will be the one, for hoping is a foolish game. But if it burns six more days... It will be my best lamp in these ten years. He watched it for a while, his expression oddly soft. But I do not hope, he said resolutely. I make new lamps and take my measurements. That is the only way to make progress. Wordlessly, he led me back down to the floor of the workshop. Once there, he turned to me. Hands, he said in a peremptory way. He held out his own huge hands expectantly. Not knowing what he wanted, 
I raised my hands in front of me. He took them in his own, his touch surprisingly gentle. He turned them over, looking at them carefully. You have killed our hands, he said in a grudging compliment. He held his own up for me to see. They were thick-fingered with wide palms. He made two fists that looked more like mauls than bald hands. I had many years before these hands could learn to be Kelder hands. You are lucky. You will work here. Only by the quizzical tilting of his head did he make the gruff grumble of a statement into an invitation. Oh, yes. I mean, thank you, sir. I'm honored that you... He cut me off with an impatient gesture. Come to me if you have any thoughts on the ever-burning lamp. If your head is as clever as your hands look. What might have been a smile was hidden by his thick beard, but a grin shone in his dark eyes as he hesitated teasingly, almost playfully. If, he repeated, holding up a finger, its tip as large as the ball of a hammer's head, then me and mine will show you things. You need to figure out who you're going to suck up to, Simmons said. A master has to sponsor you to Relar, so you should pick one and stick to him like shit on a shoe. Lovely, Savoy said dryly. Savoy, Willem, Simon, and I were sitting at an out-of-the-way table in the back of Anchors, isolated from the felling night crowd that filled the room with a low roar of conversation. My stitches had come out two days earlier and we were celebrating my first full span in the Arcanum. We were none of us particularly drunk, but then again, none of us were particularly sober either. Our exact positioning between those two points is a matter of pointless conjecture, and I will waste no time on it. I simply concentrate on being brilliant, Savoy said, then wait for the masters to realize it. How did that work out with Mandrag? Willem said with a rare smile. Savoy gave Willem a dark look. Mandrag is a horse's ass. That explains why you threatened him with your riding crop, Willem said. I covered my mouth to stifle a laugh. Did you really? They're not telling the whole story, Savoy said, affronted. He passed me over for promotion in favor of another student. He was keeping me back so he could use me as indentured labor rather than raise me to Relar. And you threatened him with your crop. We had an argument, Savoy said calmly, and I happened to have my crop in my hand. You waved it at him, Willem said. I'd been riding, Savoy said hotly. If I'd been whoring before class and waved a corset at him, no one would have thought twice about it. There was a moment of silence at our table. I'm thinking twice about it right now, Simmons said before bursting into laughter with Willem. Savoy fought down a smile as he turned to face me. Sim is right about one thing. You should concentrate your efforts on one subject. Otherwise, you'll end up like Manat the Eternal Illyr. He stood and straightened his clothes. Now, how do I look? Savoy wasn't fashionably dressed in the strictest sense, as he clung to the Modegan styles rather than the local ones, but there was no denying that he cut quite a figure in the muted colors of his fine silks and suede. 
What does it matter? Willem asked. Are you trying to set up a tryst with Sim? Savoy smiled. Unfortunately, I must leave you. I have an engagement with a lady, and I doubt our rounds will bring us to this side of town tonight. You didn't tell us you had a date, Sim protested. We can't play corners with just three. It was something of a concession that Sovoy was here with us at all. He'd sniffed a bit at Will and Sim's choice of taverns. Anchors was low-class enough so that the drinks were cheap, but high-class enough so that you didn't have to worry about someone picking a fight or throwing up on you. I liked it. You are good friends and good company, Savoy said, but none of you are female, nor, with the possible exception of Simon, are you lovely, Savoy winked at him. Honestly, who among you wouldn't throw the others over if there was a lady waiting? We murmured a grudging agreement. Savoy smiled. His teeth were very white and straight. I'll send the girl over with more drinks, he said as he turned to go to ease the bitter sting of my departure. He's not a bad sort, I mused after he left. For nobility. Willem nodded. It's like he knows he's better than you, but doesn't look down on you for it because he knows it's not your fault. So, who are you going to cozy up to? Sim asked, resting his elbows on the table. I'm guessing not him. Or Lauren, I said bitterly. Damn Ambrose twelve ways. I would have loved to work in the archives. Brandur's out too, Sim said. If Hem has a grudge, Brandur helps him carry it. How about the Chancellor? Willem asked. Linguistics? You already speak Siaru, even if your accent is barbaric. I shook my head. What about Mandrag? I've got a lot of experience with chemistry. It'd be just a small step into alchemy. Simon laughed. Everyone thinks chemistry and alchemy are so similar, but they're really not. They're not even related. They just happen to live in the same house. Willem gave a slow nod. That's a nice way of putting it. Besides, Simon said, Mandrag brought in about twenty new Elir last term. I heard him complaining about how crowded things were. You've got the long haul if you go through Medica, Willem said. Are really stubborn as pig iron. There is no bending him. He made a gesture with his hands as if chopping something into sections while he spoke. Six terms Ilir, eight terms Relar, ten terms Elte. At least, Simon added, Mola's been a Relar with him for almost three years now. I tried to think of how I could come up with six years' worth of tuition. I might not have the patience for that. I said. The serving girl appeared with a tray of drinks. Anchor's was only half full, so she'd been running just enough to bring roses to her cheeks. Your gentleman friend paid for this round and the next, she said. I like Savoy more and more, Willem said. However, she held Will's drink out of his reach. He didn't pay for putting his hand on my ass. She looked each of us in the eye. I'll trust the three of you to settle that debt before you leave. Sim stammered an apology. He, he doesn't mean... In his culture, that sort of thing is more common. She rolled her eyes, her expression softening. 
Well, in this culture, a healthy tip makes a fine apology. She handed Will his drink and turned to leave, resting her empty tray on one hip. We watched her go, each of us thinking our own private thoughts. I noticed he had his rings back, I mentioned eventually. He played a brilliant round of Bassett last night, Simmons said. Made six doublings in a row and cracked the bank. To Savoy, Willem held up his tin mug. May his luck keep him in classes and us in drinks. We toasted and drank, then Willem brought us back to the matter at hand. That leaves you with Kilvin and Elk Sadal. He held up two fingers. What about Elodin? I interrupted. They both gave me blank looks. What about him? Sim asked. He seems nice enough, I said. Couldn't I study under him? Simmon burst out laughing. Willem gave a rare grin. What? I demanded. Elodin doesn't teach anything, Sim explained, except maybe advanced oddness. He has to teach something, I protested. He's a master, isn't he? Sim is right. Elodin is cramped. Will tapped the side of his head. Cracked, Simon corrected. Cracked, Will repeated. He does seem a little... strange, I said. You do pick things up quick, Willem said dryly. No wonder you made it into the Arcanum at such a tender age. He's off, Will. He's hardly been here a span, Simon turned to me. Elodin used to be Chancellor about five years ago. Elodin? I couldn't hide my incredulity. But he's so young, and... I trailed off, not wanting to say the first word that came to my mind. Crazy. Simon finished my sentence. Brilliant. And not that young if you consider that he was admitted to the university when he was barely fourteen. Simon looked at me. He was a full arcanist by eighteen. Then he stayed around as a giller for a few years. Giller? I interrupted. Gillers are arcanists who stay at the university, Will said. They do a lot of the teaching. You know, Kamar in the fishery? I shook my head. Tall, scarred. Will gestured to one side of his face. Only one eye? I nodded somberly. Kamar was hard to miss. The left side of his face was a web of scars that radiated out, leaving bald strips running through his black hair and beard. He wore a patch over the hollow of his left eye. He was a walking object lesson about how dangerous work in the fishery could be. I've seen him around. He's a full arcanist? Will nodded. He's Kilvin second in command. He teaches Sigildry to the newer students. Sim cleared his throat. As I was saying, Elodin was the youngest ever admitted, youngest to make arcanist and youngest to be chancellor. Even so, I said, you have to admit, he's a little odd to be chancellor. Not back then, Simmon said soberly. That was before it happened. When nothing more was forthcoming, I prompted, It? Will shrugged. Something. They do not speak on it. 
They locked him in the crockery until he got most of his marbles back. I don't like thinking about it, Simmons said, shifting uncomfortably in his chair. I mean, a couple of students go crazy every term, right? He looked at Willem. Remember Sliff? Will nodded somberly. It might happen to any of us. There was a moment of silence as the two of them sipped their drinks, not looking at anything in particular. I wanted to ask for specifics, but I could tell that it was a touchy subject. Anyway, Sim said in a low voice. I heard they didn't let him out of the crockery. I heard he escaped. No arcanist worth his salt can be kept in a cell, I said. That's not surprising. Have you ever been there? Simmon asked. It's built to keep arcanists locked up. All meshed stone. Wards on the doors and windows. He shook his head. I can't imagine how someone could get out, even one of the masters. All this is beside the path, Willem said firmly, bringing us back to task. Kilvan has welcomed you to the fishery. Impressing him will be your best chance at making Relar. He looked back and forth between us. Agreed? Agreed, Simmons said. I nodded, but the wheels in my head were spinning. I was thinking about Taberlin the Great, who knew the names of all things. I thought about the stories Scarpy had told back in Tarbian. He hadn't mentioned Arcanists, only Namers. And I thought of Elodin, Master Namer, and how I might approach him. Chapter 45, Interlude, Some Tavern Tale At a gesture from Quoth, Chronicler wiped off the nib of his pen and shook out his hand. Bast gave a great seated stretch, his arms arching over the back of the chair. I'd almost forgotten how quickly it all happened, Quoth mused. Those were probably the first stories anyone ever told about me. They're still telling them at the university, Chronicler said. I've heard three different versions of the class you taught. You're whipping, too. Is that when they started calling you Quoth the Bloodless? Quoth nodded. Possibly. If we're asking questions, Reshi, Bass said sheepishly, I was wondering why you didn't go looking for Scarpy. What could I have done, Bast? Smeared my face with lamp black and staged a daring midnight rescue? Quoth gave a brief humorless laugh. They'd taken him in on heresy. All I could do was hope he truly had friends in the church. Quoth drew a deep breath and sighed. But the simplest reason is the least satisfying one, I suppose. The truth is this. I wasn't living in a story. I don't think I'm understanding you, Reshi. Bast said, puzzled. Think of all the stories you've heard, Bast. You have a young boy, the hero. His parents are killed. He sets out for vengeance. What happens next? Bast hesitated, his expression puzzled. Chronicler answered the question instead. He finds help. A clever talking squirrel, an old drunken swordsman, a mad hermit in the woods, that sort of thing. Quoth nodded. Exactly. He finds the mad hermit in the woods, proves himself worthy, and learns the names of all things, just like Tabberlin the Great. Then, with these powerful magics at his beck and call, what does he do? 
Chronicler shrugged. He finds the villains and kills them. Of course, Quoth said grandly. Clean, quick, and easy as lying. We know how it ends practically before it starts. That's why stories appeal to us. They give us the clarity and simplicity our real lives lack. Quoth leaned forward. If this were some tavern tale, all half-truth and senseless adventure, I would tell you how my time at the university was spent with a purity of dedication. I would learn the ever-changing name of the wind, ride out, and gain my revenge against the Chandrian. Quoth snapped his fingers sharply. Simple as that. But while that might make for an entertaining story, it would not be the truth. The truth is this. I had mourned my parents' death for three years, and the pain of it had faded to a dull ache. Quoth made a conciliatory gesture with one hand and smiled a tight smile. I won't lie to you. There were times late at night when I lay sleepless and desperately alone in my narrow bunk in the mews. Times when I was choked with a sorrow so endless and empty I thought it would smother me. There were times when I would see a mother holding her child or a father laughing with his son and anger would flare up in me, hot and furious with the memory of blood and the smell of burning hair. Quoth shrugged. But there was more to my life than revenge. I had very real obstacles to overcome close at hand. My poverty, my low birth, the enemies I made at the university were more dangerous to me than any of the Chandrian. He gestured for Chronicler to pick up his pen. But for all that, we still see that even the most fanciful of stories hold a shred of truth, because I did find something very near to the mad hermit in the woods. Quoth smiled and I was determined to learn the name of the wind. Chapter 46 The Ever-Changing Wind Elodin proved a difficult man to find. He had an office in hollows, but never seemed to use it. When I visited ledgers and lists, I discovered he only taught one class, unlikely maths. However, this was less than helpful in tracking him down, as according to the ledger, the time of the class was now, and the location was everywhere. In the end, I spotted him through sheer luck across a crowded courtyard. He was wearing his black master's robes, which was something of a rarity. I was on my way to the Medica for observation, but decided I'd rather be late for my class than miss the opportunity to speak with him. By the time I struggled through the midday crowd and caught up with him, we were on the northern edge of the university, following a wide dirt road that led into the forest. Master Elodin, I said, pelting up to him. I was hoping I could talk with you. A sad little hope, he said without breaking stride or looking in my direction. You should aim higher. A young man ought to be a fire with high ambitions. I hope to study naming, then, I said, falling into step beside him. Too high he said matter-of-factly. Try again, somewhere in between. The dirt road curved, and the trees blocked the sight of the university's buildings behind us. I hope you'll accept me as a student, I tried again, and teach me whatever you think best. Elodin stopped walking abruptly and turned to face me. Fine, he said. Go find me three pine cones. He made a circle with his thumb and finger. This big, without any of the little bits broken off. 
He sat down right in the middle of the road and made a shooing motion with his hand. Go on, hurry! I darted off into the surrounding trees. It took me about five minutes to find three pine cones of the appropriate type. By the time I got back to the road, I was disheveled and bramble-scratched. Elodin was nowhere to be seen. I looked around stupidly, then cursed, dropped the pine cones, and took off running, following the road north. I caught up with him fairly quickly, as he was just idling along, looking at the trees. So, what did you learn? Elodin asked. That you want to be left alone? You are quick! He spread his arms dramatically and intoned. Here endeth the lesson. Here endeth my profound tutelage of Elir Kvothe. I sighed. If I left now, I could still catch my class in the Medica, but part of me suspected that this might be a test of some sort. Perhaps Elodin was simply making sure that I was genuinely interested before he accepted me as a student. That is the way it usually goes in stories. The young man has to prove his dedication to the old hermit in the woods before he's taken under his wing. Will you answer a few questions? I asked. Fine he said, holding up his hand with his thumb and forefinger curled in. Three questions, if you agree to leave me be afterward. I thought for a moment. Why don't you want to teach me? Because the Edimaru make exceptionally poor students, he said brusquely. They are fine for rote learning, but the study of naming requires a level of dedication that rabbles such as yourself rarely possess. My temper flared so hot and quick that I actually felt my skin flush. It started at my face and burned down my chest and arms. It made the hair on my arms prickle. I took a deep breath. I'm sorry that your experience with the rue has left something to be desired, I said carefully. Let me assure you that— Ye gods! Elodin sighed, disgusted. A bootlicker, too! You lack the requisite spine and testicular fortitude to study under me. Hot words boiled up inside me. I fought them down. He was trying to bait me. You aren't telling me the truth, I said. Why don't you want to teach me? For the same reason I don't want a puppy, Elodin shouted, waving his arms in the air like a farmer trying to startle crows out of a field. Because you're too short to be a namer. Your eyes are too green. You have the wrong number of fingers. Come back when you're taller and you found a decent pair of eyes. We stared at each other for a long while. Finally, he shrugged and started walking again. Fine. I'll show you why. We followed the road north. Elodin strolled along, picking up stones and tossing them into the trees. He jumped to snatch leaves from low-hanging branches his master's robes billowing ridiculously. At one point, he stopped and stood motionless and intent for nearly half an hour, staring at a fern swaying slowly in the wind. But I kept the tip of my tongue firmly between my teeth. I didn't ask, where are we going, or what are you looking at? I knew a hundred stories about young boys who squandered questions or wishes by chatting them away. I had two questions left and I was going to make them count. Eventually, we emerged from the forest, and the road became a path leading up a vast lawn to a huge manor house. Bigger than the artificery, it had elegant lines, a red-tile roof, 
high windows, arched doorways, and pillars. There were fountains, flowers, hedges. But something wasn't quite right. The closer we got to the gates, the more I doubted this was some nobleman's estate. Maybe it was something about the design of the gardens, or the fact that the wrought iron fence surrounding the lawns was nearly ten feet tall and unclimbable to my well-trained thief's eye. Two serious-eyed men opened the gate, and we continued up the path toward the front doors. Elodin looked at me. Have you heard of Haven yet? I shook my head. It has other names. The Rookery, the Crockery, the University Asylum. It's huge. How? I stopped before asking the question. Elodin grinned, knowing he'd almost caught me. Jeremy, he called out to the large man who stood at the front door. How many guests do we have today? The desk could give you a count, sir, he said uncomfortably. Take a wild guess, Elodin said. We're all friends here. Three twenty, the man said with a shrug. Three fifty? Elodin rapped on the thick timber door with a knuckle, and the man scrambled to unlock it. How many more could we fit if we needed? Elodin asked him. Another hundred fifty easy, Jeremy said, tugging the huge door open. More in a pinch, I suppose. Seekvoth? Elodin winked at me. We're ready. The entryway was huge, with stained glass windows and vaulted ceilings. The floor was marble polished to a mirror sheen. The place was eerily silent. I couldn't understand it. The Reftview Asylum in Tarbian was only a fraction of the size of this place, and it sounded like a brothel full of angry cats. You could hear it from a mile away over the din of the city. Elodin strolled up to a large desk where a young woman stood. Why isn't anyone outside, Emmy? She gave an uneasy smile. They're too wild today, sir. We think there's a storm coming in. She pulled a ledger book off the shelf. The moon's getting full, too. You know how it gets. Sure do. Elodin crouched down and began to unlace his shoes. Where did they stash wind this time? She flipped a few pages in the ledger. Second floor east, 247. Elodin stood back up and set his shoes on the desk. Keep an eye on these, would you? She gave him an uncertain smile and nodded. I choked down another mouthful of questions. It seems like the university goes to an awful lot of expense here, I commented. Elodin ignored me and turned to climb a wide marble staircase in his stocking feet. Then we entered a long white hallway lined with wooden doors. For the first time, I could hear the sounds I had expected in a place like this. Moans, weeping, incessant chattering, screaming, all very faint. Elodin ran for a few steps, then stopped, his stocking feet gliding across the smooth marble floor, his master's robe streaming out behind him. He repeated this, a few quick steps, then a long slide with his arms held out to the sides for balance. I continued to pace along beside him. I'd think the masters would find other more academic uses for the university's funds. Elodin didn't look at me. Step, 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 step. 
You're trying to get me to answer questions you're not asking. Slide. It's not going to work. You're trying to trick me into asking questions, I pointed out. It seems only fair. Step, 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 slide. So why the hell are you bothering with me anyway? Elodin asked. Kilvin likes you well enough. Why not hitch your star to his wagon? I think you know things I can't learn anywhere else. Things like what? Things I've wanted to know since I first saw someone call the wind. Name of the wind, was it? Elodin raised his eyebrows. Step, 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 step. That's tricky. Slide. What makes you think I know anything about calling the wind? Process of elimination, I said. None of the other masters do that sort of thing, so it must be your bailiwick. By your logic, I should also be in charge of solenade dances, needlework, and horse thieving. We came to the end of the hall. Mid-slide, Elodin nearly bowled over a huge, broad-shouldered man carrying a hardback. Beg your pardon, sir, he said, though it obviously wasn't his fault. Timothy! Elodin pointed a long finger at him. Come with us. Elodin led the way through several shorter hallways, eventually coming to a heavy wooden door with a sliding panel at eye level. Elodin opened it and peered through. How's he been? Quiet, the hulking man said. I don't think he's slept much. Elodin tried the latch, then turned to the broad-shouldered man, his face going grim. You locked him in? The man stood a full head taller than Elodin and probably weighed twice as much, but the blood drained from his face as the shoeless master glared at him. Not me, Master Elodin, it's... Elodin cut him off with a sharp gesture. Unlock it! Timothy fumbled with a ring of keys. Elodin continued to stare him down. Alder Wynne is not to be confined. He may come and go as he pleases. Nothing is to be put in his food unless he specifically asks for it. I'm holding you responsible for this, Timothy Generoy. Elodin poked him in the chest with a long finger. If I find out that Wynne has been sedated or restrained, I'll ride you naked through the streets of Imre like a little pink pony. He glared. Go! The fellow left as quickly as he could manage without actually breaking into a run. Elodin turned to me. You can come in, but don't make any noises or sudden movements. Don't talk unless he talks to you. If you do talk, keep your voice low. Understand? I nodded, and he opened the door. The room wasn't what I'd expected. Tall windows let the daylight in, revealing a sizable bed and a table with chairs. The walls, ceiling, and floor were all padded with thick white cloth, muffling even the faint noises from the hallway. The blankets had been pulled off the bed, and a thin man of about thirty was bundled up in them, huddled against the wall. Elodin closed the door, and the mousy man flinched a little. Win, he said softly, moving closer. What happened? Alder Wynne looked up owlishly. A thin stick of a man... He was bare-chested under the blanket, his hair in wild disarray, his eyes round and wide. He spoke softly, his voice cracking a little. I was fine. I was doing fine. But all the people talking, dogs, cobblestones, I just can't be around that right now. 
Wynne pressed himself against the wall and the blanket fell off his bony shoulder. I was startled to see a lead gilder around his neck. This man was a full-fledged arcanist. Elodin nodded. Why are you on the floor? Wynne looked over at the bed, panic in his eyes. I'll fall, he said softly, his voice somewhere between horror and embarrassment. And there are springs and slats, nails. How are you now? Elodin asked gently. Would you like to come back with me? No. Wynne gave a hopeless, despairing cry, screwing his eyes closed and pulling the blanket closer around himself. His thin, reedy voice made his plea more heart-wrenching than if he'd howled it. It's fine. You can stay, Elodin said softly. I'll be back to visit. Wynne opened his eyes at this, looking agitated. Don't bring thunder, he said urgently. He reached one thin hand out of his blanket and clutched at Elodin's shirt. But I do need a cat whistle and blue down, and bones too. His tone was urgent. Tent bones. I'll bring them, Elodin reassured him, gesturing for me to back out of the room. I did. Elodin closed the door behind us, his expression grim. Wynne knew what he was getting into when he became my giller. He turned and began to walk down the hall. You don't. You don't know anything about the university, about the risks involved. You think this place is a fairyland, a playground. It's not. That's right, I snapped. It's a playground, and all the other children are jealous because I got to play Get Whipped Bloody and Banned from the Archives, and they didn't. Loden stopped walking and turned to look at me. Fine. Prove me wrong. Prove that you've thought this through. Why does a university with under 1,500 students need an asylum the size of the royal palace? My mind raced. Most students are from well-to-do families, I said. They've led easy lives. When forced to wrong, Elodin said dismissively, turning to walk down the hall. It is because of what we study, because of the way we train our minds to move. So ciphering and grammar make people crazy, I said, taking care to phrase it as a statement. Elodin stopped walking and wrenched open the nearest door. Panicked screaming burst out into the hallway. In me! They're in me! They're in me! They're in me! Through the open door, I could see a young man thrashing against the leather restraints that bound him to the bed at wrist, waist, neck, and ankle. Trigonometry and diagrammed logic don't do this, Elodin said, looking me in the eye. They're in me! They're in me! They're in! The screaming continued in an unbroken chant, like the endless, mindless barking of a dog at night. Me! They're in me! They're in me! They're in! Elodin closed the door, though I could still hear the screaming faintly through the thick door. The near silence was stunning. Do you know why they call this place the Rookery? Elodin asked. I shook my head. Because it's where you go if you're a raven. He smiled a wild smile. He laughed a terrible laugh. Elodin led me through a long series of hallways to a different wing of the crockery. Finally, we turned a corner and I saw something new, a door made entirely of copper. Elodin took a key from his pocket and unlocked it. 
I like to stop in when I'm back in the neighborhood, he said casually as he opened the door. Check my mail, water the plants and such. He pulled off one of his socks, tied a knot in it, and used it to wedge the door open. It's a nice place to visit, but, you know. He tugged on the door, making sure it wouldn't swing closed. Not again. The first thing I noticed about the room was something strange about the air. At first, I thought it might be soundproof, like alder winds. But looking around, I saw the walls and ceilings were bare gray stone. Next, I thought the air might be stale, except when I drew a breath, I smelled lavender and fresh linen. It was almost like there was a pressure on my ears, as if I were deep underwater, except, of course, that I wasn't. I waved a hand in front of me, almost expecting the air to feel different, thicker. It didn't. Pretty irritating, huh? I turned around to see Elodin watching me. I'm surprised you noticed, actually. Not many do. The room was a definite step above Alder Winds. It had a four-post bed with curtains, an overstuffed couch, an empty bookcase, and a large table with several chairs. Most notable were the huge windows looking out over the lawns and gardens. I could see a balcony outside, but there didn't seem to be any way to get to it. Watch this, Elodin said. He picked up one of the high-backed wooden chairs, lifted it with both hands, spun in a circle, and flung it hard at the window. I cringed, but instead of a terrible crash, it was just a dull splintering of wood. The chair fell to the floor in a ruined tangle of timber and upholstery. I used to do that for hours, Elodin said, drawing a deep breath and looking around the room fondly. Good times. I went to look at the windows. They were thicker than usual, but not that thick. They seemed normal except for faint reddish streaks running through them. I glanced at the window frame. It was copper, too. I looked slowly around at the room, eyeing its bare stone walls, feeling its strangely heavy air. I noticed the door didn't even have a handle on the inside, let alone a lock. Why would anyone go through all the trouble of making a solid copper door? I decided on my second question. How did you get out? Finally, Elodin said with a tinge of exasperation. He slouched onto the couch. You see, once upon a time, Elodin the Great found himself locked in a high tower. He gestured to the room around us. He had been stripped of his tools, his coin, key, and candle. Furthermore, his cell had no door worth mentioning. No window that could be breached. He made dismissive gestures at each of these. Even the name of the wind was hidden from him by the clever machinations of his captors. Elodin got up from the couch and began to pace the room. All around him was nothing but smooth, hard stone. It was a cell no man had ever escaped. He stopped pacing and held up a finger dramatically. But Elodin the Great knew the names of all things, and so all things were his to command. He faced the great wall beside the windows. He said to the stone, Break! And the... Elodin trailed off, his head tilting to one side curiously. His eyes narrowed. 
Sod me, they changed it, he said quietly to himself. Huh. He stepped closer to the wall and lay a hand on it. I let my attention wander. Will and Sim had been right. The man was cracked in his head. What would happen if I ran out of the room, unstuck the door, and slammed it? Would the other masters thank me? Oh, Elodin said suddenly, laughing. That was half clever of them. He took two steps back from the wall. Sire Basalian! I saw the wall move. It rippled like a hanging rug thumped with a stick. Then it simply fell, like dark water poured from a bucket. Tons of fine gray sand spilled across the floor in a sudden rush, burying Elodin's feet up to his shins. Sunlight and birdsong poured into the room. Where there had been a foot of solid gray stone before, there was now a gaping hole big enough to drive a cart through. But the hole wasn't completely clear. Some green material was spread across the opening. It almost looked like a dirty, tangled net, but it was too irregular for netting. It was more like a thick, tattered cobweb. That wasn't there before, Elodin said apologetically as he pulled his feet free of the gray sand. It was much more dramatic the first time, let me assure you. I simply stood, stunned by what I'd just seen. This wasn't sympathy. This wasn't anything I'd ever seen before. All I could think of was the old line from a hundred half-remembered stories. And Taberlin the Great said to the stone, Break, and the stone broke. Elodin wrenched off one of the chair's legs and used it to batter at the tangled green web that stretched across the opening. Parts of it broke easily or flaked away. Where it was thicker, he used the leg as a lever to bend pieces aside. Where it bent or broke, it glimmered bright in the sunlight. More copper, I thought. Veins of copper running through the blocks of stone that made the wall. Elodin dropped the chair leg and ducked through the gap. Through the window, I saw him lean against the white stone railing on the balcony. I followed him outside. As soon as I stepped onto the balcony, the air no longer felt strangely heavy and still. Two years, he said, looking out over the gardens. Able to see this balcony, but not stand on it. Able to see the wind, but not hear it, not feel it on my face. He swung one leg up over the stone railing, so he was sitting on it then dropped a few feet to land on the flat piece of roof just underneath. He wandered out across the roof, away from the building. I hopped the rail myself and followed him to the edge of the roof. We were only about twenty feet up, but the gardens and fountains spreading out on all sides made for a spectacular view. Elodin stood perilously near the edge, his master's robe flapping around him like a dark flag. He looked rather impressive, actually, if you were willing to ignore the fact that he was still only wearing one sock. I went to stand beside him on the edge of the roof. I knew what my third question had to be. What do I have to do, I asked, to study naming under you? He met my eye calmly, appraising me. Jump, he said. Jump off this roof. That's when I realized that all of this had been a test. 
Elodin had been taking my measure ever since we met. He had a grudging respect for my tenacity, and he had been surprised that I noticed something odd about the air in his room. He was on the verge of accepting me as a student, but he needed more, proof of my dedication, a demonstration, a leap of faith. And as I stood there, a piece of story came to mind. So Taberlin fell, but he did not despair, for he knew the name of the wind, and so the wind obeyed him. It cradled and caressed him. It bore him to the ground as gently as a puff of thistledown. It set him on his feet softly as a mother's kiss. Elodin knew the name of the wind. Still looking him in the eye, I stepped off the edge of the roof. Elodin's expression was marvelous. I have never seen a man so astonished. I spun slightly as I fell, so he stayed in my line of vision. I saw him raise one hand slightly, as if making a belated attempt to grab hold of me. I felt weightless, like I was floating. Then I struck the ground. Not gently, like a feather settling down. Hard, like a brick hitting a cobblestone street. I landed on my back with my left arm beneath me. My vision went dark as the back of my head struck the ground and all the air was driven from my body. I didn't lose consciousness. I just lay there, breathless and unable to move. I remember thinking, quite earnestly, that I was dead, that I was blind. Eventually, my sight returned, leaving me blinking against the sudden brightness of the blue sky. Pain tore through my shoulder, and I tasted blood. I couldn't breathe. I tried to roll off my arm, but my body wouldn't listen to me. I had broken my neck. My back. After a long, terrifying moment, I managed to gasp a shallow breath, then another. I gave a sigh of relief and realized that I had at least one broken rib in addition to everything else. But I moved my fingers slightly, then my toes. They worked. I hadn't broken my spine. As I lay there, counting my blessings and broken ribs, Elodin stepped into my field of vision. He looked down at me. Congratulations, he said. That was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. His expression was a mix of awe and disbelief. Ever! And that is when I decided to pursue the noble art of artificing. Not that I had a lot of other options. Before helping me limp to the Medica, Elodin made it clear that anyone stupid enough to jump off a roof was too reckless to be allowed to hold a spoon in his presence, let alone study something as profound and volatile as naming. Nevertheless, I wasn't terribly put out by Elodin's refusal. Storybook magic or no, I was not eager to study under a man whose first set of lessons had left me with three broken ribs, a mild concussion, and a dislocated shoulder. Chapter 47 Barbs Aside from its rocky start, my first term went fairly smoothly. I studied in the Medica, learning more about the body and how to heal it. I practiced my Siaru with Willem and helped him with his Aturin in exchange. I joined the ranks of the artificery, studying how to blow glass, mix alloys, draw wire, inscribe metal and sculpt stone. Most evenings I came back to Kilvin's workshop to work. 
I chipped casings off bronze castings, washed glassware, and ground ore for alloys. It was not demanding work, but every span Kilvin gave me a copper jot, sometimes two. I suspected there was a great tally board in that methodical mind of his, carefully marking down the hours each person worked. I learned things of a less academic nature as well. Some of my Arcanum bunkmates taught me a card game called Dog's Breath. I returned the favor by giving an impromptu lesson in psychology, probability, and manual dexterity. I won almost two whole talents before they stopped inviting me back to their games. I became tight friends with Willem and Simon. I had some few others, but not many, and none so close as Will and Sim. My swift rise to Elir alienated me from most of the other students. Whether they resented or admired me, most students held themselves apart. And there was Ambrose. To deem us simply enemies is to lose the true flavor of our relationship. It was more like the two of us entered into a business partnership in order to more efficiently pursue our mutual interest of hating each other. However, even with my vendetta against Ambrose, I still had a great deal of time on my hands. Since I wasn't able to spend it in the archives, I spent some time nurturing my budding reputation. You see, my dramatic entrance to the university had made quite a stir. I'd made my way into the Arcanum in three days instead of the usual three terms. I was the youngest member by almost two years. I had openly defied one of the masters in front of his own class and avoided expulsion. When whipped, I hadn't cried out or bled. On top of everything else, I had apparently managed to infuriate Master Elodin to such an extent that he had thrown me off the roof of the crockery. I let that story circulate uncorrected, as it was preferable to the embarrassing truth. Altogether, it was enough to start a steady stream of rumor around me, and I decided to take advantage of it. Reputation is like a sort of armor, or a weapon you can brandish if need be. I decided that if I was going to be an arcanist, I might as well be a well-known arcanist. So I let slip a few pieces of information. I had been admitted without a letter of recommendation. The masters had given me three talents to attend, rather than make me pay a tuition. I had survived for years on the streets of Tarbian, living off my wits. I even started a few rumors that were pure nonsense, lies so outrageous that people would repeat them despite the fact that they were obviously untrue. I had demon blood in me. I could see in the dark. I only slept an hour each night. When the moon was full, I would talk in my sleep, speaking a strange language no one could understand. Basil, my former bunkmate from Muse, helped me start these rumors. I would make up the stories, he would tell a few people, then together we would watch them spread like a fire in a field. It was an amusing hobby. But my ongoing feud with Ambrose added to my reputation more than anything else. Everyone was stunned that I dared openly defy a powerful noble's firstborn son. We had several dramatic encounters that first term. I won't bore you with the details. We'd crossed paths, and he would make some offhand comment loud enough for everyone in the room to hear, or he would sneer at me under the guise of a compliment. You must tell me who cuts your hair.
Anyone with a lick of common sense knew how to deal with arrogant nobility. The tailor I had terrorized back in Tarbian knew what to do. You take your lumps, duck your head, and get the whole thing over as quickly as possible. But I always fought back, and while Ambrose was intelligent and reasonably well-spoken, he was no match for my trooper's tongue. I had been raised on the stage, and my sharp rue wits ensured that I got the better of our exchanges. Still, Ambrose continued to seek me out, like a dog too stupid to avoid a porcupine. He would snap at me and leave with a face full of barbs. And each time we parted ways, we hated each other just a little more. People noticed, and by the end of the term, I had a reputation for reckless bravery. But the truth is, I was merely fearless. There is a difference, you see. In Tarbian, I'd learned real fear. I feared hunger, pneumonia, guards with hobnail boots, older boys with bottle-glass knives. Confronting Ambrose required no real bravery on my part. I simply couldn't muster any fear of him. I saw him as a puffed-up clown. I thought he was harmless. I was a fool. Chapter 48 Interlude A Silence of a Different Kind Bast sat in the Waystone Inn and tried to keep his hands motionless in his lap. He had counted fifteen breaths since Quoth had spoken last, and the innocent silence that had gathered like a clear pool around the three men was beginning to darken into a silence of a different kind. Bast took another breath. Sixteen and braced himself against the moment he feared would come. It would not be to Bast's credit to say that he was afraid of nothing, as only fools and priests are never afraid. But it is true that very few things unnerved him. Heights, for instance, he didn't care for very much, and the great summer storms that came through these parts that blackened the sky and tore up deep-rooted oaks made him feel uncomfortably small and helpless. But when you came down to it, nothing really frightened him. Not storms, not tall ladders, not even the scrail. Bast was brave by being largely fearless. Nothing would turn him pale, or if it did, he didn't stay pale for very long. Oh, certainly, he didn't relish the thought of someone hurting him. Stabbing him with bitter iron, searing him with hot coals, that sort of thing but just because he didn't like the thought of his blood on the outside didn't mean he was really afraid of those things. He just didn't want them to happen. To really fear something, you have to dwell on it. And since there was nothing that preyed on Bast's waking mind in this fashion, there was nothing his heart truly feared. But hearts can change. Ten years ago, he had lost his grip climbing a tall rental tree to pick fruit for a girl he fancied. After he slipped, he had hung for a long minute, head down, before falling. In that long minute, a small fear rooted inside him and had stayed with him ever since. In the same way, Bast had learned a new fear of late. A year ago, he had been fearless, as any sane man can hope to be. But now, Bast feared silence. Not the ordinary silence that came from a simple absence of things moving about and making noise. Bast feared the deep, weary silence that gathered around his master at times, like an invisible shroud. 
Bast breathed in again. Seventeen. He fought not to wring his hands as he waited for the deep silence to invade the room. He waited for it to crystallize and show its teeth on the edges of the cool quiet that had pooled in the waystone. He knew how it came, like the frost that bleeds out of the winter ground, hardening the clear water that an early thaw leaves in wagon ruts. But before Bast could draw another breath, Kvolf straightened in his chair and made a motion for Chronicler to lay down his pen. Bast nearly wept as he sensed the silence scatter, like a dark bird startled into flight. Kvolf gave a sigh that hovered between annoyance and resignation. I will admit, he said, that I am not sure how to approach the next part of the story. Afraid to let the silence stretch for too long, Bast chirruped, Why don't you simply talk about what is most important first? Then you can go back and touch on other things, if you need to. As if it were as simple as that, Quoth said sharply. What is most important? My magic or my music? My triumphs or my follies? Bast flushed a deep crimson and bit his lips. Quoth let out his breath in a sudden rush. I'm sorry, Bast. It's good advice, as all of your seemingly inane advice turns out to be. He pushed his chair back from the table. But before we continue, the real world has certain calls on me that I can no longer ignore. If you will please excuse me for a moment. Chronicler and Bast stood as well, stretching their legs and attending to calls of their own. Bast lit the lamps. Quoth produced more cheese and bread and hard-spiced sausage. They ate and some small effort was made at polite conversation, but their minds were elsewhere, dwelling on the story. Bast ate half of everything. Chronicler accounted for a sizable, though more modest, amount. Quoth had a bite or two before he spoke. Onward, then. Music and magic. Triumph and folly. Think now, what does our story need? What vital element is it lacking? Women, Reshi, Bast said immediately. There's a real paucity of women. Quoth smiled. Not women, Bast. A woman. The woman. Quoth looked at Chronicler. You have heard bits and pieces, I don't doubt. I will tell you the truth of her, though I fear I may not be equal to the challenge. Chronicler picked up his pen, but before he could dip it, Quoth held up a hand. Let me say one thing before I start. I've told stories in the past, painted pictures with words, told hard lies and harder truths. Once I sang colors to a blind man. Seven hours I played, but at the end he said he saw them, green and red and gold. That, I think, was easier than this trying to make you understand her with nothing more than words. You have never seen her, never heard her voice. You cannot know. Quoth motioned for Chronicler to pick up his pen. But still, I will try. She is in the wings now, waiting for her cue. Let us set the stage for her arrival. Chapter 49 the nature of wild things. As with all truly wild things, K-1 
care is necessary in approaching them. Stealth is useless. Wild things recognize stealth for what it is, a lie and a trap. While wild things might play games of stealth, and in doing so may even occasionally fall prey to stealth, they are never truly caught by it. So, with slow care rather than stealth, we must approach the subject of a certain woman. Her wildness is of such degree I fear approaching her too quickly even in a story. Should I move recklessly, I might startle even the idea of her into sudden flight. So in the name of slow care, I will speak of how I met her, and to do that I must speak of the events that brought me quite unwillingly across the river and into Imre. I finished my first term with three silver talents and a single jot. Not long ago, it would have seemed like all the money in the world to me. Now, I simply hoped it would be enough for one more term's tuition and a bunk in the mews. The last span of every term at the university was reserved for admissions exams. Classes were cancelled, and the masters spent several hours of each day conducting examinations. Your next term's tuition was based on your performance. A lottery determined what day and hour you would go through admissions. A great deal hung on the brief interview. Missing a few questions could easily double your tuition. Because of this, slots later in the span were highly prized, as they gave students more time to study and prepare. There was a vigorous trade in appointment times after the lottery was held. Money and favors were bartered as everyone vied for a time that suited them. I was lucky enough to draw mid-morning hour on kindling, the last day of admissions. If I'd wanted to, I could have sold my slot, but I preferred to take the extra time to study. I knew my performance would have to be brilliant, as several of the masters were now less than impressed by me. My previous trick of spying was out of the question. I now knew it was grounds for expulsion, and I couldn't risk that. Despite the long days I spent studying with Will and Sim, admissions were difficult. I breezed through many of the questions, but Hem was openly hostile, asking questions with more than one answer so that nothing I said could be correct. Brandor was difficult as well, clearly helping Hem carry his grudge. Lauren was unreadable, but I sensed his disapproval rather than seeing it on his face. Afterward, I fidgeted while the masters discussed my tuition. Voices were calm and muted at first, then became somewhat louder. Eventually, Kilvin stood and shook a finger at Hem while shouting and pounding the table with his other hand. Hem maintained more composure than I would have if I had been faced with twenty stone of furious, bellowing artificer. After the Chancellor managed to regain control of things, I was called forward and given my receipt. Elir Kvolf, fall term. Tuition, three talents, nine and seven. Eight jots more than I had. As I walked out of the Master's Hall, I ignored the sinking feeling in my gut and tried to think of a way I could lay hands on more money by tomorrow noon. I made a brief stop at the two Sieldish money changers on this side of the river. As I suspected, they wouldn't lend me a thin shim. While I wasn't surprised, the experience was sobering, reminding me again of how different I was from the other students. They had families paying their tuition, granting them allowances to cover their living expenses. 
They had reputable names they could borrow against in a pinch. They had possessions they could pawn or sell. If worse came to worst, they had homes to return to. I had none of these things. If I couldn't come up with eight more jots for tuition, I had nowhere in the world I could go. Borrowing from a friend seemed like the simplest option, but I valued my handful of friends too much to risk losing them over money. As my father used to say, There are two sure ways to lose a friend. One is to borrow, the other to lend. Besides, I did my best to keep my desperate poverty to myself. Pride is a foolish thing, but it is a powerful force. I wouldn't ask them for money except as my very last resort. I briefly considered trying to cut purse the money, but I knew it was a bad idea. If I were caught with my hand in someone's pocket, I would get more than a cuff around the head. At best, I'd be jailed and forced to stand against the iron law. At worst, I'd end up on the horns and expelled for conduct unbecoming a member of the Arcanum. I couldn't risk it. I needed a Galet, one of the dangerous men who lend money to desperate people. You might have heard them referred to romantically as copperhawks, but more often they're referred to as shimgals, or lets. Regardless of the name, they exist everywhere. The hard part is finding them. They tend to be rather secretive as their business is semi-legal at best. But living in Tarbian had taught me a thing or two. I spent a couple of hours visiting the seedier taverns around the university, making casual conversations, asking casual questions. Then I visited a pawn shop called the Bent Penny and asked a few more pointed questions. Finally, I learned where I needed to go, over the river to Imre. Chapter 50 Negotiations Imre lay a little over two miles from the university, on the eastern side of the Omethi River. Since it was a mere two days in a fast coach from Tarbian, a great many wealthy nobles, politicians, and courtiers made their homes there. It was conveniently close to the governing hub of the Commonwealth, while being a comfortable distance from the smell of rotten fish, hot tar, and the vomit of drunken sailors. Imre was a haven for the arts. There were musicians, dramatists, sculptors, dancers, and the practitioners of a hundred other smaller arts, even the lowest art of all, poetry. Performers came because Imre offered what every artist needs most, an appreciative, affluent audience. Imre also benefited by its proximity to the university. Access to plumbing and sympathy lamps improved the quality of the town's air. Quality glass was easy to come by, so windows and mirrors were commonplace. Eyeglasses and other ground lenses, while expensive, were readily available. Despite this, there was little love lost between the two towns. Most of Imre's citizens did not like the thought of a thousand minds tinkering with dark forces better left alone. Listening to the average citizen speak, it was easy to forget that this part of the world had not seen an arcanist burned for nearly three hundred years. To be fair, it should be mentioned that the university had a vague contempt for Imre's populace too, viewing them as self-indulgent and decadent. 
The arts that were viewed so highly in Imre were seen as frivolous by those at the university. Often, students who quit the university were said to have gone over the river, the implication being that minds that were too weak for academia had to settle for tinkering with the arts. And both sides of the river were ultimately hypocrites. University students complained about frivolous musicians and fluffhead actors, then lined up to pay for performances. Imre's population griped about unnatural arts being practiced two miles away, but when an aqueduct collapsed or someone fell suddenly sick, they were quick to call on engineers and doctors trained at the university. All in all, it was a long standing and uneasy truce where both sides complained while maintaining a grudging tolerance. Those people did have their uses after all. You just wouldn't want your daughter marrying one. Since Imre was such a haven for music and drama, you might think I spent a great deal of time there. But nothing could be further from the truth. I had been there only once. Willem and Simon had taken me to an inn where a trio of skilled musicians played lute, flute, and drum. I bought a short beer for halfpenny and relaxed. Fully intending to enjoy an evening with my friends. But I couldn't. Bare minutes after the music started, I practically fled the room. I doubt very much you'll be able to understand why, but I suppose I have to explain if things are to make any sense at all. I couldn't stand being near music and not be a part of it. It was like watching the woman you love bedding down with another man. No, not really. It was like. It was like the sweet eaters I'd seen in Tarbian. Dinner resin was highly illegal, of course, but that didn't matter in most parts of the city. The resin was sold wrapped in waxy paper, like a sucking candy or a toffee. Chewing it filled you with euphoria, bliss, contentment. But after a few hours, you were shaking, filled with a desperate hunger for more. And that hunger grew worse the longer you used it. Once in Tarbian, I saw a young girl of no more than sixteen with the telltale hollow eyes and unnaturally white teeth of the hopelessly addicted. She was begging a sailor for a sweet, which he held tauntingly out of reach. He told her it was hers if she stripped naked and danced for him right there in the street. She did, not caring who might be watching, not caring that it was nearly midwinter. And she stood in four inches of snow. She pulled off her clothes and danced desperately, her thin limbs pale and shaking, her movements pathetic and jerky. Then, when the sailor laughed and shook his head, she fell to her knees in the snow, begging and weeping, clutching frantically at his legs, promising him anything, anything. That is how I felt, watching the musicians play. I couldn't stand it. The everyday lack of my music was like a toothache I had grown used to. I could live with it, but having what I wanted dangled in front of me was more than I could bear. So I avoided Imre until the problem of my second term's tuition forced me back across the river. I had learned that Devi was the person anyone could ask for a loan, no matter how desperate the circumstances. So I crossed the Omethi by Stonebridge and made my way to Imre. 
Devi's place of business was through an alley and up a narrow balcony staircase behind a butcher's shop. This part of Imre reminded me of Waterside in Tarbian. The cloying smell of rancid fat from the butcher's shop below made me thankful for the cool autumn breeze. I hesitated in front of the heavy door, looking down into the alley. I was about to become involved in dangerous business. A sealedish moneylender could take you to court if you didn't repay your loan. A galet would simply have you beaten, or robbed, or both. This was not smart. I was playing with fire. But I didn't have any better options. I took a deep breath, squared my shoulders, and knocked on the door. I wiped my sweaty palms against my cloak, hoping to keep them reasonably dry for when I shook Debbie's hand. I had learned in Tarbian that the best way to deal with this type of man was to act with confidence and self-assurance. They were in the business of taking advantage of other people's weakness. I heard the sound of a heavy bolt being drawn back. Then the door opened, revealing a young girl with straight, strawberry-blonde hair framing a pixie-like face. She smiled at me, cute as a new button. Yes? I'm looking for Devi, I said. You found her, she said easily. Come on in. I stepped inside and she closed the door behind her, sliding the iron bolt home. The room was windowless, but well lit and filled with the scent of lavender. A welcome change from the smell of the alley. There were hangings on the walls, but the only real furniture was a small desk, a bookshelf, and a large canopy bed with the curtains drawn around it. Please, she said, gesturing to the desk. Have a seat. She settled herself behind the desk, folding her hands across the top. The way she carried herself made me rethink her age. I'd misjudged her because of her small size, but even so, she couldn't be much older than her early twenties. Hardly what I had expected to find. Devi blinked prettily at me. I need a loan, I said. How about your name first? She smiled. You already know mine. Quoth. Really? She arched an eyebrow. I've heard a thing or two about you. She looked me up and down. I thought you'd be taller. I could say the same. I was caught off balance by the situation. I'd been ready for a muscular thug in negotiations filled with thinly veiled threats and bravado. I didn't know what to make of this smiling waif. What have you heard? I asked to fill the silence. Nothing bad, I hope. Good and bad, she grinned, but nothing boring. I folded my hands to keep from fidgeting. So how exactly do we do this? Not much for banter, are you? She said, giving a brief, disappointed sigh. Fair enough. Straight to business. How much do you need? Only about a talent. I said. Eight jots, actually. She shook her head seriously, her strawberry blonde hair swinging back and forth. I can't do that, I'm afraid. It's not worth my while to make halfpenny loans. I frowned. How much is worth your while? Four talents, she said. That's the minimum. And the interest? Fifty percent every two months. So if you're looking to borrow as little as possible... It'll be two talents at the end of the term. You can pay off the whole debt for six if you like, 
but until I get all the principal back, it's two talents every term. I nodded, not terribly surprised. It was roughly four times what the most avaricious moneylender would charge. But I'm paying interest on money I don't really need. No, she said, meeting my eyes seriously. You're paying interest on money you borrowed. That's the deal. How about two talents, I said. Then at the end, Debbie waved her hands, cutting me off. We aren't bargaining here. I'm just informing you as to the conditions of the loan. She smiled apologetically. I'm sorry. I didn't make that clear from the beginning. I looked at her, the set of her shoulders, the way she met my eyes. Okay, I said, resigned. Where do I sign? She gave me a slightly puzzled look, her forehead furrowing slightly. No need to sign anything. She opened a drawer and pulled out a small brown bottle with a glass stopper. She laid a long pin next to it on the desk. Just a little blood. I sat frozen in my chair, my arms at my side. Don't worry, she reassured me. The pin's clean. I only need about three good drops. I finally found my voice. You've got to be kidding. Debbie cocked her head to one side a tiny smile curling one edge of her mouth. You didn't know, she said, surprised. It's rare that anyone comes here without knowing the whole story. I can't believe anyone actually... I stalled at a loss for words. Not everyone does, she said. I usually do business with students and ex-students. Folks on this side of the river would think I was some sort of witch or a demon or some nonsense like that. Members of the Arcanum know exactly why I want blood and what I can do with it. You're a member of the Arcanum, too? Former, she said, her smile fading a little. I made Relar before I left. I know enough so that with a little blood you can never hide from me. I can douse you out anywhere. Among other things, I said incredulously, thinking of the wax mommet I made of Hem at the beginning of the term. That was just hair. Blood was much more effective at creating a link. You could kill me. She gave me a frank look. You're awfully thick to be the Arcanum's bright new star. Think it through. Would I stay in business if I made a habit of malfeasance? The masters know about this? She laughed. God's body, of course not. Neither does the constable, the bishop, or my mother. She pointed to her chest, then to me. I know, and you know. That's usually enough to ensure a good working relationship between the two of us. What about unusually? I asked. What if I don't have your money at the end of the term? What then? She spread her hands and shrugged carelessly. Then we work something out between the two of us, like rational people. Maybe you work for me. Tell me secrets. Do me favors. She smiled and gave me a slow, lecherous looking over, laughing at my discomfiture. If worse comes to worst, and you end up being extraordinarily uncooperative, I could probably sell your blood to someone to recover my loss. Everyone has enemies. She shrugged easily. But I've never had things descend to that level. The threat is usually enough to keep people in line. She looked at the expression on my face, and her shoulders slumped a little. Come on now, she said gently. 
You came here expecting some thick-necked galet with scarred knuckles. You were ready to make a deal with someone ready to beat twelve distinct colors of hell out of you if you were a day late. My way is better. Simpler. This is insane, I said, getting to my feet. Absolutely not. Debbie's cheerful expression faded. Get a hold of yourself, she said plainly, growing exasperated. You're acting like some farmer who thinks I'm trying to buy his soul. It's just a little blood so I can keep tabs on you. It's like collateral. She made a calming gesture with both hands, as if smoothing the air. Fine, I'll tell you what. I'll let you borrow half the minimum. She looked at me expectantly. Two talents. Does that make it easier? No, I said. I'm sorry to have wasted your time, but I can't do it. Are there any other galets around? Of course, she said coolly. But I don't feel particularly inclined to give out that sort of information. She tilted her head quizzically. By the way, today's kindling, isn't it? Don't you need your tuition by noon tomorrow? I'll find them on my own then, I snapped. I'm sure you will, clever boy like you. Devi waved me away with the back of her hand. Feel free to let yourself out. Think fond thoughts of Devi in two months' time when some thug is kicking the teeth out of your pretty little head. After leaving Devi's, I paced the streets of Imre, restless and irritated, trying to get my thoughts in order, trying to think of a way around my problem. I had a decent chance of paying off the two-talent loan. I hoped to move up the ranks in the fishery soon. Once I was allowed to pursue my own projects, I could start earning real money. All I needed was to stay in classes long enough. It was just a matter of time. That's really what I was borrowing. Time. One more term. Who knew what opportunities might present themselves in the next two months? But even as I tried to talk myself into it, I knew the truth. It was a bad idea. It was begging for trouble. I would swallow my pride and see if Will or Sim or Sovoy could lend me the eight jots I needed. I sighed, resigning myself to a term of sleeping outside and scavenging meals where I could find them. At least it couldn't be worse than my time in Tarbian. I was just about to head back to the university when my restless pacing took me by a pawn shop's window. I felt the old ache in my fingers. How much for the seven-string loot? I asked. To this day, I do not remember actually entering the store. Four talents even, the owner said brightly. I guessed he was new to the job, or drunk. Pawnbrokers are never cheerful, not even in rich cities like Imre. Ah, I said, not bothering to hide my disappointment. Could I take a look at it? He handed it over. It wasn't much to look at. The grain of the wood was uneven, the varnish rough and scratched. Its frets were made of gut and badly in need of replacing, but that was of little concern to me, as I typically played fretless anyway. The bowl was rosewood, so the sound of it wouldn't be terribly subtle. But on the other hand, rosewood would carry better in a crowded taproom, cutting through the murmur of idle conversation. I tapped the bowl with a finger, and it gave off a resonant hum. Solid, but not pretty. 
I began to tune it so I would have an excuse to hold it a while longer. I might be able to go as low as three and five, the man behind the counter said. My ears pricked up as I heard something in his tone. Desperation. It occurred to me that an ugly, used lute might not sell very well in a city full of nobility and prosperous musicians. I shook my head. The strings are old. Actually, they were fine, but I hoped he didn't know that. True, he said, reassuring me of his ignorance, but strings are cheap. I suppose, I said doubtfully. With a deliberate plan, I set each of the strings just a hair out of tune with the others. I struck a chord and listened to the grating sound. I gave the lute's neck a sour, speculative look. I think the neck might be cracked. I strummed a minor chord that sounded even less appealing. Does that sound cracked to you? I strummed it again, harder. Three and two? He asked, hopefully. It's not for me, I said, as if correcting him. It's for my little brother. The little bastard won't leave mine alone. I strummed again and grimaced. I may not like the little sprit very much, but I'm not cruel enough to buy him a lute with a sour neck. I paused significantly. When nothing was forthcoming, I prompted him. Not for three and two. Three even? he said hopefully. To all appearances, I held the lute casually, carelessly, but in my heart I was clutching it with a white-knuckled fierceness. I cannot hope for you to understand this. When the Chandrian killed my troop, they destroyed every piece of my family and home I had ever known. But in some ways, it had been worse when my father's lute was broken in Tarbian. It had been like losing a limb, an eye, a vital organ. Without my music, I had wandered Tarbian for years, half alive, like a crippled veteran or one of the walking dead. Listen, I said to him frankly, I've got two and two for you. I pulled out my purse. You can take it or this ugly thing can gather dust on a high shelf for the next ten years. I met his eye, careful to keep my face from showing how badly I needed it. I would do anything to keep this loot. I would dance naked in the snow. I would clutch at his legs, shaking and frantic, promising him anything, anything. I counted out two talents and two jots onto the counter between us, nearly all of the money I had saved for this term's tuition. Each coin made a hard click as I pressed it to the table. He gave me a long look, measuring me. I clicked down one more jot and waited and waited. When he finally reached out his hand for the money, his haggard expression was the same one I was used to seeing on pawnbrokers' faces. Devi opened the door and smiled. Well now, I honestly didn't think I'd see you again. Come in. She bolted the door behind me and walked over to her desk. I can't say I'm disappointed, though. She looked over her shoulder and flashed me her impish smile. I was looking forward to doing a little business with you. She sat down. So, two talents then? Four would be better, actually, I said. Just enough for me to afford tuition and a bunk in the muse. I could sleep outside in the wind and the rain. My loot deserved better. Wonderful, she said as she pulled out the bottle and pin.
I needed the tips of my fingers intact, so I pricked the back of my hand and let three drops of blood slowly gather and fall into the small brown bottle. I held it out to Debbie. Go ahead and drop the pin in there, too. I did. Debbie swabbed the bottle's stopper with a clear substance and slid it into the mouth of the bottle. A clever little adhesive from your friends over the river, she explained. This way, I can't open the bottle without breaking it. When you pay off your debt, you get it back intact and can sleep safe knowing I haven't kept any for myself. Unless you have the solvent, I pointed out. Devi gave me a pointed look. You're not big on trust, are you? She rummaged around in a drawer, brought out some sealing wax, and began to warm it over the lamp on her desk. I don't suppose you have a seal or ring or anything like that? She asked as she smeared the wax across the top of the bottle stopper. If I had jewelry to sell, I wouldn't be here, I said frankly and pressed my thumb into the wax. It left a recognizable print. But that should do. Debbie etched a number on the side of the bottle with a diamond stylus, then brought out a slip of paper. She wrote for a moment, then fanned it with a hand, waiting for it to dry. You can take this to any moneylender on either side of the river, she said cheerfully as she handed it to me. Pleasure doing business with you. Don't be a stranger. I headed back to the university with money in my purse and the comforting weight of the loot strap hanging from my shoulder. It was second-hand, ugly, and had cost me dearly in money, blood, and peace of mind. I loved it like a child, like breathing, like my own right hand. Chapter 51 Tar and Tin At the beginning of my second term, Kilvin gave me permission to study sigildry. This raised a few eyebrows but none in the fishery where I'd proven myself to be a hard worker and a dedicated student. Sigildry, simply put, is a set of tools for channeling forces, like sympathy made solid. For example, if you engraved one brick with the rune Ool and another with the rune Dock, the two runes would cause the bricks to cling to each other, as if mortared in place. But... It's not as simple as that. What really happens is the two runes tear the bricks apart with the strength of their attraction. To prevent this, you have to add the rune Aru to each of the bricks. Aru is the rune for clay, and it makes the two pieces of clay cling to each other, solving your problem. Except that Aru and Dock don't fit together. They're the wrong shape. To get them to fit, you have to add a few linking runes. Gia and Te. Then, for balance, you have to add Gia and Te to the other brick, too. Then the bricks cling to each other without breaking. But only if the bricks are made out of clay. Most bricks aren't, so generally, it is a better idea to mix iron into the ceramic of the brick before it is fired. Of course, that means you have to use fair instead of Aru. Then you have to switch Te and Gia so the ends come together properly. As you can see, mortar is a simpler and more reliable route for holding bricks together. I studied my sigildry under Kamar. The scarred, one-eyed man was Kilvin's gatekeeper. 
Only after you were able to prove your firm grasp of sigildry to him could you move on to a loose apprenticeship with one of the more experienced artificers. You assisted them with their projects, and in return they showed you the finer points of the craft. There were 197 runes. It was like learning a new language, except there were nearly 200 unfamiliar letters, and you had to invent your own words a lot of the time. Most students took at least a month of study before Kamer judged them ready to move on. Some students took an entire term. Start to finish, it took me seven days. How? First, I was driven. Other students could afford to stroll through their studies. Their parents or patrons would cover the expense. I, on the other hand, needed to climb the ranks in the fishery quickly so I could earn money working on my own projects. Tuition wasn't even my first priority anymore. Devi was. Second, I was brilliant. Not just your run-of-the-mill brilliance, either. I was extraordinarily brilliant. Lastly, I was lucky, plain and simple. I stepped across the patchwork rooftops of Mainz with my lute strung across my back. It was a dim, cloudy twilight, but I knew my way around by now. I kept to the tar and tin, knowing that red tiles or gray slate made for treacherous footing. At some point in the remodeling of Mainz, one of the courtyards had become completely isolated. It could only be accessed by clambering through a high window in one of the lecture halls, or by climbing down a gnarled apple tree, if you happened to be on the roof. I came here to practice my lute. My bunk and muse was not convenient. Not only was music viewed as frivolous on this side of the river, but I would only make more enemies by playing while my bunkmates tried to sleep or study. So I came here. It was perfect, secluded and practically on my doorstep. The hedges had gone wild, and the lawn was a riot of weeds and flowering plants. But there was a bench under the apple tree that was perfectly suited to my needs. Usually, I came late at night, when Mainz was locked and abandoned. But today was Thaden. That meant that if I ate dinner quickly, I had nearly an hour between Elksadal's class and my work in the fishery. Plenty of time for some practice. However, when I reached the courtyard tonight, I saw lights through the windows. Brandur's lecture was running late today. So I stayed on the rooftop. The windows to the lecture hall were shut, so there wasn't much chance of my being overheard. I put my back to a nearby chimney and began to play. After about ten minutes, the lights went out, but I decided to stay where I was rather than waste time climbing down. I was halfway through Ten Tap Tim when the sun slipped out from behind the clouds. Golden light covered the rooftop, spilling over the edge of the roof into a thin slice of the courtyard below. That's when I heard the noise. A sudden rustling, like a startled animal down in the courtyard. But then there was something else. A noise unlike anything a squirrel or rabbit would make in the hedge. It was a hard noise, a vaguely metallic thud, as if someone had dropped a heavy bar of iron. I stopped playing the half-finished melody still running through my head. Was another student down there listening? I put my lute back in its case before I made my way over to the lip of the roof and looked down. 
I couldn't see through the thick hedge that covered most of the eastern edge of the courtyard. Had a student climbed through the window? The sunset was fading quickly, and by the time I made it down the apple tree, most of the courtyard lay in shadow. I could see from here that the high window was closed. No one had come in that way. Even though it was quickly growing dark, curiosity won over caution, and I made my way into the hedge. There was quite a lot of space there. Portions of the hedge were nearly hollow, a green shell of living branches, leaving enough room to crouch comfortably. I made note of the place as a good space for sleeping if I didn't have enough money for a bunk in the mews next term. Even in the fading light, I could see I was the only one there. There wasn't room for anything bigger than a rabbit to hide. In the dim light, I couldn't spot anything that could have made the metallic noise either. Humming the catchy chorus of Ten Tap Tim, I crawled through to the other end of the hedge. Only when I came through the other side did I notice the drainage grate. I'd seen similar ones scattered throughout the university, but this one was older and larger. In fact, the opening might be large enough for a person to fit through if the grate were removed. Hesitantly, I curled a hand around one of the cool metal bars and pulled. The heavy grate pivoted on a hinge and came up about three inches before stopping. In the dim light, I couldn't tell why it wouldn't go any further. I pulled harder, but couldn't budge it. Finally, I gave up and dropped it back into place. It made a hard noise, vaguely metallic, like someone had dropped a heavy bar of iron. Then my fingers felt something that my eyes missed, a maze of grooves etching the surface of the bars. I looked closer and recognized some of the runes I was learning under Kamar, Ool and Doc. Then something clicked in my head. The chorus of ten-tap Tim suddenly fit together with the runes I'd been studying under Kamar for the last handful of days. Ool and Doc are both for binding. Re for seeking, Kel for finding. Gia ki, te, lak. Pesin water, resin, rock. Before I could go any further, sixth bell struck. The sound startled me from my reverie. But when I reached out to steady myself, my hand didn't come to rest on leaves and dirt. I touched something round and hard and smooth. A green apple. I emerged from the hedge and made my way to the northwest corner where the apple tree stood. No apples were on the ground. It was too early in the year for that. What's more, the iron grate was on the opposite side of the small courtyard. It couldn't have rolled that far. It must have been carried. Unsure of what to think, but knowing I was late for my evening shift in the fishery, I climbed the apple tree, gathered up my loot, and hurried to Kilvin's shop. Later that night, I fit the rest of the runes to music. It took a few hours, but when I was done, it was like having a reference sheet in my head. The next day, Kamar put me through an extensive two-hour examination, which I passed. For the next stage of my education in the fishery, I was apprenticed to Manette, the old, wild-haired student I'd met during my first days at the university. Manette had been attending the university for nearly thirty years, and everyone knew him as the eternal Elir. But despite the fact that we held the same rank, Manette had more hands-on experience in the fishery than any dozen higher-ranking students combined. Manette was patient and considerate. In fact, he reminded me of my old teacher, Abanthi. 
except Abanthi had wandered the world like a restless tinker, and it was common knowledge that Manette desired nothing more than to stay at the university for the rest of his life if he could manage it. Manette started small, teaching me simple formulae of the sort required for twice-tough glass and heat funnels. Under his tutelage, I learned artificing as quickly as I learned everything, and it wasn't long before we worked our way up to more complex projects like heat eaters and sympathy lamps. Truly high-level artificing such as sympathy clocks or gear winds were still beyond my reach, but I knew that it was just a matter of time. Unfortunately, time was proving to be in short supply. Chapter 52 Burning Owning a lute again meant I had my music back, but I quickly realized I was three years out of practice. My work in the artificery over the last couple months had toughened and strengthened my hands, but not in entirely the right ways. It took several frustrating days before I could play comfortably for even an hour at a time. I might have progressed more quickly had I not been so busy with my other studies. I had two hours of each day in the Medica, running or standing, an average of two hours of lecture and ciphering each day in mathematics, and three hours of studying under Manette in the fishery, learning the tricks of the trade. And then there was advanced sympathy with Elksadal. Out of class, Elksadal was charming, soft-spoken, and even a little ridiculous when the mood was on him. But when he taught, his personality strode back and forth between mad prophet and galley slave drummer. Every day in his class, I burned another three hours of time and five hours' worth of energy. Combined with my paid work in Kilvin's shop, this left me with barely enough time to eat, sleep, and study, let alone give my loot the time it deserved. Music is a proud, temperamental mistress. Give her the time and attention she deserves, and she is yours. Slight her, and there will come a day when you call and she will not answer. So I began sleeping less to give her the time she needed. After a span of this schedule, I was tired. After three span, I was still fine, but only through a grim, set-jaw type of determination. Somewhere around the fifth span, I began to show definite signs of wear. It was during that fifth span that I was enjoying a rare, shared lunch with Willem and Simon. They had their lunches from a nearby tavern. I couldn't afford a drab for an apple and meat pie, so I had snuck some barley bread and a grisly sausage out of the mess. We sat on the stone bench beneath the pennant pole where I'd been whipped. The place had filled me with dread after my whipping, but I forced myself to spend time there to prove to myself that I could. After it no longer unnerved me, I sat there because the stares of the students amused me. Now I sat there because I was comfortable. It was my place. And, because we spent a fair amount of time together, it had become Willem and Simmons' place, too. If they thought my choice an odd one, they didn't speak of it. You haven't been around very much, Willem said around a mouthful of meat pie. Been sick? Right, Simmons said sarcastically. He's been sick a whole month. Willem glared at him and grumbled, reminding me of Kilvin for a moment. His expression made Simmons laugh. Will's more polite than I am. I'm betting you've been spending all your free hours walking to Imre and back, courting some fabulously attractive young bard. He gestured at the loot case that lay at my side. 
He looks like he's been sick. Willem looked at me with a critical eye. Your woman hasn't been taking care of you. He's lovesick, Simmons said knowingly. Can't eat, can't sleep. You think of her when you should be trying to memorize your cipher. I couldn't think of anything to say. See, Simmons said to Will, she's stolen his tongue as well as his heart. All his words are for her. He can spare none for us. Can't spare any time either, Willem said into his rapidly dwindling meat pie. It was true, of course. I had been neglecting my friends even more than I'd been neglecting myself. I felt a flush of guilt wash over me. I couldn't tell them the full truth, that I needed to make the most of this term because it would very likely be my last. I was flat broke. If you cannot understand why I couldn't bring myself to tell them this, then I doubt you have ever been truly poor. I doubt you can really understand how embarrassing it is to only own two shirts, to cut your own hair as best you can because you can't afford a barber. I lost a button and couldn't spare a shim to buy a matching one. I tore out the knee of my pants and had to make do with the wrong color thread for mending. I couldn't afford salt for my meals or drinks on my rare evenings out with friends. The money I earned in Kilvin's shop was spent on essentials, ink, soap, loot strings. The only other thing I could afford was pride. I couldn't bear the thought of my two best friends knowing how desperate my situation was. If I suffered a piece of extraordinary good luck, I might be able to muster two talents to pay the interest on my debt to Debbie. But it would require a direct act of God for me to somehow gather enough money to pay that and next term's tuition as well. After I was forced out of the university and squared my debt with Debbie, I didn't know what I'd do. Pull up stakes and head for Annalyn to look for Denna, perhaps. I looked at them, not knowing what to say. Will, Simon, I'm sorry. It's just that I've been so busy lately. Simon grew a little more serious and I saw that he was earnestly hurt at my unexplained absence. We're busy too, you know. I've got rhetoric and chemistry, and I'm learning Siaru. He turned to Will and scowled. You should know I'm beginning to hate your language, you shim bastard. To Krylim, the young sealed replied amiably. Simon turned back to me and spoke with remarkable candor. It's just that we'd like to see you more often than once every handful of days as you run from mains to the fishery. Girls are wonderful, I'll admit, but when one takes one of my friends away, I get a little jealous. He gave a sudden, sunny smile. Not that I think of you in that way, of course. I found it hard to swallow past the sudden lump in my throat. I couldn't remember the last time I'd been missed. For a long time, I hadn't had anyone to miss me. I felt the beginning of hot tears in the back of my throat. Really, there isn't a girl. I mean it. I swallowed hard, trying to regain my composure. Sim, I think we've been missing something here. Willem was looking at me oddly. Take a good look at him. Simon gave me a similar analytical stare. That look from the two of them was enough to unnerve me, pushing me back from the edge of tears. Now, Willem said as if lecturing, 
How many terms has our young Elir been attending the university? Realization poured into Sim's honest face. Oh. Anyone care to tell me? I said petulantly. Willem ignored my question. What classes are you taking? Everything, I said, glad to have an excuse to complain. Geometry, observation in the Medica, advanced sympathy with Alxadal, and I've got my apprenticeship under Manette in the fishery. Simmon looked a little shocked. No wonder you look like you haven't slept in a span of days, he said. Willem nodded to himself. And you're still working in Kilvin's shop, aren't you? A couple of hours every night. Simmon was aghast. And you're learning an instrument at the same time? Are you insane? The music is the only thing that keeps me grounded, I said, reaching down to touch my lute. And I'm not learning to play. I just need practice. Willem and Simmon exchanged looks. How long do you think he has? Simmon looked me over. Span and a half tops. What do you mean? Willem leaned forward. We all bite off too much sooner or later, but some students don't know when to spit their mouthful. They burn out. They quit or botch their exams. Some crack. He tapped his head. It usually happens to students in their first year. He gave me a significant look. I haven't bitten off too much, I said. Look in a mirror, Willem suggested frankly. I opened my mouth to reassure Will and Sim that I was fine, but just then I heard the hour being struck and I only had time for a hurried goodbye. Even so, I had to run to make it to advance sympathy on time. Elksadal stood between two medium-sized braziers. In his well-trimmed beard and dark master's robe, he still reminded me of the stereotypical evil magician that appears in so many bad Aturin plays. What each of you must remember is that the sympathist is tied to flame, he said. We are its master and its servant. He tucked his hands into his long sleeves and began to pace again. We are the masters of fire, for we have dominion over it. Elksadal struck a nearby brazier with the flat of his hand, making it ring softly. Flames kindled in the coal and began to lick hungrily upward. The energy in all things belongs to the Arcanist. We command fire, and fire obeys. Dahl walked slowly to the other corner of the room. The brazier at his back dimmed while the other one he walked towards sparked to life and began to burn. I appreciated his showmanship. Dahl stopped and faced the class again. But we are also servants of fire, because fire is the most common form of energy, and without energy, our prowess as sympathists is of little use. He turned his back to the class and began erasing formulae from the slate board. Gather your materials, and we'll see who has to knock heads with Elia Quoth today. He began to chalk up a list of all the students' names. Mine was at the top. Three span ago, Dahl had started making us compete against each other. He called it dueling, and though it was a welcome break from the monotony of lecture, this most recent activity had a sinister element, too. A hundred students left the Arcanum every year, perhaps a quarter of them with their guilders, 
That meant that every year there were a hundred more people in the world that had been trained in the use of sympathy. People who, for one reason or another, you might have to pit your will against later in life. Though Dahl never said as much, we knew we were being taught something beyond mere concentration and ingenuity. We were being taught how to fight. Elksa Dahl kept careful track of the results. In the class of 38, I was the only one to remain undefeated. By this point, even the most thick-headed and grudging students were being forced to admit that my quick admittance to the Arcanum was something other than a fluke. Dueling could also be profitable in a small way, as there was a bit of clandestine betting. When we wanted to bet on our own duels, Savoy and I placed bets for each other, though as a rule I usually didn't have much money to spare. Thus, it was no coincidence that Savoy and I bumped into each other while we were gathering our materials. I handed him two jots underneath the table. He slid them into his pocket without looking at me. Goodness, he said quietly. Someone's pretty confident today. I shrugged nonchalantly, though in truth I was a little nervous. I had started the term penniless and been scraping by ever since, but yesterday... Kilvin had paid me for a span's work in the fishery, two jots, all the money I had in the world. Savoy began to rummage around in a drawer, bringing out sympathy wax, twine, and a few pieces of metal. I don't know how well I'll be able to do for you. The odds are getting bad. I'm guessing three to one is the best you'll get today. You still interested if it gets that low? I sighed. The odds were the downside to my undefeated rank. Yesterday, they had been two to one, meaning I would have had to risk two pennies for the chance to win one. I've got a little something planned, I said. Don't bet until we've set terms. You should get at least three to one against me. Against you? He muttered as he gathered up an armful of paraphernalia. Not unless you're going up against Dahl. I turned my face to conceal a slightly embarrassed blush at the compliment. Dal clapped his hands and everyone rushed to take their proper place. I was paired with a vintage boy, Fenton. He was one step below me in the class ranking. I respected him as one of the few in the class that could pose a real challenge to me in the right situation. Right then, Elksa Dahl said, rubbing his hands together eagerly. Fenton, you're lower on the ranks. Pick your poison. Candles. And your link? Dahl asked ritualistically. With candles, it was always either wicking or wax. Wick! He held up a piece for everyone to see. Dahl turned to me. Link? I dug into a pocket and held up my link with a flourish. Straw! There was a murmur from the class at this. It was a ridiculous link. The best I could hope for is a 3% transfer, maybe 5. Fenton's wicking would be 10 times better. Straw? Straw, I said with slightly more confidence than I felt. If this didn't tip the odds against me, I didn't know what would. Straw it is, then, Dal said easily. Elia Fenton, since Quoth is undefeated, you will have the choice of source. A quiet laugh spread through the class. My stomach dropped. I hadn't expected that. Normally, whoever doesn't pick the game gets to choose the source. 
I had been planning on choosing brazier, knowing that the quantity of heat would help offset my self-imposed handicap. Fenton grinned, knowing his advantage. No source! I grimaced. All we would have to draw from was our own body heat. Difficult in the best of circumstances, not to mention a little dangerous. I couldn't win. Not only was I going to lose my perfect rank, I had no way to signal Savoy not to bet my last two jots. I tried to meet his eyes, but he was already caught up in quiet, intense negotiations with a handful of other students. Fenton and I moved wordlessly to sit on opposite sides of a large work table. Elksadal set two thick stumps of candle down, one in front of each of us. The object was to light your opponent's candle without letting him do the same to yours. This involved splitting your mind into two different pieces. One piece tried to hold the ailer that your piece of wicking, or straw if you were stupid, was the same as the wick of the candle you were trying to light. Then you drew energy from your source to make it happen. Meanwhile, the second piece of your mind was kept busy trying to maintain the belief that your opponent's piece of wicking was not the same as the wick of your candle. If all of this sounds difficult, believe me, you don't know the half of it. Making it worse was the fact that neither of us had an easy source to draw from. You had to be careful using yourself as a source. Your body is warm for a reason. It responds badly when heat is pulled away. At a gesture from Elksadal, we began. I immediately devoted my whole mind to the defense of my own candle and began to think furiously. There was no way I could win. It doesn't matter how skilled a fencer you are. You can't help but lose when your opponent has a blade of Ramston steel and you've chosen to fight with a willow switch. I lowered myself into the heart of stone. Then, still devoting most of my mind to the protection of my candle, I muttered a binding between my candle and his. I reached out and tipped my candle on its side, forcing him to make a grab for his before it did the same and rolled away. I tried to take quick advantage of his distraction and set his candle aflame. I threw myself into it and felt a chill bleed up my arm from my right hand that held the piece of straw. Nothing happened. His candle remained cold and dark. I cupped my hand around the wick of my candle, blocking his line of sight. It was a petty trick and largely useless against a skilled sympathist, but my only hope was to rattle him in some way. Hey, Fen, I said. Have you heard the one about the tinker, the tailin, the farmer's daughter, and the butter churn yet? Fen gave no response. His pale face was locked in fierce concentration. I gave up distraction as a lost cause. Fenton was too smart to be thrown off that way. Besides, I was finding it difficult to maintain the necessary concentration to keep my candle safe. I lowered myself more deeply into the heart of stone and forgot the world apart from the two candles and a piece of wick and straw. After a minute, I was covered in a clammy, chill sweat. I shivered. Fenton saw this and gave me a smile with bloodless lips. I redoubled my efforts, but his candle ignored my best attempts to force it into flame. Five minutes passed, with the whole class quiet as stones. Most duels lasted no longer than a minute or two, one person quickly proving himself more clever or possessed of a stronger will. Both my arms were cold now. I saw a muscle in Fenton's neck twitch spastically like a horse's flank trying to shake loose a biting fly. His posture went rigid as he suppressed the urge to shiver. 
a wisp of smoke began to curl from the wick of my candle. I bore down. I realized that my breath was hissing through my clenched teeth. My lips pulled back in a feral grin. Fenton didn't seem to notice, his eyes growing glassy and unfocused. I shivered again, so violently that I almost missed seeing the tremor in his hand. Then slowly, Fenton's head began to nod toward the tabletop. His eyelids drooped. I set my teeth and was rewarded to see a thin curl of smoke rise from the wick of his candle. Woodenly, Fenton turned to look, but instead of rallying to his own defense, he made a slow, leaden gesture of dismissal and lay his head in the crook of his arm. He didn't look up as the candle near his elbow spat fitfully to light. There was a brief scattering of applause mixed in with exclamations of disbelief. Someone pounded me on the back. How about that? Wore himself out. No, I said thickly and reached across the table. With clumsy fingers, I prized open the hand that held the wicking and saw it had blood on it. Master Dahl, I said as quickly as I could manage. He's got the chills. Speaking made me realize how cold my lips felt. But Dahl was already there, bringing a blanket to wrap around the boy. You, he pointed at one of the students at random. Bring someone from the Medica. Go. The student left at a run. Foolish. Master Dahl murmured a binding for heat. He looked over at me. You should probably walk around a bit. You don't look much better than he does. There was no more dueling that day. The rest of the class watched as Fenton revived slowly under Elxadal's care. By the time an older Eltha from the Medica arrived, Fenton had warmed enough to begin shivering violently. After a quarter hour of warm blankets and careful sympathy, Fenton was able to drink something hot, though his hand still shook. Once all the hubbub was finished, it was nearly third bell. Master Dahl managed to get all the students seated and quiet long enough to say a few words. What we saw today was a prime example of Binder's chills. The body is a delicate thing, and a few degrees of heat lost rapidly can upset the entire system. A mild case of the chills is just that, chilling. But more extreme cases can lead to shock and hypothermia. Dahl looked around. Can anyone tell me what Fenton's mistake was? There was a moment of silence, then a hand raised. Yes, Bray? He used blood. When heat is lost from the blood, the body cools as a whole unit. This is not always advantageous, as the extremities can stand a more drastic temperature loss than the viscera can. Why would anyone consider using blood, then? It offers up more heat more rapidly than the flesh. How much would have been safe for him to draw? Dahl looked around the room. Two degrees? Someone volunteered. One and a half, Dahl corrected, and wrote a few equations on the board to demonstrate how much heat this would provide. Given his symptoms, how much do you suppose he actually drew? There was a pause. Finally, Savoy spoke up. Eight or nine? Very good, Dahl said grudgingly. It's nice that at least one of you has been doing the reading. His expression grew grave. Sympathy is not for the weak of mind, but neither is it for the overconfident. If we had not been here to give Fenton the care he needed, he would have slipped quietly asleep and died. He paused to let the words sink in. 
Better you should know your honest limit than overguess your abilities and lose control. Third bell struck, and the room was filled with sudden noise as students stood to leave. Master Dahl raised his voice to be heard. Ilya Kvothe, would you mind staying behind for a moment? I grimaced. Savoy walked behind me, clapped me on the shoulder, and muttered, Look. I couldn't tell if he was referring to my victory or wishing me well. After everyone was gone, Dahl turned and set down the rag he had been using to wipe the slate clean. So, he said conversationally, how did the numbers work out? I wasn't surprised he knew about the betting. Eleven to one, I admitted. I'd made twenty-two jots, a little over two talents. The presence of that money in my pocket warmed me. He gave me a speculative look. How are you feeling? You were a little pale at the end yourself. I had a little shiver, I lied. Actually, in the commotion that followed Fenton's collapse, I had slipped out and had a frightening few minutes in a back hallway. Shivers that were close to seizures had made it almost impossible to stay on my feet. Luckily, no one had found me shaking in the hallway, my jaw clenched so tight that I feared my teeth might break. But no one had seen me. My reputation was intact. Dal gave me a look that told me he might suspect the truth. Come over. He made a motion to one of the still-burning braziers. A little warm won't hurt you. I didn't argue. As I held my hands to the fire, I felt myself relax a bit. Suddenly, I realized how weary I was. My eyes were itchy from too little sleep. My body felt heavy, as if my bones were made of lead. With a reluctant sigh, I pulled my hands back and opened my eyes. Dahl was looking closely at my face. I've got to go, I said with a little regret in my voice. Thanks for the use of your fire. We're both sympathists, Dal said, giving me a friendly wave as I gathered my things and headed for the door. You're welcome to it any time. Later that night in the mews, Willem opened his door to my knocking. I'll be damned, he said. Two times in one day. To what do I owe the honor? I think you know. I grumbled and pushed my way inside the cell-like little room. I leaned my loot case against a wall and fell into a chair. Kilvin has banned me from my work in the shop. Willem sat forward on his bed. Why's that? I gave him a knowing look. I expect it's because you and Simmons stopped by and suggested it to him. He watched me for a moment, then shrugged. You figured it out quicker than I thought you would. He rubbed the side of his face. You don't seem terribly upset. I had been furious. Just as my fortune seemed to be turning, I was forced to leave my only paying job because of well-intentioned meddling by my friends. But rather than storm over and rage at them, I'd gone away to the roof of Mains and played for a while to cool my head. The music calmed me, as it always did, and while I played, I thought things through. My apprenticeship with Manette was going well, but there was simply too much to learn. How to fire the kilns, how to draw wire to the proper consistency, which alloys to choose for the proper effects. I couldn't hope to bull through it the way I had learning my runes. 
I couldn't earn enough working in Kilvin's shop to pay back Devi at the end of the month, let alone make enough for tuition, too. I probably would be, I admitted, but Kilvin made me look in a mirror. I gave him a tired smile. I look like hell. You look like beat-up hell, he corrected me matter-of-factly, then paused awkwardly. I'm glad you're not upset. Simon knocked as he pushed the door open. Guilt chased surprise off his face when he saw me sitting there. Aren't you supposed to be, um, in the fishery? He asked lamely. I laughed, and Simmons' relief was almost tangible. Willem moved a stack of paper off another chair, and Simmons slouched into it. All is forgiven, I said magnanimously. All I ask is this. Tell me everything you know about the Aeolian. Chapter 53 Slow Circles the Aeolian is where our long-sought player is waiting in the wings. I have not forgotten that she is what I am moving toward. If I seem to be caught in a slow circling of the subject, it is only appropriate, as she and I have always moved toward each other in slow circles. Luckily, Willem and Simon had both been to the Aeolian. Together, they told me what little I didn't already know. There were a lot of places you could go in Imre to listen to music. In fact, nearly every inn, tavern, and boarding house had some manner of musicians strumming, singing, or piping in the background. But the Aeolian was different. It hosted the best musicians in the city. If you knew good music from bad, you knew the Aeolian had the best. To get in the front door of the Aeolian cost you a whole copper jot. Once you were inside, you could stay as long as you wished and listen to as much music as you liked. But paying at the door did not give a musician the right to play at the Aeolian. A musician who wished to set foot upon the Aeolian stage had to pay for the privilege. One silver talent. That's right. Folk paid to play at the Aeolian, not the other way around. Why would anyone pay such an outrageous amount of money simply to play music? Well, some of those who gave their silver were simply the self-indulgent rich. To them, a talent was not a great price to set themselves on such proud display. But serious musicians paid too. If your performance impressed the audience and the owners enough, you were given a token, a tiny set of silver pipes that could be mounted on a pin or necklace. The talent pipes were recognized as clear marks of distinction at most sizable inns within two hundred miles of Imre. If you had your set of talent pipes, you were admitted to the Aeolian for free and could play whenever the fancy took you. The only responsibility the talent pipes carried was that of performance. If you had earned your pipes, you could be called upon to play. This was usually not a heavy burden, as the nobility who frequented the Aeolian usually gave money or gifts to performers who pleased them. It was the upper-class version of buying drinks for the fiddler. Some musicians played with little hope of actually gaining their pipes. They paid to play because you never knew who might be in the Aeolian that night listening. A good performance of a single song might not get you your pipes, but it might earn you a wealthy patron instead. A patron. You'll never guess what I heard, 
Simmons said one evening as we sat on our usual bench in the Pennant Square. We were alone, as Willem was off making eyes at a serving girl at Anchors. Students have been hearing all manner of odd things from Maine's at night. Really? I feigned disinterest. Simmons pressed on. Yes. Some say that it's the ghost of a student who got lost in the building and starved to death. He tapped the side of his nose with a finger like an old gaffer telling a story. They say he wanders the halls even to this day, never able to find his way outside. Ah. Other opinions suggest it's an angry spirit. They say it tortures animals, especially cats. That's the sound the students hear late at night. Tortured cat's guts. Quite a terrifying sound, I understand. I looked at him. He seemed almost ready to burst with laughing. Oh, let it out, I told him with mock severity. Go on. You deserve it for being so terribly clever, despite the fact that no one uses gut strings in this day and age. He chortled delightedly to himself. I picked up one of his sweet cakes and began to eat it, hoping to teach him a valuable lesson in humility. So you're still going at it? I nodded. Simon looked relieved. I thought you might have changed your plans. I hadn't seen you carrying your loot around lately. Not necessary, I explained. Now that I have time to practice, I don't have to worry about sneaking in a few minutes whenever I can grab them. A group of students passed by. One of them waved to Simon. When are you going to do it? This morning, I said. So soon? Sim asked. It was only two span ago that you were worried about being rusty. Has it all come back so quickly? Not all of it, I admitted. It'll take years for it all to come back. I shrugged and popped the last of the sweet cake into my mouth. But it's easy again. The music doesn't stop in my hands anymore. It just... I struggled to explain, then shrugged. I'm ready. Honestly, I would have liked another month's practice, another year's practice before gambling away an entire talent. But there was no time. The term was nearly over. I needed money to stave off my debt to Devi and pay my upcoming tuition. I couldn't wait any longer. You sure? Sim asked. I've heard people try for their talent that were really good. Early this term, an old man sang a song about about this woman whose husband had gone off to war. In the village smithy, I said. Whatever, Simmons said dismissively. What I'm saying is that he was really good. I laughed and cried and just hurt all over. He gave me an anxious look. But he didn't get his pipes. I covered my own anxiety with a smile. You still haven't heard me play, have you? You know damn well I haven't, he said crossly. I smiled. I had refused to play for Willem and Simmon while I was out of practice. Their opinions were nearly as important as those at the Aeolian. Well, you'll get your chance this morning, I teased. Will you come? Simmon nodded. Willem, too, barring earthquakes or rain of blood. I looked up at the sunset. I should go, I said, getting to my feet. Practice makes the master... Sim waved and I headed to the mess, where I sat down long enough to spoon up my beans and chew through a flat piece of tough gray meat. I took my small loaf of bread with me, drawing a few odd looks from the nearby students. I headed to my bunk and retrieved my loot from the trunk at the foot of the bed.
Then, given the rumors Sim had mentioned, I took one of the trickier ways onto the roof of mains, shimmying up a series of drain pipes in a sheltered box alley. I didn't want to draw any extra attention to my nighttime activities there. It was fully dark by the time I made it to the isolated courtyard with the apple tree. All the windows were dark. I looked down from the edge of the roof, seeing nothing but shadows. Ari? I called. Are you there? You're late, came the vaguely petulant reply. I'm sorry, I said. Do you want to come up tonight? A slight pause. No, come down. There's not much moon tonight, I said in my best encouraging tones. Are you sure you don't want to come up? I heard a rustle from the hedges below and then saw Ari scamper up the tree like a squirrel. She ran around the edge of the roof, then pulled up short a few dozen feet away. At my best guess, Ari was only a few years older than me, certainly no more than twenty. She dressed in tattered clothes that left her arms and legs bare, was shorter than me by almost a foot. She was thin. Part of this was simply her tiny frame, but there was more to it than that. Her cheeks were hollow and her bare arms waifishly narrow. Her long hair was so fine that it trailed her, floating in the air like a cloud. It had taken me a long while to draw her out of hiding. I'd suspected someone was listening to me practice from the courtyard, but it had been nearly two span before I caught a glimpse of her. Seeing that she was half-starved, I began bringing whatever food I could carry away from the mess and leaving it for her. Even so, it was another span before she had joined me on the roof as I practiced my loot. The last few days, she'd even started talking. I'd expected her to be sullen and suspicious, but nothing could be further from the truth. She was bright-eyed and enthusiastic. Though I couldn't help but be reminded of myself in Tarbian when I saw her, there was little real resemblance. Ari was scrupulously clean and full of joy. She didn't like the open sky or bright lights or people. I guessed she was some student who had gone cracked and run underground before she could be confined to Haven. I hadn't learned much about her, as she was still shy and skittish. When I'd asked her name, she bolted back underground and didn't return for days. So I picked a name for her, Ari, though in my heart I always thought of her as my little moon fay. Ari came a few steps closer, stopped, waited, then darted forward again. This she did several times until she stood in front of me. Standing still, her hair spread in the air around her like a halo. She held both her hands in front of her, just under her chin. She reached out and tugged my sleeve, then pulled her hand back. What did you bring me? she asked excitedly. I smiled. What did you bring me? I teased gently. She smiled and thrust her hand forward. Something gleamed in the moonlight. A key, she said proudly, pressing it on me. I took it. It had a pleasing weight in my hand. It's very nice, I said. What does it unlock? The moon, she said, her expression grave. That should be useful, I said, looking it over. That's what I thought, she said. That way, if there's a door in the moon, you can open it. She sat cross-legged on the roof and grinned up at me. 
Not that I would encourage that sort of reckless behavior. I squatted down and opened my loot case. I brought you some bread. I handed her the loaf of brown barley bread wrapped in a piece of cloth. And a bottle of water. This is very nice as well, she said graciously. The bottle seemed very large in her hands. What's in the water? she asked as she pulled out the cork and peered down into it. Flowers, I said. And the part of the moon that isn't in the sky tonight. I put that in there too. She looked back up. I already said the moon, she said with a hint of reproach. Just flowers then, and the shine off the back of a dragonfly. I wanted a piece of the moon, but blue dragonfly shine was as close as I could get. She tipped the bottle up and took a sip. It's lovely, she said, brushing back several strands of hair that were drifting in front of her face. Ari spread out the cloth and began to eat. She tore small pieces from the loaf and chewed them delicately, somehow making the whole process look genteel. I like white bread, she said conversationally between mouthfuls. Me too. I said as I lowered myself into a sitting position, when I can get it. She nodded and looked around at the starry night sky and the crescent moon. I like it when it's cloudy, too, but this is okay. It's cozy, like the underthing. Underthing? I asked. She was rarely this talkative. I live in the underthing, Ari said easily. It goes all over. Do you like it down there? Ari's eyes lit up. Holy God, yes, it's marvelous. You can just look forever. She turned to look at me. I have news, she said teasingly. What's that? I asked. She took another bite and finished chewing before she spoke. I went out last night. A sly smile. On top of things. Really? I said, not bothering to hide my surprise. How did you like it? It was lovely. I went looking around, she said, obviously pleased with herself. I saw Elodin. Master Elodin? I asked. She nodded. Was he on top of things too? She nodded again, chewing. Did he see you? Her smile burst out again, making her look closer to eight than eighteen. Nobody sees me. Besides, he was busy listening to the wind. She cupped her hands around her mouth and made a hooting noise. There was good wind for listening last night, she added confidentially. While I was trying to make sense of what she said, Ari finished the last of her bread and clapped her hands excitedly. Now play, she said breathlessly. Play, play! Grinning, I pulled my lute out of its case. I couldn't hope for a more enthusiastic audience than Ari. Chapter 54, A Place to Burn You look different today, Simmon observed. Willem grunted in agreement. I feel different, I admitted. Good, but different. The three of us were kicking up dust on the road to Imre. The day was warm and sunny, and we were in no particular hurry. You look... Calm, Simmon continued, brushing his hand through his hair. I wish I felt as calm as you look. I wish I felt as calm as I look, I mumbled. Simon refused to give up. You look more... solid, he grimaced. No, you look... tight. 
tight? Tension forced laughter out of me, leaving me more relaxed. How can someone look tight? Just tight, he shrugged, like a coiled spring. It's the way he's holding himself, Willem said, breaking his usual thoughtful silence. Standing straight, neck unbent, shoulders back. He gestured vaguely to illustrate his point. When he steps, his whole foot treads the ground, not just the ball as if he would run, or the heel as if he would hesitate. He steps solidly down, claiming the piece of ground for his own. I felt a momentary awkwardness as I tried to watch myself, always a futile thing to attempt. Simon gave him a sideways look. Someone's been spending time with Puppet, haven't they? Willem shrugged a vague agreement and threw a stone into the trees by the side of the road. Who is this puppet you two keep mentioning? I asked, partly to draw the attention away from myself. I'm about to die of terminal curiosity, you know. If anyone could, it would be you, Willem said. He spends most of his time in the archives, Sim said hesitantly, knowing that he was touching on a sore subject. It would be hard to introduce you since... You know. We came to Stonebridge, the ancient arch of gray stone that spanned the Omethi River between the university and Imre, over two hundred feet from one bank to another, and arching more than sixty feet at its peak. Stonebridge had more stories and legends surrounding it than any other university landmark. Spit for luck, Willem urged, as we began to climb one side and followed his own advice. Simmon followed suit, spitting over the side with a childlike exuberance. I almost said, luck has nothing to do with it. Master Arwell's words repeated sternly a thousand times in the Medica. I tasted them on the tip of my tongue for a minute, hesitated, then spat instead. The Aeolian lay at the heart of Imre, its front doors facing out onto the city's central cobblestone courtyard. There were benches, a few flowering trees, and a marble fountain misting water over a statue of a satyr chasing a group of half-clothed nymphs whose attempts at flight seemed token at best. Well-dressed people milled around, nearly a third carrying some sort of musical instrument or another. I counted at least seven lutes. As we approached the Aeolian, the doorman tugged at the front of a wide-brimmed hat and made a nodding bow. He was at least six and a half feet tall, deeply tanned, and muscular. That will be one jot, young master. He smiled as Willem handed over a coin. He turned to me next with the same sunny smile. Looking at the loot case I carried, he cocked an eyebrow at me. Good to see a new face. You know the rules? I nodded and handed him a jot. He turned to point inside. You'll see the bow. It was hard to miss fifty feet of winding mahogany that curved through the far end of the room. See where the far end turns toward the stage? I nodded. See him on the stool? If you decide to try for your pipes, he's the one you want to talk to. Name Stanchion. We both turned away from the room at the same time. I shrugged my lute higher onto my shoulder. Thank you. I paused, not knowing his name. Diok. He smiled again in his relaxed way. A sudden impulse seized me, and I held out my hand. Diok means 
to drink. Will you let me buy you one later? He looked at me for a long second before he laughed. It was an unrestrained, happy sound that came leaping straight from his chest. He shook my hand warmly. I just might at that. Diak released my hand, looking behind me. Simon, did you bring us this one? He brought me, actually. Simon seemed put out by my brief exchange with the doorman, but I couldn't guess why. I don't think anyone can really take him anywhere. He handed a jot to Diak. I'll believe that, Diak said. There's something about him I like. He's a little fay around the edges. I hope he plays for us tonight. I hope so, too, I said, and we moved inside. I looked around the Aeolian as casually as I could manage. A raised circular stage thrust out from the wall opposite the curving mahogany bar. Several spiraling stairways led to a second level that was much like a balcony. A smaller third level was visible above that, more like a high mezzanine circling the room. Stools and chairs ringed tables throughout around the room. Benches were recessed into niches in the walls. Sympathy lamps were mixed with candles, giving the room a natural light without fouling the air with smoke. Well, that was cleverly done. Simmons' voice was brittle. Merciful Taylor, warn me before you try any more stunts, will you? What? I asked. The thing with the doorman? Simon, you are jittery as a teenage whore. He was friendly. I liked him. What's the harm in offering him a drink? Diak owns this place, Simmons said sharply, and he absolutely hates it when musicians suck up to him. Two span ago, he threw someone out of here for trying to tip him. He gave me a long look. Actually threw him, almost far enough to make it into the fountain. Oh. I said, properly taken aback. I snuck a look at Diak as he bantered with someone at the door. I saw the thick muscles in his arm tense and relax as he made a gesture outside. Did he seem upset to you? I asked. No, he didn't. That's the damnedest thing. Willem approached us. If the two of you will stop fishwifing and come to table, I will buy the first drinks. Lynn? We made our way to the table Willem had picked out, not too far from where Stanchion sat at the bar. What do you want to drink? Willem asked as Simon and I sat down and I settled my loot case into the fourth chair. Cinnamon mead, Simon said without stopping to think. Girl, Willem said in a vaguely accusatory way and turned to me. Cider, I said. Soft cider. Two girls, he said and walked off to the bar. I nodded toward Stanchion. What about him? I asked Simon. I thought he owned the place. They both do. Stanchion handles the music end of it. Is there anything I should know about him? I asked, my near catastrophe with Diok having sharpened my anxiety. Simon shook his head. I hear he's cheerful enough in his own right, but I've never talked with him. Don't do anything stupid and everything should be fine. Thanks. I said sarcastically as I pushed my chair back from the table and stood. Stanchion had a medium build and was handsomely dressed in deep green and black. He had a round, bearded face and a slight paunch that was probably only noticeable because he was sitting, 
He smiled and motioned me forward with the hand that wasn't holding an impressively tall tankard. Hold there, he said cheerily. You have the hopeful look about you. Are you here to play for us tonight? He raised a speculative eyebrow. Now that I was closer, I noticed that Stanchion's hair was a deep, bashful red that hid if the light struck him the wrong way. I hope to, sir, I said, though I was planning to wait for a while. Oh, certainly. We never let anyone try their talent until the sun is down. He paused to take a drink, and as he turned his head, I saw a golden set of pipes hanging from his ear. Sighing, he wiped his mouth happily across the back of his sleeve. What do you play, then? Loot? I nodded. Have any idea what you'll use to woo us? That depends, sir. Has anyone played the lay of Sir Savian Tralliard lately? Stanchion raised an eyebrow and cleared his throat. Smoothing his beard with his free hand, he said, Well, no. Someone gave it a whirl a few months ago, but he bit off more than he could swallow whole. Missed a couple fingerings and fell apart. He shook his head. I simply said, no, not lately. He took another drink from his tankard and swallowed thoughtfully before he spoke again. Most people find that a song of more moderate difficulty allows them to showcase their talent, he said carefully. I sensed his unspoken advice and was not offended. Sir Savian is the most difficult song I had ever heard. My father had been the only one in the troupe with the skill to perform it, and I had only heard him do it perhaps four or five times in front of an audience. It was only about fifteen minutes long, but those fifteen minutes required quick, precise fingering that, if done properly, would set two voices singing out of the lute at once, both a melody and a harmony. That was tricky, but nothing any skilled lutist couldn't accomplish. However, Sir Savian was a ballad, and the vocal part was a counter-melody that ran against the timing of the lute. Difficult. If the song was being done properly, with both a man and a woman alternating the verses, the song was further complicated by the female's counter-harmony in the refrains. If it is done well, it is enough to cut a heart. Unfortunately, few musicians could perform calmly in the center of such a storm of song. Stanchion drank off another solid swallow from his tankard and wiped his beard on his sleeve. You singing alone? he asked, seeming a bit excited in spite of his half-spoken warning. Or have you brought someone to sing opposite you? Is one of the boys you came with a castrati? I fought down laughter at the thought of Willem as a soprano and shook my head. I don't have any friends that can sing it. I was going to double the third refrain to give someone the chance to come in as Aloine. Trooper style, eh? He gave me a serious look. Son, it's really not my place to say this, but do you really want to try for your pipes with someone you've never even practiced with? It reassured me that he realized how hard it was going to be. How many pipes will be here tonight, roughly? He thought briefly. Roughly? Eight? Maybe a dozen? So in all likelihood, there will be at least three women who have earned their talent. Stanchion nodded, watching me curiously. Well, I said slowly, if what everyone has told me is true, 
If only real excellence can win the pipes, then one of those women will know Eloine's part. Stanchion took another long, slow drink, watching me over the top of his tankard. When he finally set it down, he forgot to wipe his beard. You're a proud one, aren't you? he said frankly. I looked around the room. Isn't this the Aeolian? I heard that this is where pride pays silver and plays golden. I like that, Stanchion said almost to himself. Plays golden. He slammed his tanker down onto the bar, causing a small geyser of something frothy to erupt from the top. Damn it, boy! I hope you're as good as you seem to think you are. I could use someone else around here with Ilian's fire. He ran a hand through his own red hair to clarify his double meaning. I hope this place is as good as everyone seems to think it is, I said earnestly. I need a place to burn. He didn't throw you out, Simon quipped as I returned to the table, so I'm guessing it didn't go as badly as it could have. I think it went well, I said distractedly, but I'm not sure. How can you not know? Simon objected. I saw him laugh. That must mean something good. Not necessarily, Willem said. I'm trying to remember everything I said to him, I admitted. Sometimes my mouth just starts talking and it takes my mind a little bit to catch up. This happens often, does it? asked Willem with one of his rare quiet smiles. Their banter began to relax me. More and more often, I confessed, grinning. We drank and joked about small things, rumors of the masters and the rare female students who caught our attention. We talked about who we liked in the university, but more time was spent mulling over who we didn't like and why and what we would do about it given the chance. Such is human nature. So time passed and the Aeolians slowly filled. Simmon gave in to Willem's taunting and began to drink Scutton, a powerful black wine from the foothills of the Shalda Mountains, more commonly called Cuttail. Simmon showed the effects almost immediately, laughing louder, grinning wider, and fidgeting in his seat. Willem remained his same taciturn self. I bought the next round of drinks, making it large mugs of straight cider for each of us. I responded to Willem's scowl by telling him that if I made my talent tonight, I would float him home in Cuttail but if either of them got drunk on me before then, I would personally thrash them and drop them in the river. They settled down an appreciable amount and began inventing obscene verses to Tinker Tanner. I left them to it, retreating into my own thoughts. At the forefront of my mind was the fact that Stanchion's unspoken advice might be worth listening to. I tried to think of other songs I could perform that were difficult enough to show my skill, but easy enough to allow me room for artistry. Simmons' voice drew me back to the here and now. Come on, you're good at rhymes, he urged me. I replayed the last bit of their conversation that I'd been half listening to. Try in the Talon's cassock, I suggested disinterestedly. I was too nervous to bother explaining that one of my father's vices had been his propensity for dirty limericks. They chortled delightedly to themselves while I tried to come up with a different song to sing. I hadn't had much luck when Willem distracted me again. What? I demanded angrily. Then I saw the flat look in Willem's eyes that he only gets when he sees something he really doesn't like. What? 
I repeated more reasonably this time. Someone we all know and love, he said darkly, nodding in the direction of the door. I couldn't see anyone I recognized. The Aeolian was nearly full, and over a hundred people milled about on the ground floor alone. I saw through the open door that night had settled outside. His back is to us. He's working his oily charm on a lovely young lady who must not know him. To the right of the round gentleman in red. Willem directed my attention. Son of a bitch, I said, too stunned for proper profanity. I've always figured him for porcine parentage myself, Willem said dryly. Simon looked around, blinking owlishly. What? Who's here? Ambrose. God's balls, Simon said and hunched over the tabletop. That's all I need. Haven't you two made nice yet? I'm willing to leave him be, I protested, but every time he sees me he can't help but make another jab in my direction. It takes two to argue, Simmons said. Like hell, I retorted. I don't care whose son he is. I won't go belly up like some timid pup. If he's fool enough to take a poke at me, I'll snap the finger clean off that does the poking. I took a breath to calm myself and tried to sound rational. Eventually, he'll learn to leave me well enough alone. You could just ignore him, Simmons said, sounding surprisingly sober. Just don't rise to his baiting and he'll tire of it soon enough. No, I said seriously, looking Simmon in the eye. No, he won't. I liked Simmon, but he was terribly innocent at times. Once he thinks I'm weak, he'll be on me twice as thick as the day before. I know his type. Here he comes, Willem observed, looking casually away. Ambrose saw me before he made it to our side of the room. Our eyes met, and it was obvious that he hadn't expected to see me there. He said something to one of his ever-present group of bootlickers, and they moved off through the crowd in a different direction to claim a table. His eyes moved from me to Willem to Simon to my loot and back to me. Then he turned and walked to the table his friends had claimed. He looked in my direction before he took his seat. I found it unnerving that he didn't smile. He had always smiled at me before, an over-sad pantomime smile with mockery in his eyes. Then I saw something that unnerved me even more. He was carrying a sturdy squared case. Ambrose plays liar? I demanded of the world in general. Willem shrugged. Simmon looked uncomfortable. I thought you knew, he said weakly. You've seen him here before? I asked. Sim nodded. Did he play? Recited, actually. Poetry. He recited and kind of plucked at the lyre. Simon looked like a rabbit about to run. Does he have his talent? I said darkly. I decided then that if Ambrose was a member of this group, I didn't want anything to do with it. No, Simon squeaked. He tried for it, but... He trailed off, looking a little wild around the eyes. Willem laid a hand on my arm and made a calming gesture. I took a deep breath, closed my eyes, and tried to relax. Slowly, I realized that none of this mattered. At most, it simply raised the stakes for tonight. Ambrose wouldn't be able to do anything to disrupt my playing. He would be forced to watch and listen.
listen to me playing the lay of Sir Savian Treliard, because now there was no question as to what I would be performing tonight. The evening's entertainment was led by one of the talented musicians from the crowd. He had a lute and showed that he could play it as well as any Adimaru. His second song was even better, one that I'd never heard before. There was a gap of about ten minutes before another talented musician was called onto the stage to sing. This man had a set of reed pipes and played them better than anyone I had ever heard. He followed by singing a haunting eulogy in a minor key. No instrument, just his high, clear voice that rose and flowed like the pipes he had played before. I was pleased to find the skill of the talented musicians to be everything it was rumored to be. But my anxiety increased a proportionate amount. Excellence is excellence's only companion. Had I not already decided to play the lay of Sir Savian Treliard for purely spiteful reasons, these performances would have convinced me. There followed another period of five or ten minutes. I realized that Stanchion was deliberately spacing things out to give the audience a chance to move about and make noise between the songs. The man knew his business. I wondered if he had ever been a trooper. Then we had our first trial of the night. A bearded man of thirty years or so was brought onto the stage by Stanchion and introduced to the audience. He played flute, played it well. He played two shorter songs that I knew, and a third I didn't. He played for perhaps twenty minutes in all, only making one small mistake that I could hear. After the applause, the flutist remained on stage while Stanchion circulated in the crowd, gathering opinions. A serving boy brought the flutist a glass of water. Eventually, Stanchion came back onto the stage. The room was quiet as the owner drew close and solemnly shook the man's hand. The musician's expression fell, but he managed a sickly smile and a nod to the audience. Stanchion escorted him off the stage and bought something that came in a tall tankard. The next to try her talent was a young woman, richly dressed with golden hair. After Stanchion introduced her, she sang an aria in a voice so clear and pure that I forgot my anxiety for a while and was ensnared by her song. For a few blessed moments I forgot myself and could do nothing but listen. Too soon it was over, leaving me with a tender feeling in my chest and a vague prickling in my eyes. Simmons sniffled a little and rubbed self-consciously at his face. Then she sang a second song while accompanying herself on a half-harp. I watched her intently, and I will admit that it was not entirely for her musical ability. She had hair like ripe wheat. I could see the clear blue of her eyes from where I sat some thirty feet away. She had smooth arms and small, delicate hands that were quick against the strings, and the way she held the harp between her legs made me think of, well, the things that every boy of fifteen thinks about incessantly. Her voice was as lovely as before, enough to set a heart aching. Unfortunately, her playing could not match it. She struck wrong notes halfway through her second song, faltered, then recovered before she made it to the end of her performance. There was a longer pause as Stanchion circulated this time. He milled through the three levels of the Aeolian, talking with everyone, young and old, musician and not. As I watched, Ambrose caught the eye of the woman on stage and gave her one of his smiles that seemed so greasy to me and so charming to women. Then, looking away from her, 
His gaze wandered to my table and our eyes met. His smile faded, and for a long moment we simply watched each other, expressionless. Neither of us smiled mockingly or mouthed small insulting nothings to each other. Nevertheless, all our smoldering enmity was renewed in those few minutes. I cannot say with certainty which of us looked away first. After nearly fifteen minutes of gathering opinions, Stanchion mounted the stage again. He approached the golden-haired woman and took her hand as he had the previous musicians. The woman's face fell in much the same way his had. Stanchion led her from the stage and bought her what I guessed was the consolation tankard. Closely on the heels of this failure was another talented musician who played fiddle, excellent as the two before him. Then an older man was brought onto stage by Stanchion as if he were trying for his talent. However, the applause that greeted him seemed to imply that he was as popular as any of the talented musicians who played before him. I nudged Simon. Who's this? I asked as the gray-bearded man tuned his lyre. Threp, Simon whispered back at me. Count Threp, actually. He plays here all the time, has for years. Great patron of the arts. He stopped trying for his pipes years ago. Now he just plays. Everyone loves him. Threat began to play, and I could see immediately why he had never earned his pipes. His voice cracked and wavered as he plucked his lyre. His rhythm varied erratically, and it was hard to tell if he struck a wrong note. The song was obviously of his own devising, a rather candid revelation about the personal habits of a local nobleman. But in spite of its lack of classic artistic merit, I found myself laughing along with the rest of the crowd. When he was done, everyone applauded thunderously, some people pounding on the tables or stamping as well. Stanchion went directly onto the stage and shook the Count's hand, but Threp didn't seem disappointed in the least. Stanchion pounded him enthusiastically on the back as he led him down to the bar. It was time. I stood and gathered up my loot. Willem clapped my arm and Simon grinned at me, trying not to look almost sick with friendly worry. I nodded silently to each of them as I walked over to Stanchion's vacant seat at the end of the bar where it curved toward the stage. I fingered the silver talent in my pocket, thick and heavy. Some irrational part of me wanted to clutch it, hoard it for later, but I knew that in a few more days a single talent wouldn't do me a bit of good. With the set of talent pipes I could support myself playing at local inns. If I was lucky enough to attract the attention of a patron, I could earn enough to square my debt to Devi and pay my tuition as well. It was a gamble I had to take. Stanchion came ambling back to his spot at the bar. I'll go next, sir, if it's all right with you. I hoped I didn't look as nervous as I felt. My grip on the loot case was slippery from my sweating palms. He smiled at me and nodded. You've got a good eye for a crowd, boy. This one is ripe for a sad song. Still planning on doing Savian? I nodded. He sat down and took a drink. Well, then, let's just give them a couple of minutes to simmer and get their talking over with. I nodded and leaned against the bar. I took the time to fret uselessly about things I had no control over. One of the pegs on my lute was loose, and I didn't have the money to fix it. There had not been any talented women on the stage yet. I felt a twinge of unease at the thought of this being the odd night where the only talented musicians at the Aeolian were men, 
or women who didn't know Aloween's part. It seemed only a short time before Stanchion stood and raised a questioning eyebrow at me. I nodded and picked up my loot case. It suddenly looked terribly shabby to me. Together, we walked up the stairs. As soon as my foot touched the stage, the room hushed to a murmur. At the same time, my nervousness left me, burned away by the attention of the crowd. It has always been that way with me. Off stage, I worry and sweat. On stage, I am as calm as a windless winter night. Stanchion bade everyone consider me as a candidate for my talent. His words had a soothing ritual feel. When he gestured to me, there was no familiar applause, only an expectant silence. In a flash, I saw myself as the audience must see me. Not finely dressed as the others had been, in fact, only one step from being ragged. Young, almost a child, I could feel their curiosity drawing them closer to me. I let it build, taking my time as I unclasped my battered second-hand loot case and removed my battered second-hand loot. I felt their attention sharpen at the homely sight of it. I struck a few quiet chords, then touched the pegs, tuning it ever so slightly. I fingered a few more light chords, testing, listened, and nodded to myself. The lights shining onto the stage made the rest of the room dim from where I sat. Looking out, I saw what seemed to be a thousand eyes, Simon and Willem, stanchion by the bar, Diok by the door. I felt a vague flutter in my stomach as I saw Ambrose watching me with all the menace of a smoldering coal. I looked away from him to see a bearded man in red, Count Threp, an old couple holding hands, a lovely dark-eyed girl, my audience. I smiled at them. The smile drew them closer still, and I sang, Still, sit, for though you listen long, long would you wait without the hope of song, so sweet as this, as Ilion himself sat down an age ago. Master work of a master's life, of Savian and Aloine, the woman he would take to wife. I let the wave of whisper pass through the crowd. Those who knew the song made soft exclamation to themselves, while those who didn't asked their neighbors what the stir was about. I raised my hands to the strings and drew their attention back to me. The room stilled, and I began to play. The music came easily out of me, my lute like a second voice. I flicked my fingers and the lute made a third voice as well. I sang in the proud, powerful tones of Savian Treliard, greatest of the Amir. The audience moved under the music like grass against the wind. I sang as Sir Savian, and I felt the audience begin to love and fear me. I was so used to practicing the song alone that I almost forgot to double the third refrain. But I remembered at the last moment in a flash of cold sweat. This time, as I sang it, I looked out into the audience, hoping at the end I would hear a voice answering my own. I reached the end of the refrain before Aloine's first stanza. I struck the first chord hard and waited as the sound of it began to fade without drawing a voice from the audience. I looked calmly out to them, waiting. Every second a greater relief vied with a greater disappointment inside me. Then a voice drifted onto the stage, 
gentle as a brushing feather, singing. Savian, how could you know? It was the time for you to come to me. Savian, do you remember the days we squandered pleasantly? How well, then, have you carried what have tarried in my heart and memory? She sang as Aloine, I as Savian. On the refrains her voice spun, twinning and mixing with my own. Part of me wanted to search the audience for her, to find the face of the woman I was singing with. I tried once, but my fingers faltered as I searched for the face that could fit with the cool moonlight voice that answered mine. Distracted, I touched a wrong note and there was a burr in the music. A small mistake. I set my teeth and concentrated on my playing. I pushed my curiosity aside and bowed my head to watch my fingers, careful to keep them from slipping on the strings. And we sang. Her voice like burning silver, my voice an echoing answer. Savian sang solid, powerful lines, like branches of a rock-old oak. All the while, Aloine was like a nightingale, moving in darting circles around the proud limbs of it. I was only dimly aware of the audience now, dimly aware of the sweat on my body. I was so deeply in the music that I couldn't have told you where it stopped and my blood began. But it did stop. Two verses from the end of the song, the end came. I struck the beginning chord of Savian's verse, and I heard a piercing sound that pulled me out of the music like a fish dragged from deep water. A string broke. High on the neck of the lute, it snapped, and the tension lashed it across the back of my hand, drawing a thin, bright line of blood. I stared at it numbly. It should not have broken. None of my strings were worn badly enough to break. But it had. And as the last notes of the music faded into silence, I felt the audience begin to stir. They began to rouse themselves from the waking dream I had woven for them out of the strands of song. In the silence, I felt it all unraveling, the audience waking with the dream unfinished, all my work ruined, wasted, and all the while burning inside me was the song, the song, the song. Without knowing what I did, I set my fingers back to the strings and fell deep into myself, into years before, when my hands had calluses like stones and my music had come as easily as breathing. Back to the time I played to make the sound of wind turning a leaf on a lute with six strings. I began to play, slowly, then with greater speed as my hands remembered. I gathered the fraying strands of song and wove them carefully back to what they had been a moment earlier. It was not perfect. No song as complex as Sir Savian can be played perfectly on six strings instead of seven. But it was whole, and as I played the audience sighed, stirred, and slowly fell back under the spell that I had made for them. I hardly knew they were there, and after a minute I forgot them entirely. My hands danced, then ran, then blurred across the strings as I fought to keep the lute's two voices singing with my own. Then, even as I watched them, I forgot them. I forgot everything except finishing the song. The refrain came, and Aloine sang again. To me, she was not a person, or even a voice. She was just a part of the song that was burning out of me. And then it was done. Raising my head to look at the room was like breaking the surface of the water for air. 
I came back into myself, found my hand bleeding and my body covered in sweat. Then the ending of the song struck me like a fist in my chest, as it always does, no matter where or when I listen to it. I buried my face in my hands and wept. Not for a broken lute string and the chance of failure. Not for blood shed and a wounded hand. I did not even cry for the boy who had learned to play a lute with six strings in the forest years ago. I cried for Sir Savian and Aelowen, for love lost and found and lost again, at cruel fate and man's folly. And so, for a while, I was lost in grief and knew nothing. Chapter 55 Flame and Thunder I held all of my mourning for Savian and Aelowen to a few moments. Knowing I was still on display, I gathered myself and straightened in my chair to look out at my audience, my silent audience. Music sounds different to the one who plays it. It is the musician's curse. Even as I sat, the ending I had improvised was fading from my memory. Then came doubt. What if it hadn't been as whole as it had seemed? What if my ending hadn't carried the terrible tragedy of the song to anyone but myself? What if my tears seemed to be nothing more than a child's embarrassing reaction to his own failure? Then, waiting, I heard the silence pouring from them. The audience held themselves quiet, tense and tight, as if the song had burned them worse than flame. Each person held their wounded selves closely, clutching their pain as if it were a precious thing. Then there was a murmur of sobs released and sobs escaping, a sigh of tears, a whisper of bodies slowly becoming no longer still. Then the applause, a roar like leaping flame, like thunder after lightning. Chapter 56 Patrons, Maids, and Metheglin. I restrung my lute. It was a fair distraction while Stanchion gathered opinions from the crowd. My hands went through the routine motion of stripping the broken string away while I fretted to myself. Now that the applause had died, my doubts had come to plague me again. Was one song enough to prove my skill? What if the audience's reaction had been due to the power of the song rather than my playing of it? What of my improvised ending? Perhaps the song had only seemed whole to me. As I finished removing the broken string, I gave it an idle look and all my thoughts fell to a jumble at my feet. It wasn't worn or flawed as I had thought it would be. The broken end was clean, as if it had been cut with a knife or snipped with a pair of scissors. For a while I simply stared at it dumbly, my lute had been tampered with? Impossible. It was never out of my sight. Besides, I had checked the strings before I left the university and again before I had come on stage. Then how? I was running the thought in circles in my head when I noticed the crowd quieting. I looked up in time to see Stanchion take the last step onto the stage. I hurriedly got to my feet to face him. His expression was pleasant, but otherwise unreadable. My stomach tied a knot as he walked toward me, 
Then it fell as he held out his hand the same way he had held it out for the other two musicians who had been found wanting. I forced my best smile onto my face and reached to take his hand. I was my father's son and a trooper. I would take my refusal with the high dignity of the Edimaru. The earth would crack and swallow this glittering, self-important place before I would show a trace of despair. And somewhere in the watching audience was Ambrose. The earth would have to swallow the Aeolian, Imre, and the whole Senthesee before I gave him a grain of satisfaction over this. So I smiled brightly and took Stanchion's hand in my own. As I shook it, something hard pressed into my palm. Looking down, I saw a glimmer of silver. My talent pipes. My expression must have been a delight to watch. I looked back up at Stanchion. His eyes danced and he winked at me. I turned and held my pipes aloft for everyone to see. The Aeolian roared again. This time, it roared a welcome. You have to promise me, a red-eyed Simmons said seriously, that you will never play that song again without warning me first. Ever. Was it that bad? I smiled giddily at him. No! Simmon almost cried out. It's... I've never... He struggled wordless for a moment, then bowed his head and began to cry hopelessly into his hands. Willem put a protective arm around Simmon, who leaned unashamedly against his shoulder. Our Simmon has a tender heart, he said gently. I imagine he meant to say he liked it very much. I noticed that Willem's eyes were red around the edges, too. I lay a hand on Simmons' back. It hit me hard the first time I heard it, too, I told him honestly. My parents performed it during the midwinter pageantry when I was nine, and I was a wreck for two hours afterward. They had to cut my part from the swineherd and the nightingale because I wasn't in any shape to act. Simmon nodded and made a gesture that seemed to imply that he was fine, but that he didn't expect to be able to talk any time soon, and that I should just carry along with whatever I was doing. I looked back at Willem. I forgot that it hits some people this way, I said lamely. I recommend scutton, Willem said bluntly. Cut tail if you insist on the vulgar but I seem to remember you saying that you would float us home tonight if you got your pipes, which may be unfortunate as I happen to be wearing my lead drinking shoes. I heard Stanchion chuckle behind me. These must be the two non-castrati friends, eh? Simon was surprised enough at being called a non-castrati to collect himself slightly, rubbing his nose on his sleeve. Willem, Simon, this is Stanchion. Simon nodded. Willem gave a slight stiff bow. Stanchion, could you help us to the bar? I've promised to buy them a drink. Ss, Willem said. Drinks. Sorry, drinks. I stressed the plural. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. Ah, Stanchion said with a grin. Patrons, I understand completely. The victory tankard turned out to be the same as the consolation one. It was ready for me when Stanchion finally managed to get us through the throng of people to our new seats at the bar. He even insisted on buying Scutton for Simon and Willem, 
saying that patrons have some claim to the spoils of victory as well. I thanked him earnestly from the bottom of my rapidly thinning purse. While we were waiting for their drinks to come, I tried to peer curiously into my tankard, and found that doing so while it was sitting on the bar would require me to stand on my stool. Metheglen, Stanchion informed me. Try it and you can thank me later. Where I am from, they say a man will come back from the dead to get a drink of it. I tipped an imaginary hat to him. At your service. Yours and your families, he replied politely. I took a drink from the tall tankard to give myself a chance to collect my wits, and something wonderful happened in my mouth. Cool spring honey, clove, cardamom, cinnamon, pressed grape, burnt apple, sweet pear, and clear well water. That is all I have to say of Metheglin. If you haven't tried it, then I'm sorry I cannot describe it properly. If you have, you don't need me to remind you what it is like. I was relieved to see the cut tail had come in moderately sized glasses, with one for stanchion, too. If my friends had received tankards of the black wine, I would have needed a wheelbarrow to get them back to the other side of the river. Dusavian, Willem toasted. Here, here, stanchion said, lifting his own glass. Savian, Simon managed, his voice sounding like a stifled sob. And Aloween. I said, and maneuvered my great tankard to touch glasses with them. Stanchion drank off his scutton with a nonchalance that made my eyes water. So, he said, before I leave you to the adulation of your peers, I have to ask, where did you learn to do that? Play missing a string, I mean. I thought for a moment. Do you want the short or the long of it? I'll take the short for now. I smiled. Well, in that case, it's just something I picked up. I made a casual gesture as if tossing something away. A remnant of my misspent youth. Stanchion gave me a long look, his expression amused. I suppose I deserve that. I'll take the long version next time. He took a deep breath and looked around the room. His golden earrings swung and caught the light. I'm off to mix the crowd. I'll keep them from coming at you all at once. I grinned relief. Thank you, sir. He shook his head and made a peremptory motion to someone behind the bar who quickly fetched him his tankard. Earlier tonight, sir, was proper and good. But now, it's stanchion. He glanced back in my direction, and I smiled and nodded. And I should call you... Quoth, I said. Just quoth. Just quoth. Willem toasted behind me. And Aloween, Simon added, and began to cry softly into the crook of his arm. Count Threp was one of the first to come to me. He looked shorter up close, and older, but he was bright-eyed and laughing as he talked about my song. Then it broke, he said, gesturing wildly, and all I could think was, not now, not before the ending but I saw the blood on your hand and my stomach knotted up. You looked up at us, then down at the strings, and it got quieter and quieter. Then you put your hands back on the lute, and all I could think was, there's a brave boy, too brave. He doesn't know he can't save the end of a broken song with a broken lute, but you did! He laughed as if I'd played a joke on the world and danced a quick jig step. 
Simon, who had stopped crying and was on his way to becoming well-buttered, laughed along with the Count. Willem didn't seem to know what to make of the man and watched him with serious eyes. You must play at my house some day, Threp said, then quickly held up a hand. We won't talk of that now, and I won't take up any more of your evening, he smiled. But before I go, I need to ask you one last question. How many years did Savian spend with the Emir? I didn't have to think about it. Six. Three years proving himself, three years training. Does six strike you as a good number? I didn't know what he was getting at. Six isn't exactly a lucky number, I hedged. If I were looking for a good number, I'd have to go up to seven, I shrugged, or down to three. Threp considered this, tapping his chin. You're right. But six years with the Emir means he came back to Eloine on the seventh year. He dug into a pocket and brought out a handful of coins of at least three different currencies. He sorted seven talents out of the mess and pushed them into my surprised hand. My lord, I stammered, I cannot take your money. It wasn't the money itself that surprised me, but the amount. Threp looked confused. Why ever not? I gaped a little bit, and for a rare moment I was at a loss for words. Threp chuckled and closed my hand around the coins. It's not a reward for playing. Well, it is that, but it's more of an incentive for you to keep practicing. Keep getting better. It's for the sake of the music. He shrugged. You see, a laurel needs rain to grow. I can't do much about that. But I can keep that rain off a few musicians' heads, can't I? A sly smile wound its way onto his face. So God will tend the laurels and keep them wet, and I will tend the players and keep them dry, and wiser minds than mine will decide when to bring the two together. I was silent for a moment. I think you might be wiser than you give yourself credit for. Well, he said, trying not to look pleased. Well, don't let it get around, or people will start expecting great things from me. He turned and was quickly swallowed by the crowd. I slid the seven talents into my pocket and felt a great weight lift from my shoulders. It was like a stay of execution, perhaps literally, as I had no idea how Devi might have encouraged me to pay my debt. I drew my first carefree breath in two months. It felt good. After Threp left, one of the talented musicians came to offer his compliments. After him, it was a sealedish moneylender who shook my hand and offered to buy me a drink. Then there was a minor nobleman, another musician, and a pretty young lady that I thought might be my Eloine until I heard her voice. She was the daughter of a local moneylender, and we talked of small things, briefly, before she moved on. I remembered my manners almost too late and kissed her hand before she left. They all blurred together after a while. One by one they came to give me their regards, compliments, handshakes, advice, envy, and admiration. Though Stanchion was true to his word and managed to keep them all from coming at me in a mass, it wasn't long before I began having trouble telling one from another. The Metheglin wasn't helping matters either. I'm not sure how long it was before I thought to go look for Ambrose, 
After scanning the room, I nudged Simmon with an elbow until he looked up from the game he and Willem were playing with shims. Where's our best friend? I asked. Simmon gave me a blank look, and I realized that he was too far into his cups to catch sarcasm. Ambrose, I clarified. Where's Ambrose? Scoffered off, Willem announced with an edge of bellicosity. As soon as you finished playing, before you'd even got your pipes. He knew. He knew, Simmons sing song delightedly. He knew you would get them and couldn't bear to watch. Looked bad when he left, Willem said with a quiet malice. Pale and shaking. Like he'd found out someone had been lanting in his drinks all night. Maybe someone was, Simmons said with uncharacteristic viciousness. I would. Shaking? I asked. Willem nodded. Trembling. Like someone had gut-punched him. Linton was giving him an arm to lean on when he left. The symptoms sounded familiar. Like binder's chills. A suspicion began to form. I pictured Ambrose listening to me glide through the most beautiful song he'd ever heard and realizing I'm about to win my pipes. He wouldn't do anything obvious, but perhaps he could find a loose thread or a long splinter from the table. Either one would provide only the most tenuous sympathetic link to my loot string, one percent at best, perhaps only a tenth of that. I imagined Ambrose drawing on his own body heat, concentrating as the chill slowly worked into his arms and legs. I pictured him, trembling, his breath growing labored until finally the string breaks, and I finish the song in spite of him. I grinned at the thought, pure speculation, of course, but something had certainly broken my lute string, and I didn't doubt for a second that Ambrose would try something of the sort. I focused back in on Simon. Eat up to him and say, No hard feelings about that time in the crucible when you mixed my salts and I was nearly blind for a day. No, no, really, drink up! Ha! Simon laughed, lost in his own vengeful fantasy. The flood of well-wishers slowed somewhat. A fellow lutist, the talented piper I'd seen on stage, a local merchant, a heavily perfumed gentleman with long, oiled hair and a vintic accent clapped me on the back and gave me a purse of money for new strings. I didn't like him. I kept the purse. Why does everyone keep going on about that? Willem asked me. About what? Half the people that come over to shake your hand bubble about how beautiful the song was. The other half hardly mention the song at all. And all they talk about is how you played with a broken string. It's like they didn't hardly hear the song at all. The first half don't know anything about music, Simmons said. Only people who take their music seriously can really appreciate what our little Elir here did tonight. Willem grunted thoughtfully. It's hard, then, what you did? I've never seen anyone play Squirrel in the Thatch without a full set of strings, Simmon told him. Well, he said, you made it look easy. Since you have come to your sense in pushing aside that yellish fruit drink, will you let me buy you a round of fine dark scutton, drink of the kings of Kildom? 
I know a compliment when I hear it, but I was reluctant to accept as I was just beginning to feel clear-headed again. Luckily, I was saved from having to make an excuse by Maria coming to pay her respects. She was the lovely golden-haired harper who had tried for her talent and failed. I thought for a moment that she might be the voice of my Aloine, but after a moment's listening to her, I realized it couldn't be. She was pretty, though, even prettier than she had seemed on stage, as is not always the case. Talking, I found she was the daughter of one of Imre's councilmen. Against the tumble of her deep golden hair, the soft blue of her gown was a reflection of the deep blue of her eyes. Lovely as she was, I couldn't give her the concentration she deserved. I itched to be away from the bar to find the voice that had sung Aloine with me. We talked a while, smiled, and parted with kind words and promises to speak again. She disappeared back into the crowd, a wonderful collection of gently moving curves. What was that shameful display? Willem demanded after she had gone. What? I asked. What? He mocked my tone. Can you even pretend to be that thick? If a girl as fair as that looked at me with one eye the way she looked at you with two, we'd have a room by now to say it carefully. She was friendly, I protested, and we were talking. She asked me if I would show her some harp fingerings, but it's been a long time since I played harp. It'll be a lot longer if you keep missing passes like that. Willem said frankly. She was doing everything but taking down another button for you. Sim leaned over and lay his hand on my shoulder, the very picture of the concerned friend. Quoth, I've been meaning to talk to you about this very problem. If you honestly couldn't tell that she was interested in you, you might want to admit the possibility that you are impossibly thick when it comes to women. You may want to consider the priesthood. The both of you are drunk, I said to cover my flush. Did you happen to notice from our conversation that she's a councilman's daughter? Did you notice, Will replied in the same tone, how she looked at you? I knew I was woefully inexperienced with women, but I didn't have to admit to it, so I waved his comment away and got down off my stool. Somehow I doubt that a quick romp behind the bar was what she had in mind. I took a drink of water and straightened my cloak. Now, I must go find my Aloine and offer her my earnest thanks. How do I look? What does it matter? Willem asked. Simmon touched Willem's elbow. Don't you see? He's after more dangerous game than some low-bodiced councilman's daughter. I turned from them with a disgusted gesture and headed off into the crowded room. I didn't really have any idea how I would find her. Some foolish romantic part of me thought I would know her when I saw her. If she were half as radiant as her voice, she would shine like a candle in a dark room. But as I thought these things, the wiser part of me was whispering in my other ear. Do not hope, it said. Do not dare hold hope that any woman could burn as brightly as the voice that sang the part of Aloine. And while this voice was not comforting, I knew it to be wise. I had learned to listen to it on the streets of Tarbian, where it had kept me alive. I wandered through the first level of the Aeolian, searching without knowing who I was looking for. Occasionally, people would smile or wave. After five minutes, I had seen all the faces there were to see and moved to the second level. 
This was actually a converted balcony, but instead of tiers of seats, there were rising ranks of tables that looked onto the lower level. As I wended my way through the tables looking for my Aloine, my wiser half kept murmuring in my ear, Do not hope. All you will earn is disappointment. She will not be as beautiful as you imagine, and then you will despair. As I finished searching the second level, a new fear began to rise in me. She might have left while I was sitting at the bar, drinking in metheglin and praise. I should have gone to her straight away, fallen to one knee and thanked her with my whole heart. What if she was gone? What if no one knew who she was or where she had gone? A nervousness settled into the pit of my stomach as I took the stairs to the highest level of the Aeolian. Now look what your hope has gotten you, the voice said. She is gone and all you have is a bright, foolish imagining to torment yourself with. The last level was the smallest of the three, hardly more than a thin crescent that hugged three walls, high above the stage. Here, the tables and benches were more widely spaced and sparsely populated. I noticed that the inhabitants of this level were mostly couples, and I felt something of a voyeur as I passed from table to table. Trying to appear casual, I looked at the faces of those who sat talking and drinking. I grew more nervous the closer I came to the last table. It was impossible for me to do so casually, as it was in a corner. The couple sitting there, one light-haired and one dark, had their backs to me. As I approached, the light-haired one laughed, and I caught a glimpse of a proud, fine-featured face, a man. I turned my attention to the woman with the long, dark hair. My last hope. I knew she would be my Aloine. Coming round the corner of the table, I saw her face, or rather, his face. They were both men. My Aloine had left. I had lost her, and with that knowledge I felt as if my heart had been tipped from its resting place in my chest to topple and fall somewhere deep inside me near my feet. They looked up, and the fair-haired one smiled at me. Look, Threa, young Sixstring has come to offer us his respects. He eyed me up and down. You're a fair one. Would you like to join us for a drink? No, I murmured, embarrassed. I was just looking for someone. Well, you found someone, he said easily, touching my arm. My name is Fallon, and this is Threa. Come and have a drink. I promise to keep Threa here from trying to take you home. He has a terrible weakness for musicians. He smiled charmingly at me. I murmured an excuse and took my leave, too distraught to worry whether or not I had made an ass of myself. As I made my desolate way back to the stairs, my wise self took the opportunity to berate me. That is what comes of hope, it said. No good. Still, you are better having missed her. She could never have been equal to her voice. That voice, fair and terrible as burning silver, like moonlight on river stones, like a feather against your lips. I headed to the stairs, eyes on the floor lest anyone try to catch me in a conversation. Then I heard a voice, a voice like burning silver, like a kiss against my ears. Looking up, my heart lifted and I knew it was my Aloine. Looking up, I saw her and all I could think was beautiful. Beautiful. Chapter 57 Interlude
The Parts That Form Us Moving slowly, Bast stretched and looked around the room. Finally, the short fuse of his patience burned out. Reshi? Hmm? Quoth looked at him. And then what, Reshi? Did you talk to her? Of course I talked to her. There would be no story if I hadn't. Telling that part is easy. But first, I must describe her. I'm not sure how to do it. Bast fidgeted. Quoth laughed, a fond expression wiping the irritation from his face. So, is describing a beautiful woman as easy as looking at one for you? Bast looked down and blushed, and Quoth laid a gentle hand on his arm, smiling. My trouble, Bast, is that she is very important, important to the story. I cannot think of how to describe her without falling short of the mark. I... I think I understand, Reshi, Bast said in conciliatory tones. I've seen her, too. Once. Quoth sat back in his chair, surprised. You have, haven't you? I'd forgotten. He pressed his hands to his lips. How would you describe her, then? Bast brightened at the opportunity. Straightening up in his chair, he looked thoughtful for a moment, and then said, She had perfect ears. He made a delicate gesture with his hands. Perfect little ears, like they were carved out of... something. Chronicler laughed, then looked slightly taken aback, as if he'd surprised himself. Her ears? He asked, as if he couldn't be sure if he had heard correctly. You know how hard it is to find a pretty girl with the right sort of ears, Bast said matter-of-factly. Chronicler laughed again, seeming to find it easier the second time. No, he said. No, I'm sure I don't. Bast gave the story collector a deeply pitying look. Well then, you'll just have to take my word for it. They were exceptionally fine. I think you've struck that chord well enough, Bast, Quilt said amused. He paused for a moment, and when he spoke again, it was slowly, his eyes far away. The trouble is, she is unlike anyone I have ever known. There was something intangible about her, something compelling, like heat from a fire. She had a grace, a spark. She had a crooked nose, Reshi, Bast said, interrupting his master's reverie. Quoth looked at him a line of irritation creasing his forehead. What? Bast held his hands up defensively. It's just something I noticed, Reshi. All the women in your story are beautiful. I can't gainsay you as a whole, as I've never seen any of them. But this one I did see. Her nose was a little crooked, and if we're being honest here, her face was a little narrow for my taste. She wasn't a perfect beauty by any means, Reshi. I should know. I've made some study of these things. Quoth stared at his student for a long moment, his expression solemn. We are more than the parts that form us, Bast, he said with a hint of reproach. I'm not saying she wasn't lovely, Reshi, Bast said quickly. She smiled at me. It was... It had a sort of... It went right down into you, if you understand me. I understand, Bast. But then again, I've met her. Quoth looked at Chronicler. The trouble comes from comparison, you see. If I say she was dark-haired, you might think, 
I've known dark-haired women, some of them lovely. But you would be far off the mark, because that woman would not really have anything in common with her. That other woman wouldn't have her quick wit, her easy charm. She was unlike anyone I have ever met. Quoth trailed off, looking down at folded hands. He was quiet for such a long moment that Bast began to fidget, looking around anxiously. There's no sense worrying, I suppose, Quoth said at last, looking up and motioning to Chronicler. If I ruin this as well, it'll be a small thing as far as the world is concerned. Chronicler picked up his pen, and Quoth began to speak before he had the chance to dip it. Her eyes were dark, dark as chocolate, dark as coffee, dark as the polished wood of my father's lute. They were set in a fair face, oval, like a teardrop. Quoth stopped suddenly, as if he had run himself out of words. The silence was so sudden and deep that Chronicler glanced briefly up from his page, something he had not done before. But even as Chronicler looked up, another flood of words burst out of Quoth. Her easy smile could stop a man's heart. Her lips were red, not the garish painted red so many women believe makes them desirable. Her lips were always red, morning and night, as if minutes before you saw her she had been eating sweet berries or drinking heart's blood. No matter where she stood, she was in the center of the room. Quoth frowned. Do not misunderstand. She was not loud or vain. We stare at a fire because it flickers, because it glows. The light is what catches our eyes. But what makes a man lean close to a fire has nothing to do with its bright shape. What draws you to a fire is the warmth you feel when you come near. The same was true of Denna. As Quoth spoke, his expression twisted, as if each word he spoke rankled him more and more. And while the words were clear, they matched his expression as if each one was rasped with a rough file before it left his mouth. She... Quoth's head was bowed so low, he seemed to be speaking to his hands laying in his lap. What am I doing? He said faintly, as if his mouth was full of gray ash. What good can come of this? How can I make any sense of her for you when I have never understood the least piece of her myself? Chronicler had written most of this out before he realized that Quoth had probably not intended him to. He froze for a bare moment, then finished scratching down the rest of the sentence. Then he waited a long, quiet moment before he stole a look upward at Quoth. Quoth's eyes caught and held him. They were the same dark eyes that Chronicler had seen before. Eyes like an angry god's. For a moment, it was all Chronicler could do not to draw back from the table. There was an icy silence. Quoth stood and pointed at the paper that lay in front of Chronicler. Cross that out, he grated. Chronicler blanched, his expression as stricken as if he'd been stabbed. When he made no move, Quoth reached down and calmly slid the half-written sheet from under Chronicler's pen. If crossing out is something you feel disinclined toward... Quoth tore the half-written sheet with slow care, the sound bleeding the color from Chronicler's face. With terrible deliberateness, Quoth lifted a blank sheet and lay it carefully in front of the stunned scribe. One long finger stabbed at the torn sheet, smearing the still wet ink. Copy to here, 
he said in a voice that was cold and motionless as iron. The iron was in his eyes, too, hard and dark. There was no arguing. Chronicler quietly copied to where Quolf's finger pinned the paper to the table. Once Chronicler was finished, Quolf began to speak crisply and clearly, as if he were biting off pieces of ice. In what manner was she beautiful? I realize that I cannot say enough. So, since I cannot say enough, at least I will avoid saying too much. Say this, that she was dark-haired. There. It was long and straight. She was dark of eye and fair-complected. There. Her face was oval, her jaw strong and delicate. Say that she was poised and graceful. There. Quoth took a breath before continuing. Finally, say that she was beautiful. That is all that can be well said. That she was beautiful, through to her bones, despite any flaw or fault. She was beautiful to Quoth, at least. At least? To Quoth, she was most beautiful. For a moment, Quoth tensed as if he would leap up and tear this sheet away from Chronicler as well. Then he relaxed, like a sail when the wind leaves it. But to be honest, it must be said that she was beautiful to others as well. Chapter 58 Names for Beginning It would be nice to say that our eyes met and I moved smoothly to her side. It would be nice to say that I smiled and spoke of pleasant things in carefully metered rhyming couplets, like Prince Gallant from some fairy story. Unfortunately, life is seldom so carefully scripted. In truth, I simply stood. It was Denna, the young woman I had met in Rowan's caravan so long ago. Come to think of it, it had only been half a year. Not so long when you're listening to a story, but half a year is a great long while to live through, especially if you are young. And we were both of us very young. I caught sight of Denna as she was climbing the final step onto the third level of the Aeolian. Her eyes were downcast, her expression thoughtful, almost sad. She turned and began to walk in my direction without lifting her eyes from the floor, without seeing me. The months had changed her. Where before she had been pretty, now she was lovely as well. Perhaps that difference was only that she wasn't wearing the road clothes I had met her in but a long dress instead. But it was Denna, without a doubt. I even recognized the ring on her finger, silver set with a pale blue stone. Since we parted ways, I had kept foolish, fond thoughts of Denna hidden in a secret corner of my heart. I had thought of making the trip to Annalyn and tracking her down, of meeting her by chance on the road again, of her coming to find me at the university— but deep down I knew these thoughts for nothing more than childish daydreams. I knew the truth. I would never see her again. But here she was, and I was entirely unprepared. Would she even remember me, the awkward boy she had known for a few days so long ago? Denna was barely a dozen feet away when she looked up and saw me. Her expression brightened, as if someone had lit a candle inside her and she was glowing from its light. She rushed toward me, closing the distance between us in three excited skipping steps. For a moment, she looked as if she would run straight into my arms, 
but at the last moment she pulled back, darting a glance at the people sitting around us. In the space of half a step, she transformed her delighted headlong run into a demure greeting at arm's length. It was gracefully done, but even so, she had to reach out a hand and steady herself against my chest, lest she stumble into me due to her sudden stop. She smiled at me then. It was warm and sweet and shy, like a flower unfurling. It was friendly and honest and slightly embarrassed. When she smiled at me, I felt... I honestly cannot think of how I could describe it. Lying would be easier. I could steal from a hundred stories and tell you a lie so familiar you would swallow it whole. I could say my knees went to rubber, that my breath came hard in my chest, but that would not be the truth. My heart did not pound or stop or stutter. That is the sort of thing they say happens in stories. Foolishness, hyperbole, tripe, but still... Go out in the early days of winter, after the first cold snap of the season. Find a pool of water with a sheet of ice across the top, still fresh and new and clear as glass. Near the shore, the ice will hold you. Slide out farther. Farther. Eventually, you'll find the place where the surface just barely bears your weight. There, you will feel what I felt. The ice splinters under your feet. Look down and you can see the white cracks darting through the ice like mad, elaborate spiderwebs. It is perfectly silent, but you can feel the sudden sharp vibrations through the bottoms of your feet. That is what happened when Denna smiled at me. I don't mean to imply I felt as if I stood on brittle ice about to give way beneath me. No. I felt like the ice itself, suddenly shattered, with cracks spiraling out from where she had touched my chest. The only reason I held together was because my thousand pieces were all leaning together. If I moved, I feared I would fall apart. Perhaps it is enough to say that I was caught by a smile, and though that sounds as if it came from a storybook, it is very near the truth. Words have never been difficult for me. Quite the opposite, in fact. Often I find it all too easy to speak my mind, and things go badly because of it. However, here, in front of Denna, I was too stunned to speak. I could not have said a sensible word to save my life. Without thinking, all the courtly manners my mother had drilled into me came to the fore. I reached out smoothly and clasped Denna's outstretched hand in my own, as if she offered it to me. Then I took a half-step backward and made a genteel three-quarter bow. At the same time, my free hand caught hold of the edge of my cloak and tucked it behind my back. It was a flattering bow, courtly without being ridiculously formal, and safe for a public setting such as this. What next? A kiss on the hand was traditional, but what sort of kiss was appropriate? In a tour you merely nod over the hand. Sealdish ladies, like the moneylender's daughter I had chatted with earlier, expect you to brush the knuckles lightly and make a kissing sound. In Modeg you actually press your lips to the back of your own thumb. But we were in Commonwealth, and Denna showed no foreign accent. A straightforward kiss, then. I pressed my lips gently to the back of her hand for the space of time it takes to draw a quick breath. Her skin was warm and smelled vaguely of heather. I'm at your service, my lady, I said, standing and releasing her hand. 
For the first time in my life I understood the true purpose of this sort of formal greeting. It gives you a script to follow when you have absolutely no idea what to say. My lady, Denna echoed, sounding a little surprised. Very well, if you insist. She took hold of her dress with one hand and bobbed a curtsy, somehow managing to make it look graceful and mocking and playful all at once. Your lady. Hearing her voice, I knew my suspicions were true. She was my Aloine. What are you doing up here in the third circle alone? She glanced around the crescent-shaped balcony. Are you alone? I was alone, I said. Then, when I could think of nothing else to say, I borrowed a line from the song fresh in my memory. Now unexpected, Aloine beside me stands. She smiled at that, flattered. How do you mean unexpected? she asked. I had more than half convinced myself that you had already left. It was a near thing, Denna said archly. Two hours I waited for my Savian to come. She sighed tragically, glancing up and to one side like a statue of a saint. Finally, filled with despair, I decided Aloine could do the finding this time, and damn the story. She smiled a wicked smile. So, we were ill-lit ships at night, I quoted. Passing close but all unknown to one another, Denna finished. Fellward's falling, I said with something that touched the outward boundary of respect. Not many people know that play. I am not many people, she said. I will never forget that again. I bowed my head with exaggerated deference. She snorted derisively. I ignored it and continued in a more serious tone. I can't thank you enough for helping me tonight. You can't, she said. Well, that's a shame. How much can you thank me? Without thinking, I reached up to the collar of my cloak and unpinned my talent pipes. Only this much, I said, holding them out to her. I... Denna hesitated, somewhat taken aback. You can't be serious. Without you, I wouldn't have won them, I said, and I have nothing else of any value unless you want my loot. Denna's dark eyes studied my face as if she couldn't decide if I was making fun or not. I don't think you can give away your pipes. I can, actually, I said. Stanchion mentioned if I lost them or gave them away, I'd have to earn another set. I took her hand, uncurled her fingers, then laid the silver pipes on her palm. That means I can do with them as I please, and it pleases me to give them to you. Denna stared at the pipes in her hand, then looked at me with deliberate attention, as if she hadn't entirely noticed me before. For a moment, I was painfully aware of my appearance. My cloak was threadbare, and even wearing my best clothes, I was a short step from shabby. She looked down again and slowly closed her hand around the pipes. Then she looked up at me, her expression unreadable. I think you might be a wonderful person, she said. I drew a breath, but Denna spoke first. However, she said, this is too great a thanks. More payment than is appropriate for any help I've given you. I would end up in your debt. She caught hold of my hand and pressed the pipes back into it. 
I would rather have you beholden to me. She grinned suddenly. This way, you still owe me a favor. The room grew noticeably quieter. I looked around, confused due to the fact that I'd forgotten where I was. Denna lay a finger to her lips and pointed over the railing to the stage below. We stepped closer to the edge and looked down to see an old man with a white beard opening an oddly shaped instrument case. I sucked in a surprised breath when I saw what he was holding. What is that thing? Denna asked. It's an old court lute, I said, unable to keep the amazement out of my voice. I've never actually seen one before. That's a lute? Denna's lips moved silently. I count twenty-four strings. How does that even work? That's more than some harps. That's how they made them years ago, before metal strings, before they knew how to brace a long neck. It's incredible. There's more careful engineering in that swan neck than in any three cathedrals. I watched as the old man tucked his beard out of the way and adjusted himself in his seat. I just hope he tuned it before he went on stage, I added softly. Otherwise, we'll be waiting an hour while he fiddles with his pegs. My father used to say the old minstrels used to spend two days stringing and two hours of tuning to get two minutes' music from an old court lute. It only took the old man about five minutes to get the strings in agreement. Then he began to play. I am shamed to admit it, but I remember nothing of the song. Despite the fact that I had never seen a court lute, let alone heard one, my mind was too awhirl with thoughts of Denna to absorb much else. As we leaned on the railing side by side, I snuck glances of her out of the corner of my eye. She hadn't called me by name or mentioned our meeting before in Rowan's caravan. That meant she didn't remember me. Not too surprising, I suppose, that she would forget a ragged boy she'd only known for a few days on the road. Still, it stung a bit, as I'd had fond thoughts of her for months. Still, there was no way to bring it up now without seeming foolish. Better to make a fresh start and hope I was more memorable the second time around. The song was over before I realized it, and I clapped enthusiastically to make up for my inattention. I thought you'd made a mistake when you doubled your chorus earlier, Denna said to me as the applause died down. I couldn't believe you really wanted a stranger to join in. I haven't seen that done anywhere except around campfires at night. I shrugged. Everyone kept telling me this is where the best musicians played. I made a sweeping gesture with one hand toward her. I trusted someone would know the part. She arched an eyebrow. It was a near thing, she said. I waited for someone else to jump in instead. I was a little anxious to step in myself. I gave her a puzzled look. Why? You have a lovely voice. She gave a sheepish grimace. I'd only heard the song twice before this. I wasn't sure if I'd remember all of it. Twice? Denna nodded. And the second time was just a span ago. A couple played it during a formal dinner I attended off in Aetnia. Are you serious? I said incredulously. She tilted her head back and forth as if caught in a white lie. Her dark hair fell across her face, and she brushed it away absent-mindedly. Okay, I suppose I did hear the couple rehearse a little right before the dinner. 
I shook my head, hardly believing it. That's amazing. It's a terribly difficult harmony. And to remember all the lyrics? I marveled silently for a moment, shaking my head. You have an incredible ear. You're not the first man to say that, Dennis said wryly, but you might be the first to say it while actually looking at my ears. She glanced down meaningfully. I felt myself beginning to blush furiously when I heard a familiar voice behind us. There you are! Turning, I saw Savoy, my tall, handsome friend and co-conspirator from Advanced Sympathy. Here I am, I said, surprised that he would seek me out, doubly surprised that he would have the bad grace to interrupt me when I was in a private conversation with a young woman. Here we all are, Savoy smiled at me as he walked over and put his arm casually around Denna's waist. He made a mock frown at her. I scour the bottom levels trying to help you find your singer, while all the while both of you are up here, thick as thieves. We stumbled into each other, Denna said, laying her hand over his where it rested on her hip. I knew you'd come back for your drink, if nothing else. She nodded to a nearby table, empty except for a pair of wine glasses. Together they turned and walked arm in arm back to their table. Denna looked over her shoulder at me and gave a sort of shrug with her eyebrows. I hadn't the slightest idea what the expression meant. Savoy waved me over to join them and pulled over an unoccupied chair so I would have a place to sit. I couldn't quite believe it was you down there, he said to me. I thought I recognized your voice, but... He gestured, indicating the highest level of the Aeolian. While the third circle provides a comfortable privacy for young lovers... Its view of the stage leaves a little to be desired. I didn't know you played. He settled a long arm across Denna's shoulders and smiled his charming blue-eyed smile. Off and on, I said flippantly as I sat down. Lucky for you I picked the Aeolian for our entertainment tonight, Savoy said. Otherwise, you've had, had nothing but echoes and crickets to accompany you. Then I'm in your debt, I said to him with a differential nod. Make it up to me by taking Simon as a partner next time we play corners, he said. That way you're the one to eat the forfeit when the giddy little bastard calls the tall card with nothing but a pair. Done, I said, though it pains me. I turned to Denna. What of you? I owe you a great favor. How can I repay it? Ask anything and it's yours, should it be within my skill. Anything within your skill? she repeated playfully. What can you do, then, besides play so well that Taylor and his angels would weep to hear? I imagine I could do anything, I said easily, if you would ask it of me. She laughed. That's a dangerous thing to say to a woman, Savoy said, especially this one. She'll have you off to bring her a leaf of the singing tree from the other side of the world. She leaned back in her chair and looked at me with dangerous eyes. A leaf of the singing tree, she mused. That might be a nice thing to have. Would you bring me one? I would, I said, and was surprised to find that it was the truth. She seemed to consider it, then shook her head playfully. I couldn't send you journeying so far away. I'll have to save my favor for another day. I sighed. So I'm left in your debt, 
Oh, no! she exclaimed. Another weight upon my Savian's heart. The reason my heart is so heavy is that I fear I might never know your name. I could keep thinking of you as Filurian, I said, but that could lead to unfortunate confusion. She gave me an appraising look. Filurian? I might like that if I didn't think you were a liar. A liar? I said indignantly. My first thought in seeing you was, Filurian, what have I done? The adulation of my peers below has been a waste of hours. Could I recall the moments I have careless cast away? I could but hope to spend them in a wiser way, and warm myself in light that rivals light of day. She smiled. A thief and a liar. You stole that from the third act of Deonica. She knew Deonica, too. Guilty, I admitted freely, but that doesn't make it untrue. She smiled at Sovoy and then turned back to me. Flattery is fine and good, but it won't win you my name. Sovoy mentioned you were keeping pace with him at the university. That means you meddle with dark forces better left alone. If I give you my name, you would have a terrible power over me. Her mouth was serious, but her smile showed itself around the corners of her eyes, in the tilt of her head. That is very true, I said with equal seriousness, but I will make you a bargain. I'll give you my name in exchange. Then I will be in your power as well. You'd sell me my own shirt, she said. Savoy knows your name. Assuming he hasn't told me already, I could have it from him as easy as breathing. True enough, Savoy said, seeming relieved that we remembered he was there. He took up her hand and kissed the back of it. He can tell you my name. I said dismissively, but he cannot give it to you. Only I can do that. I lay one hand flat on the table. My offer stands, my name for yours. Will you take it, or will I be forced to think of you always as an Aloine and never as yourself? Her eyes danced. Very well, she said. I'll have yours first, though. I leaned forward and motioned for her to do the same. She let go of Sovoy's hand and turned an ear toward me. With due solemnity, I whispered my name in her ear. Quoth. She smelled faintly of flowers, which I guessed was a perfume. But beneath that was her own smell, like green grass, like the open road after a light spring rain. Then she leaned back into her seat and seemed to think of it for a while. Quoth, she said eventually. It suits you. Quoth. Her eyes sparkled as if she held some hidden secret. She said it slowly, as if tasting it, then nodded to herself. What does it mean? It means many things, I said in my best Taberlin the Great voice. But you will not distract me so easily. I have paid, and now I am in your power. Will you give me your name that I might call you by it? She smiled and leaned forward again. I did likewise. Turning my head to the side, I felt an errant strand of her hair brush against me. Diane. Her warm breath was like a feather against my ear. Diane. We both sat back in our seats. 
When I didn't say anything, she prompted me. Well? I have it, I assured her, as sure as I know my own. Say it, then. I'm saving it, I reassured her, smiling. Gifts like these should not be squandered. She looked at me. I relented. Diane, I said. Diane, it suits you as well. We looked at each other for a long moment. Then I noticed that Savoy was giving me a not-quite-subtle stare. I should get back downstairs, I said, rising quickly from my seat. I've got important people to meet. I cringed inwardly at the awkwardness of the words as soon as I'd said them, but couldn't think of a less awkward way to take them back. Savoy stood and shook my hand, no doubt eager to be rid of me. Well done tonight, Quoth. I'll be seeing you. I turned to see Denna standing, too. She met my eyes and smiled. I hope to see you, too. She held out her hand. I gave her my best smile. There's always hope. I meant it to seem witty, but the words seemed to turn boorish as soon as they left my mouth. I had to leave before I made an even greater ass of myself. I shook her hand quickly. It was slightly cool to the touch. Soft, delicate, and strong. I did not kiss it, as Savoy was my friend, and that is not the sort of thing friends do. Chapter 59 All This Knowing In the fullness of time, and with considerable help from Diak and Willem, I became drunk. Thus it was that three students made their slightly erratic way back to the university. See them as they go, weaving only slightly. It is quiet, and when the belling tower strikes the late hour, it doesn't break the silence so much as it underpins it. The crickets, too, respect the silence. Their calls are like careful stitches in its fabric, almost too small to be seen. The night is like warm velvet around them. The stars... Burning diamonds in the cloudless sky turn the road beneath their feet a silver gray. The university and Imre are the hearts of understanding and art, the strongest of the four corners of civilization. Here on the road between the two there is nothing but old trees and long grass bending to the wind. The night is perfect in a wild way, almost terrifyingly beautiful. The three boys, one dark, one light, and one for lack of a better word, fiery, do not notice the night. Perhaps some part of them does, but they are young and drunk and busy knowing deep in their hearts that they will never grow old or die. They also know that they are friends, and they share a certain love that will never leave them. The boys know many other things, but none of them seem as important as this. Perhaps they are right. Chapter 60 fortune. The next day I went to the admissions lottery sporting my very first hangover. Weary and vaguely nauseous, I joined the shortest line and tried to ignore the din of hundreds of students milling about, buying, selling, trading, and generally complaining about the slots they'd drawn for their exams. Quoth, Ardalin's son, I said when I finally arrived at the front of the line. The bored-looking woman marked my name and I drew a tile out of the black velvet bag. It read, Hepton, noon. Five days from now, plenty of time to prepare. But as I turned back to the muse, 
a thought occurred to me. How much preparation did I really need? More importantly, how much could I genuinely accomplish without access to the archives? Thinking it over, I raised my hand over my head with my middle finger and thumb extended, signaling that I had a slot five days from now that I was willing to sell. It wasn't long before an unfamiliar student wandered close. Fourth day, she said, holding up her own tile. I'll give you a jot to trade. I shook my head. She shrugged and wandered away. Galvin, a Raylar from the Medica, approached me. He held up his index finger, indicating that he had a slot later this afternoon. From the circles under his eyes and his anxious expression, I didn't think he was eager to go through testing that soon. Will you take five jots? I'd like to get a whole talent. He nodded, flipping his own tile over between his fingers. It was a fair price. No one wanted to go through admissions on the first day. Maybe later. I'll look around a little first. As I watched him leave, I marveled at the difference a single day could make. Yesterday, five jots would have seemed like all the money in the world. But today, my purse was heavy. I was lost in vague musings about how much money I had actually earned last night when I saw Willem and Simmon approaching. Will looked a little pale under his dark sealedish complexion. I guessed he was feeling the after-effects of our night's carousing, too. Sim, on the other hand, was bright and sunny as ever. Guess who drew slots this afternoon? He nodded over my shoulder. Ambrose and several of his friends. It's enough to make me believe in a just universe. Turning to search the crowd, I heard Ambrose's voice before I saw him. From the same bag. That means they did a piss-poor job mixing. They should restart this whole mismanaged sham and... Ambrose was walking with several well-dressed friends, their eyes sweeping over the crowd, looking for raised hands. Ambrose was a dozen feet away before he finally looked down and realized the hand he was heading toward was mine. He stopped short, scowling, then gave a sudden barking laugh. You poor boy! All the time in the world and no way to spend it! Hasn't Lauren let you back in yet? Hammer and horn! Will said wearily behind me. Ambrose smiled at me. Tell you what, I'll give you halfpenny in one of my old shirts for your slot. That way you'll have something to wear when you're washing that one in the river. A few of his friends chuckled behind him, looking me up and down. I kept my expression nonchalant, not wanting to give him any satisfaction. Truth was, I was all too aware of the fact that I only owned two shirts, and after two terms of constant wear... They were getting shabby. Shabbier. What's more, I did wash them in the river, as I'd never had money to spare for laundry. I'll pass, I said lightly. Your shirt tails are a little richly dyed for my taste. I tugged at the front of my own shirt to make my point clear. A few nearby students laughed. I don't get it, I heard Sim say quietly to Will. He's implying Ambrose has the... Will paused. The edamatetas, a disease you get from whores. There's a discharge. Okay, okay, Sim said quickly. I get it, ick. Ambrose is wearing green, too. Meanwhile, Ambrose forced himself to chuckle along with the crowd at my joke. I suppose I deserve that, he said. Very well. Pennies for the poor. He brought out his purse and shook it. How much do you want? 
Five talents, I said. He stared at me, frozen in the act of opening his purse. It was an outrageous price. A few of the spectators nudged each other with their elbows, obviously hoping I'd somehow swindle Ambrose into paying several times what my slot was actually worth. I'm sorry, I asked. Do you need that converted? It was a well-known fact that Ambrose had botched the arithmetic portion of his admissions last term. Five is ridiculous, he said. You'd be lucky to get one this late in the day. I forced a careless shrug. I'd settle for four. You'll settle for one, Ambrose insisted. I'm not an idiot. I took a deep breath, let it out again, resigned. I don't suppose I could get you to go as high as one and four? I asked, disgusted by how plaintive my voice sounded. Ambrose smiled like a shark. I tell you what, he said magnanimously. I'll give you one and three. I'm not above a little charity now and again. Thank you, sir, I said meekly. It's much appreciated. I could sense the crowd's disappointment as I rolled over like a dog for Ambrose's money. Don't mention it, Ambrose said smugly. Always a pleasure to help out the needy. In vintage coin, that'll be two nobles, six bits, two pennies, and four shims. I can do my own conversions, he snapped. I've traveled the world with my father's retinue since I was a boy. I know how money spends. Of course you do, I ducked my head. Silly of me. I looked up curiously. You've been to Modeg, then? Of course, he said absent-mindedly, as he proceeded to dig through his purse, pulling out an assortment of coins. I've actually been to High Court in Kershane. Twice. Is it true that the Modegan nobility regard haggling as a contemptible activity for those of any high-born station? I asked innocently. I heard that they consider it a sure sign that the person is either possessed of low blood or fallen on truly desperate times. Ambrose looked up at me, frozen halfway through the act of digging coins out of his purse. His eyes narrowed. Because if that's true, it's terribly kind of you to come down to my level just for the fun of a little bargain. I grinned at him. We rue love to dicker. There was a murmur of laughter from the crowd around us. It had grown to several dozen people at this point. That's not it at all, Ambrose said. My face became a mask of concern. Oh, I'm sorry, my lord. I had no idea you'd come on hard times. I took several steps toward him, holding out my admissions tile. Here, you can have it for just a halfpenny. I'm not above a little charity myself. I stood directly in front of him, holding out the tile. Please, I insist. It's always a pleasure to help the needy. Ambrose glared furiously. Keep it and choke, he hissed at me in a low voice. And remember this when you're eating beans and washing in the river. I'll still be here the day you leave with nothing but your hands in your pockets. He turned and left, the very picture of affronted dignity. There was a smattering of applause from the surrounding crowd. I took flourishing bows in all directions. How would you score that one? Will asked Sim. Two for Ambrose, three for Quoth. Sim looked at me. Not your best work, really. I didn't get much sleep last night, I admitted. 
Every time you do this it makes the eventual payback that much worse, Will said. We can't do anything but snap at each other, I said. The masters made sure of that. Anything too extreme would get us expelled for conduct unbecoming of a member of the Arcanum. Why do you think I haven't made his life a hell? You're lazy, Will suggested. Laziness is one of my best characteristics, I said easily. If I weren't lazy, I might go through the work of translating Edamite Tas and grow terribly offended when I discover it means the Edema Drip. I raised my hand again, thumb and middle finger extended. Instead, I'll assume it translates directly into the name of the disease, Nemseria, thus preventing any unnecessary strain on our friendship. I eventually sold my slot to a desperate Raylar from the fishery named Jackson. I drove a hard bargain, trading him my slot for six jots and a favor to be named later. Admissions went about as well as could be expected, considering I couldn't study. Hem was still carrying his grudge. Lauren was cool. Elodin had his head down on the table and seemed to be asleep. My tuition was a full six talents, which put me in an interesting situation. The long road to Imre was mostly deserted. The sun brushed through the trees, and the wind carried just a hint of the cool that fall would soon be bringing. I headed to the Aeolian first to retrieve my loot. Stanchion had insisted that I leave it there last night, lest I break it on my long, inebriated walk home. As I approached the Aeolian, I saw Diak lounging against the doorpost, walking a coin across the back knuckles of his hand. He smiled when he saw me. Hold there! Thought you and your friends would end up in the river by the way you were weaving when you left last night. We were swaying in different directions, I explained, so it balanced out. Diak laughed. We've got your lady inside. I fought down a flush and wondered how he had known I was hoping to find Denna here. I don't know if I would call her my lady, exactly. Savoy was my friend, after all. He shrugged. Whatever you call her, Stanchion's got her behind the bar. I'd go grab her before he gets overly familiar and starts practicing his fingering. I felt a flash of rage and barely managed to swallow a mouthful of hot words. My loot. He was talking about my loot. I ducked inside quickly, guessing the less Diox saw of my expression, the better it would be. I wandered through the three levels of the Aeolian, but Denna was nowhere to be found. I did run into Count Threp, though, who enthusiastically invited me to have a seat. I don't suppose I might persuade you to pay me a visit at my house sometime? Threp asked bashfully. I'm thinking of having a little dinner, and I know a few people who would love to meet you. He winked. Word about your performance is already getting around. I felt a twinge of anxiety, but I knew rubbing elbows with the nobility was something of a necessary evil. I'd be honored to, my lord. Threp grimaced. Does it have to be, my lord? Diplomacy is a large part of being a trooper, and a large portion of diplomacy is adherence to title and rank. Etiquette, my lord, I said regretfully. Piss on etiquette, Threp said petulantly. Etiquette is a set of rules people use so they can be rude to each other in public. I was born Danaeus first, Threp second, and Count last of all. He looked imploringly up at me. Den for short? I hesitated. Here at least, 
he pleaded. It makes me feel like a weed in a flower bed when someone starts lording me here. I relaxed. If it makes you happy, then. He flushed as if I'd flattered him. Tell me a bit about yourself, then. Where are you lodging? On the other side of the river, I said evasively. The bunks in Mews were not exactly glamorous. When Threp gave me a puzzled look, I continued. I attend the university. The university? He asked, clearly puzzled. Are they teaching music now? I almost laughed at the thought. No, no, I'm in the Arcanum. I immediately regretted my words. He leaned back in his seat and gave me an uncomfortable look. You're a warlock. Oh, no, I said dismissively. I'm just studying. You know, grammar, mathematics. I picked two of the more innocent fields of study I could think of, and he seemed to relax a bit. I guess I just thought you were... He trailed off and shook himself. Why are you studying there? The question caught me off guard. I... I've always wanted to. There's so much to learn. But you don't need any of that. I mean, he groped for words. The way you play. Surely your patron is encouraging you to focus on your music. I don't have a patron, Den, I said with a shy smile. Not that I'm opposed to the idea, mind you. His reaction was not what I expected. Damn my blackened luck! He slapped his hand on the table, hard. I assumed someone was being coy, keeping you a secret. He thumped the table with his fist. Damn! Damn, damn! He recovered his composure a little and looked up at me. I'm sorry, it's just that... He made a frustrated gesture and sighed. Have you ever heard the saying, One wife, you're happy. Two, and you're tired. I nodded. Three, and they'll hate each other. Four, and they'll hate you. Threp finished. Well, the same thing is doubly true for patrons and their musicians. I just picked up my third, a struggling flutist. He sighed and shook his head. They bicker like cats in a bag, worried they're not getting enough attention. If only I'd known you were coming along, I would have waited. You flatter me, Den. I'm kicking myself is what I'm doing. He sighed and looked guilty. That's not fair. Sephron's good at what he does. They're all good musicians and overprotective of me, just like real wives. He gave me an apologetic look. If I try to bring you in, there'll be hell to pay. I've already had to lie about that little gift I gave you last night. So I'm your mistress, then? I grinned. Threp chuckled. Well, let's not carry the analogy too far. I'll be your matchmaker instead. I'll help you toward a proper patron. I know everyone with blood or money for fifty miles, so it shouldn't be that hard. That would be a great help, I said earnestly. The social circles on this side of the river are a mystery to me. A thought occurred to me. Speaking of which, I met a young lady last night and didn't find out much about her. If you're familiar with the town, I trailed off, hopefully. He gave me a knowing look. Ah, I see. No, 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 I protested. She's the girl that sang along with me. My Aloween. I was just hoping to find her to pay my respects. 
Threp looked as if he didn't believe me, but wasn't going to make an issue of it. Fair enough. What's her name? Diane. Threp seemed to be waiting for more. That's all I know. Threp snorted. What did she look like? Sing it if you have to. I felt the beginning of a flush on my cheeks. She had dark hair to about here. I gestured a little lower than my shoulder with one hand. Young, fair skin. Threp watched me expectantly. Pretty. I see, Threp mused, rubbing his lips. Did she have her talent pipes? I don't know. Maybe. Does she live in the city? I shrugged my ignorance again, feeling more and more foolish. Threp laughed. You're going to have to give me more than that. He looked over my shoulder. Wait, there's Diok. If anyone could spot a girl for you, it'd be him. He raised his hand. Diok! It's really not that important, I said hurriedly. Threp ignored me and waved the broad-shouldered man over to our table. Diok strolled over and leaned against a table. What can I do for you? Our young singer needs a little information about a lady that he met last night. Can't say I'm surprised. There were quite a crop of lovelies out. One or two asked about you. He winked at me. Who caught your eye? It's not like that, I protested. She was the one who sang my harmony last night. She had a lovely voice and I was hoping to find her so we could do a little singing. I think I know the tune you're talking about. He gave me a broad, knowing smile. I felt myself blushing furiously and began to protest again. Oh, settle down. I'll keep this one between my tongue and teeth. I'll even keep from telling Stanchion, which is as good as telling the whole town. He gossips like a schoolgirl when he's at a cup. He looked at me expectantly. She was slender with deep, coffee-colored eyes, I said before I thought about how it sounded. I hurried on before either Threp or Dia could make a joke. Her name was Diane. Ah! Diak nodded slowly to himself, his smile going a little wry. I guess I should have known. Does she live here? Threp asked. I don't believe I know her. You'd remember, Diak said. But no, I don't think she lives in town. I see her off and on. She travels, always here and gone again. He rubbed the back of his head and gave me a worried smile. I don't know where you might be able to find her. Careful, boy. That one will steal your heart. Men fall for her like wheat before a sickle blade. I shrugged as if such things couldn't be further from my mind and was glad when Threp turned the topic to a piece of gossip about one of the local councilmen. I chuckled at their bickering until my drink was done, then made my farewells and took my leave of them. Half an hour later, I stood on the stairway outside Debbie's door, trying to ignore the rancid smell of the butcher shop below. I counted my money for the third time and thought about my options. I could pay off my entire debt and still afford my tuition, but it would leave me penniless. I had other debts to settle as well, and as much as I wanted to be out from under Debbie's thumb, I didn't relish starting the semester without a bit of coin in my pocket. The door opened suddenly, startling me. Debbie's face peered out suspiciously through a narrow crack, 
then brightened with a smile when she recognized me. What are you lurking for? she asked. Gentlemen knock as a rule. She opened the door wide to let me in. Just weighing my options, I said as she bolted the door behind me. Her room was much the same as before, save that today it smelled of cinnamon, not lavender. I hope I won't be inconveniencing you if I only pay the interest this term. Not at all, she said graciously. I like to think of it as an investment on my part. She gestured me toward a chair. Besides, it means I get to see you again. You'd be surprised how few visitors I get. It's probably your location more than your company, I said. She wrinkled her nose. I know. I settled here at first because it was cheap. Now I feel obliged to stay because my customers know to find me here. I laid two talents on the desk and slid them toward her. Do you mind a question? She gave me a look of impish excitement. Is it inappropriate? A bit, I admitted. Has anyone ever tried to report you? Well, now, she sat forward in her chair. That can be taken a number of different ways. She raised an eyebrow over one icy blue eye. Are you being threatening or curious? Curious, I said quickly. I tell you what, she nodded at my lute. Play me a song and I'll tell you the truth. I smiled and unlatched the case, drawing out my lute. What would you like to hear? She thought for a minute. Can you play Leave the Town Tinker? I played it quick and easy. She came in enthusiastically on the chorus, and at the end she smiled and clapped like a young girl, which in hindsight I guess she was. Back then she was an older woman, experienced and self-sure. I, on the other hand, was not quite sixteen. Once, she answered as I put my lute away, Two years ago, a young gentleman, Elir, decided it would be better to inform the constable than to settle his debt. I looked up at her. And? And that was it, she shrugged carelessly. They came, asked me questions, searched the place. Didn't find anything incriminating, of course. Of course. The next day, the young gentleman admitted the truth to the constable. He had made the whole story up because I had spurned his romantic advances. She grinned. The constable was not amused, and the gentleman was fined for slanderous action against the lady of the town. I couldn't help but smile. I can't say as I'm terribly... I trailed off, noticing something for the first time. I pointed at her bookshelf. Is that Malkaf's the basis of all matter? Oh, yes, she said proudly. It's new. A partial repayment. She gestured toward the shelf. Feel free. I walked over and pulled it out. If I'd had this to study from, I wouldn't have missed one of the questions during admissions today. I'd think you'd have your fill of books at the archives, she said, her voice thick with envy. I shook my head. I was banned, I said. I've spent about two hours total in the archives, and half of that was getting thrown out on my ear. Devi nodded slowly. I'd heard, but you never know which rumors are true. We're in something of the same boat, then. I'd say you're slightly better off, I said, looking over her shelves. You've got Tekum here and the Hero Borica. I scanned all the titles, looking for anything that might have information about the Amir or the Chandrian, 
but nothing looked especially promising. You've got the mating habits of the common Dracus, too. I was partway through reading that when I was kicked out. That's the latest edition, she said proudly. There's new engravings and a section on the Fay and Moite. I ran my fingers down the book's spine, then stepped back. It's a nice collection. Well, she said teasingly, if you promise to keep your hands clean, you could come over and do some reading now and again. If you bring your lute and play for me, I might even let you borrow a book or two so long as you bring them back in a timely fashion. She gave me a winsome smile. We exiles should stick together. I spent the long walk back to the university wondering if Devi was being flirtatious or friendly. At the end of the three miles, I hadn't reached anything resembling a decision. I mentioned this to make something clear. I was clever, a burgeoning hero with an ailer like a bar of Ramston steel. But first and foremost, I was a fifteen-year-old boy. When it came to women, I was as lost as a lamb in the woods. I found Kilvin in his office, etching runes into a hemisphere of glass for another hanging lamp. I knocked softly on the open door. He glanced up at me. Ilirkvoth! You are looking better? It took me a moment to remember that he was speaking of three span ago when he banned me from my work at the fishery due to Willem's meddling. Thank you, sir. I feel better. He cocked his head minutely. I lowered one hand to my purse. I would like to resolve my debt to you. Kilvin grunted. You owe me nothing. He looked back down at the table and the project in his hands. My debt to the shop, then, I pressed. I've been taking advantage of your good nature for some time now. How much do I owe for the materials I've used during my studies with Manette? Kilvin continued to work. One talent, seven jots, and three. The exactness of the number startled me, as he hadn't checked the ledger in the storeroom. I boggled to think of everything the bear-like man was carrying around in his head. I took the appropriate amount from my purse and set the coins on a relatively clutter-free corner of the table. Kilvin looked at them. Ilir Quoth, I trust you came to this money honorably. His tone was so serious, I had to smile. I earned it playing in Imre last night. Music across the river pays this well? I held my smile and shrugged nonchalantly. I don't know if I'll do this well every night. This was only my first time, after all. Kilvin made a sound somewhere between a snort and a huff and turned his eyes back to his work. Elksadal's pridefulness is rubbing off on you. He drew a careful line on the glass. Am I correct in assuming that you will no longer be spending evenings in my employ? Shocked, it took me a moment to catch my breath. I... I wouldn't. I came here to speak with you about... about coming back to work in the shop. The thought of not working for Kilvin hadn't crossed my mind. Apparently your music has more profit than working here. Kilvin gave the coins on the table a significant look. But I want to work here, I said wretchedly. Kilvin's face broke into a great white smile. Good! I would not have wanted to lose you to the other side of the river. Music is a fine thing, but metal lasts. He struck the table with two huge fingers to emphasize his point. 
Then he made a shooing motion with the hand that held his unfinished lamp. Go! Do not be late for work, or I will keep you polishing bottles and grinding ore for another term. As I left, I thought about what Kilvin had said. It was the first thing he had said to me that I did not agree with wholeheartedly. Metal rusts, I thought. Music lasts forever. Time will eventually prove one of us right. After I left the fishery, I headed straight to the horse and four, arguably the best inn this side of the river. The innkeeper was a bald, portly fellow named Caverin. I showed him my talent pipes and bargained for a pleasant fifteen minutes. The end result was that in exchange for playing three evenings a span, I received free room and board. The four's kitchens were remarkable, and my room was actually a small suite. Bedroom, dressing room, and sitting room a huge step up from my narrow bunk in the mews. But best of all, I would earn two silver talents every month, an almost ridiculous sum of money to someone who had been poor for as long as I had. And that was in addition to whatever gifts or tips the wealthy customers might give me. Playing here, working in the fishery, and with a wealthy patron on the horizon, I'd no longer be forced to live like a pauper. I'd be able to buy things I desperately needed. Another suit of clothes, some decent pens and paper, new shoes. If you have never been desperately poor, I doubt you can understand the relief I felt. For months, I'd been waiting for the other shoe to drop, knowing that any small catastrophe could ruin me. But now, I no longer had to live every day worrying about my next term's tuition or the interest on Devi's loan. I was no longer in danger of being forced out of the university. I had a lovely dinner of venison steak with a leaf salad and a bowl of delicately spiced tomato soup. There were fresh peaches and plums and white bread with sweet cream butter. Though I didn't even ask for it, I was served several glasses of an excellent dark vintage wine. Then I retired to my rooms where I slept like a dead man, lost in the vastness of my new feather bed. Chapter 61. Jackass, Jackass With admissions behind me, I had no responsibilities until fall term began. I spent the intervening days catching up on my sleep, working in Kilvin's shop, and enjoying my new luxurious accommodations at the Horse and Four. I also spent a considerable amount of time on the road to Imre, usually under the excuse of visiting Threp or enjoying the camaraderie of the other musicians at the Aeolian but the truth behind the stories was that I was hoping to find Denna. But my diligence gained me nothing. She seemed to have vanished from the town completely. I asked a few people who I could trust not to make gossip of it, but none of them knew more than Diak. I briefly entertained the thought of asking Savoy about her, but discarded it as a bad idea. After my sixth fruitless trip to Imre, I decided to abandon my search. After my ninth, I convinced myself it was a waste of valuable time. After my fourteenth trip, I came to the deep realization that I wouldn't find her. She was well and truly gone. Again. It was during one of my Denalus trips to the Aeolian that I received some troubling news from Count Threp. Apparently, Ambrose, first-born son of the wealthy and influential Baron Jackis, had been busy as a bee in the social circles of Imre. He had spread rumors, made threats, and generally turned the nobility against me. 
While he couldn't keep me from gaining the respect of my fellow musicians, apparently he could keep me from gaining a wealthy patron. It was my first glimpse of the trouble Ambrose could make for a person like me. Threp was apologetic and morose, while I seethed with irritation. Together we proceeded to drink an unwise amount of wine and grouse about Ambrose Jackis. Eventually, Threp was called up onto the stage where he sang a scathing little ditty of his own design, satirizing one of Tarbian's councilmen. It was met with great laughter and applause. From there, it was a short step for us to begin composing a song about Ambrose. Threp was an inveterate gossip-monger with a knack for tasteless innuendo, and I have always had a gift for a catchy tune. It took us under an hour to compose our masterwork, which we lovingly titled Jackass Jackass. On the surface, it was a ribald little tune about a donkey who wanted to become an arcanist. Our extraordinarily clever pun on Ambrose's surname was as close as we came to mentioning him, but anyone with half a wit could tell who the shoe was meant to fit. It was late when Threp and I took the stage, and we weren't the only ones worse for drink. There was thunderous laughter and applause from the majority of the audience who called for an encore. We gave it to them again, and everyone came in singing on the chorus. The key to the song's success was its simplicity. You could whistle or hum it. Anyone with three fingers could play it, and if you had one ear and a bucket, you could carry the tune. It was catchy and vulgar and mean-spirited. It spread through the university like a fire in a field. I tugged open the outer door of the archives and stepped into the entry hall, my eyes adjusting to the red tint of the sympathy lamps. The air was dry and cool, rich with the smell of dust, leather, and old ink. I took a breath the way a starving man might outside a bakery. Willem was tending the desk. I knew he'd be working. Ambrose wasn't anywhere in the building. I'm just here to talk with Master Lauren, I said quickly. Will relaxed. He's with someone right now. It might be a while. A tall, lean, sealedish man opened the door behind the entry desk. Unlike most sealedish men, he was clean-shaven and wore his hair long, pulled back into a tail. He wore well-mended hunter's leathers, a faded traveling cloak, and high boots all dusty from the road. As he shut the door behind him, his hand went unconsciously to the hilt of his sword to keep it from striking the wall or the desk. Italia tu, Yari Aiden, Asiyah, he said in Siaru, clapping Willem on the shoulder as he walked out from behind the desk. Borelan tu ataitem. Will gave a rare smile, shrugging. Linsatva, tu akveren. The man laughed, and as he stepped around the desk, I saw he wore a long knife in addition to his sword. I'd never seen anyone armed at the university. Here in the archives, he looked as out of place as a sheep in the king's court. But his manner was relaxed, confident, as if he couldn't feel more at home. He stopped walking when he saw me standing there. He cocked his head to the side a little. Sightseeing? I didn't recognize the language. I beg your pardon? Oh, sorry, he said, speaking perfect Eturin. You looked yellish. The red hair fooled me. He looked at me closer. But you're not, are you? You're one of the Rue. He stepped forward and held out his hand to me. 
One family. I shook it without thinking. His hand was solid as a rock, and his dark sealedish complexion was tanned even darker than usual, highlighting a few pale scars that ran over his knuckles and up his arms. One family, I echoed, too surprised to say anything else. Folk from the family are a rare thing here, he said easily, walking past me toward the outer door. I'd stop and share news, but I've got to make it to Evesdown before sunset or I'll miss my ship. He opened the outer door and sunlight flooded the room. I'll catch up with you when I'm back in these parts, he said, and with a wave, he was gone. I turned to Willem. Who was that? One of Lauren's gillers, Will said. Viari. He's a scriv? I said incredulously, thinking of the pale, quiet students who worked in the archives, sorting, scribing, and fetching books. Will shook his head. He works in acquisitions. They bring back books from all over the world. They're a different breed entirely. I gathered that, I said, glancing at the door. He's the one Lauren was talking to, so you can go in now, Will said, getting to his feet and opening the door behind the massive wooden desk. Down at the end of the hall, there's a brass plate on his door. I'd walk you back, but we're short-staffed. I can't leave the desk. I nodded and began to walk down the hallway. I smiled to hear Will softly humming the melody from Jackass Jackass under his breath. Then the door gave a muffled thump behind me, and the hall was quiet save for the sound of my own breathing. By the time I reached the appropriate door, my hands were clammy with sweat. I knocked. Enter, Lauren called from inside. His voice was like a sheet of smooth gray slate without the barest hint of inflection or emotion. I opened the door. Lauren sat behind a huge semicircular desk. Shelves lined the walls from floor to ceiling. The room was so full of books there wasn't more than a palm's breadth of wall visible in the entire room. Lauren looked at me coolly. Even sitting down, he was still nearly as tall as me. Good morning. I know I'm banned from the archives, Master, I said quickly. I hope that I'm not violating that by coming to see you. Not if you're here to good purpose. I've come into some money, I said, pulling out my purse, and I was hoping to buy back my copy of Rhetoric and Logic. Lauren nodded and came to his feet. Tall, clean-shaven, and wearing his dark master's robes, he reminded me of the enigmatic Silent Doctor character present in many Modegan plays. I fought off a shiver, trying not to dwell on the fact that the appearance of the Doctor always signaled catastrophe in the next act. Lauren went to one of the shelves and pulled out a small book. Even at a glimpse, I recognized it as mine. A dark stain patterned the cover from the time it had gotten wet during a storm in Tarbian. I fumbled with the strings of my purse, surprised to see my hands trembling slightly. It was two silver pennies, I believe. Lauren nodded. Can I offer you anything in addition to that? If you hadn't bought it for me, I would have lost it forever, not to mention the fact that your purchase helped me gain admittance in the first place. Two silver pennies will be sufficient. I lay the coins on his desk. They clattered slightly as I set them down, testament to my shaking hands. Lauren held out the book, and I wiped my sweaty hands on my shirt before taking it. 
I opened it to Ben's inscription and smiled. Thank you for taking care of it, Master Loren. It is precious to me. The care of one more book is little trouble, Loren said as he returned to his seat. I waited to see if he might continue. He didn't. I... My voice snagged in my throat. I swallowed to clear it. I also wanted to say that I was sorry for... I stalled at the thought of actually mentioning open flame in the archives. For what I did before, I finished lamely. I accept your apology, Quoth. Loren looked back down at the book he had been reading when I had come in. Good morning. I swallowed again against the dryness in my mouth. I was also wondering when I might hope to regain admittance to the archives. Loren looked up at me. You were caught with live fire among my books, he said, emotion touching the edges of his voice like a hint of red sunset against the slate-gray clouds. All of my carefully planned persuasion flew out of my head. Master Loren, I pleaded, I'd been whipped that day and wasn't at my wit's best. Ambrose... Loren raised his long-fingered hand from the desk, his palm facing out toward me. The careful gesture cut me off more quickly than a slap across the face. His face was expressionless as a blank page. Who am I to believe? A relar of three years or an elir of two months? A scriv in my employ or an unfamiliar student found guilty of reckless use of sympathy? I managed to regain a little of my composure. I understand your decision, Master Loren. Is there anything I might do to earn readmittance? I asked, unable to keep my voice entirely free of desperation. Honestly, I would rather be whipped again than spend another term banned. I would give you all the money in my pocket, though it isn't much. I'd work long hours as a scriv without pay for the privilege of proving myself to you. I know you're short-staffed during exams. Loren looked at me, his placid eyes almost curious. I couldn't help but feel that my plea had affected him. All that? All that, I said earnestly, hope billowing wildly through my chest. All that and any other penance you desire. I require but one thing to rescind my ban, Loren said. I fought to keep a manic grin off my face. Anything! Demonstrate the patience and prudence which you have heretofore been lacking, Loren said flatly, then looked down at the book that lay open on his desk. Good morning. The next day, one of Jameson's errand boys woke me out of a sound sleep in my vast bed at the Horse and Four. He informed me that I was due on the horns at a quarter hour before noon. I was being charged with conduct unbecoming a member of the Arcanum. Ambrose had finally caught wind of my song. I spent the next several hours feeling vaguely sick to my stomach. This was exactly what I'd hoped to avoid, an opportunity for both Ambrose and Hem to settle scores with me. Worse still, this was bound to lower Loren's opinion of me even further, no matter what the outcome. I arrived in the master's hall early and was relieved to find the atmosphere much more relaxed than when I'd gone on the horns for malfeasance against him. Arwell and Elksadal smiled at me. Kilvin nodded. I was relieved that I had friends among the masters to balance out the enemies I'd made.
All right, the Chancellor said briskly. We've got ten minutes before we start admissions. I don't feel like getting behind schedule, so I'm going to move this right along. He looked around at the rest of the masters and saw only nods. Raylar Ambrose, make your case. Keep it under a minute. You have a copy of the song right there, Ambrose said hotly. It's slanderous. It defames my good name. It's a shameful way for a member of the Arcanum to behave. He swallowed, his jaw clenching. That's all. The Chancellor turned to me. Anything to say in your defense? It was in poor taste, Chancellor, but I didn't expect it to get around. I only sang it on one occasion, in fact. Fair enough. The Chancellor looked down at the paper in front of him. He cleared his throat. Raylar Ambrose, are you a donkey? Ambrose went stiff. No, sir, he said. Are you possessed of... He cleared his throat and read directly off the page. A pizzle bound to fizzle. A few of the masters struggled to control smiles. Elodin grinned openly. Ambrose flushed. No, sir. Then I'm afraid I don't see the problem, the Chancellor said curtly, letting the paper settle to the table. I move the charge of conduct unbecoming be replaced with undignified mischief. Seconded, Kilvin said. All in favor? All hands went up except for Hems and Brandeurs. Motion passed. Discipline will be set at a formal letter of apology tendered to... For God's sake, Arthur, Hem broke in. At least make it a public letter. The Chancellor glared at Hem, then shrugged. Formal letter of apology posted publicly before the fall term. All in favor? All hands were raised. Motion passed. The Chancellor leaned forward onto his elbows and looked down at Ambrose. Relar Ambrose, in the future you will refrain from wasting our time with spurious charges. I could feel the anger radiating off Ambrose. It was like standing near a fire. Yes, sir. Before I could feel smug, the Chancellor turned to me. And you, Elerkvoth, will comport yourself with more decorum in the future. His stern words were somewhat spoiled by the fact that Elodin had begun cheerfully humming the melody to Jackass Jackass next to him. I lowered my eyes and did my best to fight down a smile. Yes, sir. Dismissed. Ambrose turned on his heels and stormed off, but before he made it through the door, Elodin burst out singing, He's a well-bred ass, you can see it in his stride, and for a copper penny he will let you take a ride. The thought of writing a public apology was galling to me. But, as they say, the best revenge is living well. So I decided to ignore Ambrose and enjoy my new luxurious lifestyle at the Horse and Four. But I only managed two days of revenge. On the third day, the Horse and Four had a new owner. Short, jolly Caverin was replaced with a tall, thin man who informed me that my services were no longer required. I was told to vacate my rooms before nightfall. It was irritating, but I knew of at least four or five inns of similar quality on this side of the river that would jump at the chance to employ a musician with his talent pipes. But the innkeeper at Hollybush refused to speak with me. The White Heart and Queen's Crown were content with their current musicians. At the Golden Pony, I waited for over an hour before I realized I was being politely ignored. 
By the time I was turned away by the royal oak, I was fuming. It was Ambrose. I didn't know how he'd done it, but I knew it was him. Bribes, perhaps, or a rumor that any inn employing a certain red-haired musician would be losing the business of a large number of wealthy, noble customers. So I began working my way through the rest of the inns this side of the river. I'd already been turned away by the upper-class ones, but there were many respectable places left. Over the next several hours, I tried the Shepherd's Rest, the Boar's Head, Dog in the Wall, Staves Inn, and the Tabard. Ambrose had been very thorough. None of them were interested. It was early evening by the time I came to Anchors, and by that time, the only thing keeping me going was pure black temper. I was determined to try every single inn on this side of the river before I resorted to paying for a bunk and a meal chit again. When I came to the inn, Anchor himself was up on a ladder nailing a long piece of cedar siding back into place. He looked down at me as I came to stand near the foot of the ladder. So you're the one, he said. Beg your pardon, I said puzzled. Fellow stopped by and told me that hiring a young red-haired fellow would make for a great pile of unpleasantness. He nodded at my loot. You must be him. Well then, I said, adjusting the shoulder strap of my loot case, I won't waste your time. You aren't wasting it yet, he said as he climbed down the ladder, wiping his hands on his shirt. The place could use some music. I gave him a searching look. Aren't you worried? He spat. Damn little gadflies think they can buy the sun out of the sky, don't they? This particular one could probably afford it, I said grimly, and the moon too if he wanted the match set to use his bookends. He snorted derisively. He can't do a damn thing to me. I don't cater to his sort of folk, so he can't scare off my business, and I own this place my own self, so he can't buy it and fire me off like he did to poor old Caveran. Someone bought the horse and four? Anchor gave me a speculative look. You didn't know? I shook my head slowly, taking a moment to digest this piece of information. Ambrose had bought the horse and four just to spite me out of a job. No, he was too clever for that. He had probably loaned the money to a friend and passed it off as a business venture. How much had it cost? A thousand talents? Five thousand? I couldn't even guess how much an inn like the horse and four was worth. What was even more disturbing was how quickly he had managed it. It put things in sharp perspective for me. I'd known Ambrose was rich, but honestly, everyone was rich compared to me. I'd never bothered thinking about how wealthy he was, or how he could use it against me. I was getting a lesson in the sort of influence a wealthy baron's firstborn son could bring to bear. For the first time, I was glad for the university's strict code of conduct. If Ambrose was willing to go to these lengths, I could only imagine what drastic measures he would take if he didn't need to maintain a semblance of civility. I was jolted out of my reverie by a young woman leaning out the front door of the inn. Damn you, Anchor! she shouted. I'm not going to pull and carry while you stand out here scratching your arse! Get in here! Anchor muttered something under his breath as he picked up the ladder and he stowed it around the corner in the alleyway. What'd you do to this fellow anyway? Chop his mum? Wrote a song about him, actually. 
As Anchor opened the door of the inn, a gentle welter of conversation poured out onto the street. I'd be curious to hear a song like that, he grinned. Why don't you come give it a play? If you're sure, I said, not quite believing my luck. There's bound to be trouble. Trouble? He chuckled. What does a boy like you know about trouble? I was in trouble afore you were born. I been in trouble you don't even got words for. He turned to face me, still standing in the doorway. It's been a while since we've had music in here regular. Can't say as I like to go without. A proper tavern has music. I smiled. I have to agree with you there. Truth is, I'd have you in just to twist that rich tit's nose, Anchor said. But if you can play worth half a damn... He pushed the door open farther, making it an invitation. I could smell sawdust and honest sweat and baking bread. By the end of the night, it was all arranged. In exchange for playing four nights a span, I earned a tiny room on the third floor and the assurance that if I was around at mealtimes, I would be welcome to a bit of whatever was cooking in the pot. Admittedly, Anchor was getting the services of a talented musician for a bargain price, but it was a deal I was happy to make. Anything was better than going back to the muse and the silent scorn of my bunkmates. The ceiling of my tiny room slanted downward in two corners, making it seem even smaller than it really was. It would have been cluttered if there had been more than the few sticks of furniture, a small desk with a wooden chair and a single shelf above it. The bed was flat and narrow as any bunk in the muse. I set my slightly battered copy of Rhetoric and Logic on the shelf over the desk. My loot case leaned comfortably in the corner. Through the window I could see the lights of the university unblinking in the cool autumn air. I was home. Looking back, I count myself lucky that I ended up in Anchors. True, the crowds were not as wealthy as those at the Horse and Four, but they appreciated me in a way the nobles never had. And while my suite of rooms at the Horse and Four had been luxurious, my tiny room at Anchors was comfortable. Think in terms of shoes. You don't want the biggest you can find. You want the pair that fits. In time, that tiny room at Anchors came to be more of a home to me than anywhere else in the world. But at that particular moment, I was furious at what Ambrose had cost me. So when I sat down to write my public letter of apology, it dripped with venomous sincerity. It was a work of art. I beat my breast with remorse. I wailed and gnashed my teeth over the fact that I had maligned a fellow student. I also included a full copy of the lyrics, along with two new verses and full musical notation. I then apologized in excruciating detail about every vulgar, petty innuendo included in the song. I then spent four precious jots of my own money on paper and ink and called in the favor Jackson owed me for trading him my late admission slot. He had a friend that worked in a print shop, and with his help, we printed over a hundred copies of the letter. Then, the night before fall term began, Will, Sim, and I posted them on every flat surface we could find on both sides of the river. We used a lovely alchemical adhesive Simon had cooked up for the occasion. The stuff went on like paint, then dried clear as glass and hard as steel. If anyone wanted to remove the posts, they'd need a hammer and chisel. In hindsight, it was as foolish as taunting an angry bull, and if I had to guess, I'd say this particular piece of insolence was the main reason Ambrose eventually tried to kill me. Chapter 62 Leaves.
Under pointed advice from several sources, I limited myself to three fields of study in the upcoming term. I continued advanced sympathy with Alxa Dahl, held a shift in the Medica, and continued my apprenticeship under Manette. My time was pleasantly full, but not overburdened as it had been last term. I studied my artificing more doggedly than anything else. Since my search for a patron had come to a dead end, I knew my best chance for self-sufficiency lay in becoming an artificer. Currently, I worked for Kilvin and was given relatively menial jobs at relatively low pay. Once I finished my apprenticeship, that would improve. Better still, I would be able to pursue my own projects than sell them on commission for a profit. If. If I was able to keep ahead of my debt to Devi. If I could somehow continue to muster enough money for tuition. If I could finish my apprenticeship under Manette without getting myself killed or crippled by the dangerous work that was done in the fishery every day. Forty or fifty of us gathered in the workshop, waiting to see the new arrival. Some sat on the stone work tables to get a good view, while a dozen or so students gathered on the iron catwalks in the rafters among Kilvin's hanging lamps. I saw Manette up there. He was hard to miss, three times older than any of the other students, with his wild hair and grizzled beard. I headed up the stairs and made my way to his side. He smiled and clapped me on the shoulder. What are you doing here? I asked. I thought this was just for the Greenwood who haven't seen this stuff before. I thought I'd play the dutiful mentor today, he shrugged. Besides, this particular display is worth watching, if only for the expression on everyone's faces. Sitting atop one of the shop's heavy work tables was a massive cylindrical container about four feet high and two feet across. The edges were sealed without any bulky welds, and the metal had a dull, burnished look that made me guess it was more than simple steel. I let my gaze wander the room and was surprised to see Fella standing in the crowd, waiting for the demonstration to begin along with the rest of the students. I didn't know Fella worked here, I said to Manette. Manette nodded. Oh, sure. What, two terms now? I'm surprised I haven't noticed, I mused as I watched her talking to one of the other women in the crowd. So am I, Manette said with a low, knowing chuckle. But she's not here very often. She sculpts and works with cut tile and glass. She's here for the equipment, not the sigildry. The belling tower struck the hour outside, and Kilvin looked around, marking the faces of everyone there. I didn't doubt for a moment that he took note of exactly who was missing. For several span we will have this in the shop he said simply, gesturing to the metal container that stood nearby. Nearly ten gallons of a volatile transporting agent, Regum Ignal Neratum. He's the only one that calls it that, Manette said softly. It's bone tar. Bone tar? He nodded. It's caustic. Spill it on your arm, it'll eat through to the bone in about ten seconds. While everyone watched, Kilvin donned a thick leather glove and decanted about an ounce of dark liquid from the metal canister into a glass vial. It is important to chill the vial prior to decanting, as the agent boils at room temperature. He quickly sealed off the vial and held it up for everyone to see. The pressure cap is also essential, as the liquid is extremely volatile. As a gas, it exhibits surface tension and viscosity like mercury. It is heavier than air and does not dissipate. It coheres to itself. 
With no further preamble, Kilvin tossed the vial into a nearby firewell, and there was the sharp, clear sound of breaking glass. From this height, I could see the firewell must have been cleaned out specially for this occasion. It was empty, just a shallow circular pit of bare stone. It's a shame he's not more of a showman, Manette said softly to me. Elk's a doll could do this with a little more flair. The room was filled with a sharp crackling and hissing as the dark liquid warmed itself against the stone of the firewall and began to boil. From my high vantage, I could see a thick, oily smoke slowly filling the bottom of the well. It didn't behave like fog or smoke at all. Its edges didn't diffuse. It pooled and hung together like a tiny, dark cloud. Manette tapped me on the shoulder, and I looked at him just in time to avoid being blinded by the initial burst of flame as the cloud caught fire. There were dismayed noises from all around, and I guessed most of the others had been caught unaware. Manette grinned at me and gave a knowing wink. Thanks, I said, and turned back to watch. Jagged flames danced across the surface of the fog colored a bright sodium red. The additional heat made the dark fog boil faster, and it swelled until the flames were licking toward the top of the waist-high lip of the firewall. Even from where I stood on the catwalk, I could feel a gentle heat on my face. What the hell do you call that? I asked him quietly. Fire fog? We could, he responded. Kilvin would probably call it an atmospherically activated incendiary action. The fire flickered and died all at once, leaving the room filled with the acrid smell of hot stone. In addition to being highly corrosive, Kilvin said, in its gaseous state, the reagent is flammable. Once it warms sufficiently, it will burn on contact with air. The heat that this produces can cause a cascading exothermic reaction. Cascading huge goddamn fire, Manette said. You're better than a chorus. I said softly, trying to keep a straight face. Kilvin gestured. This container is designed to keep the agent cold and under pressure. Be mindful while it remains in the workshop. Avoid excessive heat in its immediate vicinity. With that, Kilvin turned and headed back into his office. That's it? I asked. Manette shrugged. What else needs to be said? Kilvin doesn't let anyone work here unless they're careful, and now everyone knows what to be careful of. Why is it even here? I asked. What's it good for? Scares the hell out of the first-termers, he grinned. Anything more practical than that? Fear is plenty practical, he said. But you can use it to make a different type of emitter for sympathy lamps. You get a bluish light instead of the ordinary red, a little easier on the eyes. Fetch outrageous prices. I looked down into the workshop, but couldn't see Fella anywhere in the milling bodies. I turned back to Manette. Want to keep playing dutiful mentor and show me how? He absently ran his hands through his wild hair and shrugged. Sure. I was playing at anchors later that night when I caught the eye of a beautiful girl sitting at one of the crowded tables in back. She looked remarkably like Denna, but I knew that to be nothing more than my own fancy. I hoped to see her enough that I had been catching glimpses of her out of the corner of my eye for days. My second glance told me the truth. It was Denna, singing along with half the folk in anchors to Drover's Daughters. She saw I was looking in her direction and waved. 
Her appearance caught me so much by surprise that I completely forgot what my fingers were doing and my song fell to pieces. Everyone laughed and I took a grand bow to hide my embarrassment. They cheered and booed me in equal amounts for a minute or so, enjoying my failure more than they had the song itself. Such is human nature. I waited for their attention to drift away from me, then made my way casually to where Denna was sitting. She stood to greet me. I'd heard you were playing on this side of the river, she said, but I can't imagine how you keep the job if you fall apart every time a girl gives you a wink. I felt myself flush a little. It doesn't happen that often. The winking or the falling apart? Unable to think of a response, I felt myself flush redder, and she laughed. How long will you be playing tonight? she asked. Not much longer, I lied. I owed Anchor at least another hour. She brightened. Good. Come away with me afterward. I need someone to walk with. Hardly believing my good luck, I made a bow to her. At your service, certainly. Let me go and finish up. I made my way to the bar where Anchor and two of his serving girls were busy pulling drinks. Unable to catch his eye, I grabbed hold of his apron as he hurried past me. He jerked to a stop and barely avoided spilling a tray of drinks onto a table of customers. God's teeth, boy! What's the matter with you? Anchor, I've got to go. I can't stay till closing tonight. His face soured. Crowds like this don't come for the asking. They ain't going to stay without a little song or something to entertain them. I'll do one more song, a long one, but I've got to go after that. I gave him a desperate look. I swear I'll make it up to you. He looked at me more closely. Are ye in trouble? I shook my head. It's a girl, then. He turned his head at the sound of voices calling for more drinks, then waved me away briskly. Fine go, but mind you, make it a good long song, and you'll owe me. I moved to the front of the room and clapped my hands for the room's attention. Once the room was moderately quiet, I began to play. By the time I struck the third chord, everyone knew what it was. Tinker Tanner, the oldest song in the world. I took my hands from the lute and began to clap. Soon everyone was pounding out the rhythm in unison, feet against the floor, mugs on tabletops. The sound was almost overwhelming but it faded appropriately when I sang the first verse. Then I led the room in the chorus with everyone singing along, some with their own words, some in their own keys. I moved to a nearby table as I finished my second verse and led the room in the chorus again. Then I gestured expectantly toward the table to sing a verse of their own. It took a couple of seconds for them to realize what I wanted, but the expectation of the whole room was enough to encourage one of the more tipsy students to shout out a verse of his own. It gained him thunderous applause and cheers. Then, as everyone sang the chorus again, I moved to another table and did the same thing. Before too long, folk were taking initiative to sing out their own verses when the chorus was over. I made my way to where Denna waited by the outer door, and together we slipped out into the early evening twilight. That was cleverly done, she said as we began to stroll away from the tavern. How long do you think they'll keep it up? That will all depend on how quickly Anchor manages to pull down drinks for the lot of them. I came to a stop at the edge of the alley and ran between the back of Anchor's tavern and the bakery next door. If you'll excuse me a moment, I have to put my loot away. 
In an alley? she asked. In my room. Stepping lightly, I moved quickly up the side of the building, right foot rain barrel, left foot window ledge, left hand iron drain pipe, and I swung myself onto the lip of the first story roof. I hopped across the alley to the roof of the bakery and smiled at her startled intake of breath. From there, it was a short stroll upward, and I hopped back across to the second-story roof of anchors. Tripping the latch to my window, I reached through and set my loot lightly on my bed before heading back down the way I had come. Does Anchor charge a penny every time you use his stairs? she asked as I neared the ground. I stepped down from the rain barrel and brushed my hands against my pants. I come and go at odd hours. I explained easily as I fell into step beside her. Am I correct in understanding that you are looking for a gentleman to walk with you tonight? A smile curved her lips as she looked sideways at me. Quite. That is unfortunate, I sighed. I am no gentleman. Her smile grew. I think that you are close enough. I would like to be closer. Then come walking with me. It would please me greatly. However, I slowed my walk a bit, my smile fading into a more serious expression. What about Savoy? Her mouth made a line. He staked a claim on me then? Well, not as such, but there are certain protocols involved. A gentleman's agreement? she asked acidly. More like honor among thieves, if you will. She looked me in the eye. Quoth, she said seriously, steal me. I bowed and made a sweeping gesture toward the world. At your command. We continued our walk. The moon was shining, making the houses and shops around us seem washed and pale. How is Savoy, anyway? I haven't seen him for a while. She waved a hand to dismiss the thought of him. I haven't either, not for lack of trying on his part. My spirits rose a bit. Really? She rolled her eyes. Roses! I swear you men have all your romance from the same worn book. Flowers are a good thing, a sweet thing to give a lady. But it's always roses, always red, and always perfect hothouse blooms when they can come by them. She turned to face me. When you see me, do you think of roses? I knew enough to shake my head, smiling. What then? If not a rose, what do you see? Trapped. I looked her up and down once, as if trying to decide. Well, I said slowly, you'll have to forgive us men. You see, it's not an easy thing to pick a flower to fit a girl if you'll excuse my expression. She grimaced. Pick a flower? Yes, I'll excuse it this time. The trouble is, when you gift a girl with flowers, your choice can be construed so many different ways. A man might give you a rose because he feels you are beautiful, or because he fancies their shade or shape or softness similar to your lips. Roses are expensive, and perhaps he wishes to show through a valuable gift that you are valuable to him. You make a good case for roses, she said. The fact remains, I do not like them. Pick another flower to suit me. But what suits? 
When a man gives you a rose, what you see may not be what he intends. You may think he sees you as delicate or frail. Perhaps you dislike a suitor who considers you all sweet and nothing else. Perhaps the stem is thorned, and you assume he thinks you likely to hurt a hand too quick to touch. But if he trims the thorns, you might think he has no liking for a thing that can defend itself with sharpness. There's so many ways a thing can be interpreted, I said. What is a careful man to do? She cast a sidelong look at me. If the man is you, I'd guess he would spin clever words and hope the question was forgotten. She tilted her head. It isn't. What flower would you pick for me? Very well. Let me think. I turned to look at her, then away. Let's run down a list. Dandelion might be good. It's bright, and there is a brightness about you. But dandelion is common, and you are not a common creature. Roses we have dealt with and discarded. Nightshade, no. Nettle, perhaps. She made a face of mock outrage and showed me her tongue. I tapped a finger to my lips as if reconsidering. You are correct, except for your tongue, it doesn't suit you. She huffed and crossed her arms. Wild oat, I exclaimed, startling a laugh from her. Its wildness suits you, but it's a small flower and bashful. For that as well as other, I cleared my throat, more obvious reasons, I think we'll pass the wild oat by. Pity, she said. Daisy is a good one. I bowled ahead, not letting her distract me. Tall and slender, willing to grow by roadsides. A hardy flower, not too delicate. Daisy is self-reliant. I think it might suit you. But let us continue in our list. Iris? Too gaudy. Thistle? Too distant. Violet? Too brief. Trillium? Hmm. There's a thing. A fair flower. Doesn't take to cultivation. The texture of the petals... I made the boldest motion of my young life and brushed the side of her neck gently with a pair of fingers. Smooth enough to match your skin, just barely. But it is too close to the ground. This is quite a bouquet you've brought for me, she said gently. Unconsciously, she raised a hand to the side of her neck where I had touched her, held it there for a moment, then let it fall. A good sign or a bad one? Was she wiping my touch away or pressing it close? Uncertainty filled me more strongly than before, and I decided to press ahead with no more blatant risks. I stopped walking. Sell us, flower. She stopped and turned to look at me. All this, and you pick a flower I don't know? What is a cellus flower? Why? It is a deep red flower that grows on a strong vine. Its leaves are dark and delicate. They grow best in shadowy places, but the flower itself finds stray sunbeams to bloom in. I looked at her. That suits you. There is much of you that is both shadow and light. It grows in deep forests and is rare because only skilled folk can tend one without harming it. It has a wondrous smell and is much sought and seldom found. I paused and made a point of examining her. Yes. 
Since I'm forced to pick, I would choose Celis. She looked at me, looked away. You think too much of me. I smiled. Perhaps you think too little of yourself. She caught a piece of my smile and shone it back at me. You were closer earlier in your list. Daisies, simple and sweet. Daisies are the way to win my heart. I will remember it. We started walking again. What flower would you bring me? I teased, thinking to catch her off guard. A willow blossom, she said without a second's hesitation. I thought for a long minute. Do willows have blossoms? She looked up and to the side, thinking. I don't think so. A rare treat to be given one, then, I chuckled. Why a willow blossom? You remind me of a willow, she said easily. Strong, deep-rooted, and hidden. You move easily when the storm comes, but never farther than you wish. I lifted my hands as if fending off a blow. Cease these sweet words, I protested. You seek to bend me to your will, but it will not work. Your flattery is naught to me but wind. She watched me for a moment, as if to make sure my tirade was complete. Beyond all other trees, she said with a curl of a smile on her elegant mouth, the willow moves to the wind's desire. The stars told me five hours had passed, but it seemed hardly any time at all before we came to the oaken oar where she was staying in Imre. At the doorway there was a moment that lasted for an hour as I considered kissing her. I had been tempted by the thought a dozen times on the road as we talked, when we paused on Stonebridge to watch the river in the moonlight, underneath a linden tree in one of Imre's parks. At those times I felt a tension building between us, something almost tangible. When she looked sideways at me with her secret smile, the tilt of her head, the way she almost faced me, made me think she must be hoping for me to do something. Put my arm around her? Kiss her? How did one know? How could I be certain? I couldn't. So I resisted the pull of her. I did not want to presume too much, did not want to offend her or embarrass myself. What's more, Deoc's warning had made me uncertain. Perhaps what I felt was nothing more than Denna's natural charm, her charisma. Like all boys of my age, I was an idiot when it came to women. The difference between me and the others is that I was painfully aware of my ignorance, while others, like Simon, bumbled around, making asses of themselves with their clumsy courting. I could think of nothing worse than making some unwelcome advance toward Denna and having her laugh at the awkwardness of my attempt. I hate nothing more than doing things badly. So, I made my goodbyes and watched her enter the side door of the oaken oar. I took a deep breath and could hardly keep from laughing or dancing about. I was so full of her, the smell of the wind through her hair, the sound of her voice, the way the moonlight cast shadows across her face. Then, slowly, my feet settled to the ground. Before I had taken six steps, I sagged like a sail when the wind fades. As I walked back through the town, past sleeping houses and dark inns, my mood swung from elation to doubt in the space of three brief breaths. I had ruined 
everything. All the things I had said, things that seemed so clever at the time, were in fact the worst things a fool could say. Even now she was inside, breathing a sigh of relief to finally be rid of me. But she had smiled, had laughed. She hadn't remembered our first meeting on the road from Tarbian. I couldn't have made that much of an impression on her. Steal me, she had said. I should have been bolder and kissed her at the end. I should have been more cautious. I had talked too much. I had said too little. Chapter 63 Walking and Talking Willem and Simmon were already well into their lunches when I arrived at our usual spot in the courtyard. Sorry, I said as I set my loot on the cobblestones near the bench. Got caught up haggling. I had been on the other side of the river buying a dram of quicksilver and a pouch of sea salt. The last had cost me dearly, but for once I wasn't concerned about money. If fortune smiled on me, I would be moving up the ranks in the fishery soon, and that meant my money troubles would soon be over. While shopping in Imre, I had also, quite by coincidence, wandered past the inn where Denna was staying. But she hadn't been there, or at the Aeolian, or in the park where we'd stopped to talk last night. All the same, I was in a fine mood. I tipped my loot case onto its side and flipped it open so the sun could warm the new strings, helping them stretch. Then I settled onto the stone bench under the pennant pole next to my two friends. So, where were you last night? Simmon asked too casually. It was only then I remembered that the three of us had planned to meet up with Fenton and play corners last night. Seeing Denna had completely driven the plan from my mind. Oh, God, I'm sorry, Sim. How long did you wait for me? He gave me a look. I'm sorry, I repeated, hoping I looked as guilty as I felt. I forgot. Sim grinned, shrugging it off. It's not a big deal. When we figured out you weren't going to show, we went to the library to drink and look at girls. Was Fenton mad? Furious, Willem said calmly, finally entering the conversation. Said he was going to box your ears next time he saw you. Sim's grin widened. He called you a fluff-headed Elyr with no respect for his betters. Made claims about your parentage and sexual tendency toward animals, Willem said with a straight face. In the Talon's cassock, Simmons sang with his mouth full. Then he laughed and started to choke. I pounded him on the back. Where were you? Willem asked while Sim tried to get his breath back. Anchor said you left early. For some reason, I found myself reluctant to talk about Denna. I met someone. Someone more important than us? Willem asked in a flat tone that could be taken for dry humor or criticism. A girl, I admitted. One of his eyebrows went up. The one you've been chasing around? I haven't been chasing anyone, I protested. She found me at Anchor's. Good sign, Willem said. Simmon nodded wisely, then looked up with a playful glint in his eye. So, did you make any music? He nudged me with an elbow and wagged his eyebrows up and down. A little duet? He looked too ridiculous for me to be offended. No music. She just wanted someone to walk her home. Walk her home? He said suggestively, wagging his eyebrows again. 
I found it less amusing this time. It was dark out, I said seriously. I just escorted her back to Imre. Oh, Sim said disappointed. You left anchors early, Will said slowly, and we waited for an hour. Does it take you two hours to walk to Imre and back? It was a long walk, I admitted. How long is long? Simon asked. A few hours. I looked away. Six. Six hours? Sim asked. Come on. I think I'm entitled to a few details after listening to you ramble on about her for the last two span. I began to bristle. I don't ramble. We just walked, I said. Talked. Sim looked doubtful. Oh, come on. For six hours? Willem tapped Simmons' shoulder. He's telling the truth. Simmons glanced over at him. Why do you say that? He sounds more sincere than that when he lies. If the two of you will be quiet for a minute or so, I'll tell you the whole of it. Fair? They nodded. I looked down at my hands, trying to collect my thoughts, but they wouldn't fall into any sort of orderly pattern. We took the long way back to Imre, stopped on Stonebridge for a while, went to a park outside town, sat by the river. We talked about nothing, really. Places we've been, songs. I realized I was rambling and shut my mouth. I picked my next words carefully. I thought about doing more than walking and talking, but I stopped. I had no idea what to say. They were both silent for a moment. I'll be, Willem marveled. The mighty quoth brought low by a woman. If I didn't know you, I'd think you were scared, Simmons said, not quite seriously. You're damn right I'm scared, I said in a low voice, wiping my hands nervously against my pants. You'd be too if you'd ever met her. It's all I can do to sit here instead of running off to Imre, hoping to see her through a store window or pass her crossing the street. I gave a shaky smile. Go then, Simmons smiled and gave me a little push. Godspeed! If I knew a woman like that, I wouldn't be here eating lunch with the likes of you two. He brushed his hair away from his eyes and gave me another push with his free hand. Go on. I stayed where I was. It's not that easy. Nothing's ever easy with you, Willem muttered. Of course it's that easy, Simmons laughed. Go tell her some of what you just told us. Right, I said with dark sarcasm, as if it were simple as singing. Besides, I don't know if she would want to hear it. She's something special. What would she want with me? Simon gave me a frank stare. She came looking for you. She obviously wants something. There was a moment of silence, and I hurried to change the subject while I had the chance. Manette's given me permission to start my journeyman project. Already? Sim gave me an anxious look. Will Kilvin go along with it? He's not a big one for cutting corners. I didn't cut any corners, I said. I just pick things up quickly. Willem gave an amused snort, and Sim spoke up before the two of us started to bicker. What are you doing for your project? Sympathy lamp? 
Everyone does a lamp, Willem said. I nodded. I want to do something different, maybe a gearwin, but Manette told me to stick to the lamp. The belling tower struck four. I got to my feet and gathered up my loot case, ready to head to class. You should tell her, Simmons said. If you like a girl, you have to let her know. How's that working out for you so far? I said, irritated that Sim, of all people, would presume to give me relationship advice. Statistically speaking, how often has that strategy paid off, in your vast experience? Willem made a point of looking elsewhere while Sim and I glared at each other. I looked away first, feeling guilty. Besides, there's nothing to tell, I muttered. I like spending time with her, and now I know where she's staying. That means I can find her when I go looking. Chapter 64 Nine in the Fire The next day, as luck would have it, I made a trip to Imre. Then, since I just happened to be in the neighborhood, I stopped by the Oaken Ore. The owner didn't know the name Denna or Diane, but a young, lovely, dark-haired girl named Dinna was renting a room there. She wasn't in right now, but if I cared to leave a note... I declined his offer, comforted by the fact that since I now knew where Denna was staying, finding her would be relatively easy. However, I had no luck catching Denna at the Oaken Ore over the next two days. On the third day, the owner informed me that Denna had left in the middle of the night, taking all her things and leaving her bill unpaid. After stopping by a few taverns at random and not finding her, I walked back to the university, not knowing if I should be worried or irritated. Three more days and five more fruitless trips to Imre. Neither Diok nor Threp had heard any news of her. Diok told me that it was her nature to disappear like this, and that looking for her would serve about as much purpose as calling for a cat. I knew it to be good advice, and ignored it. I sat in Kilvin's office trying to look calm as the great shaggy master turned my sympathy lamp over in his huge hands. It was my first solo project as an artificer. I'd cast the plates and ground the lenses. I'd doped the emitter without giving myself arsenic poisoning. Most importantly, mine was the ailer and the intricate sigildry that turned the individual pieces into a functioning handheld sympathy lamp. If Kilvin approved of the finished product, he would sell it and I would receive part of the money as a commission. More importantly, I would become an artificer in my own right, albeit a fledgling one. I would be trusted to pursue my own projects with a large degree of freedom. It was a big step forward in the ranks of the fishery, a step toward gaining the rank of Relar, and more importantly, my financial freedom. Finally, he looked up. This is finally made, Ilirkvall, he said, but the design is not typical. I nodded. I made a few changes, sir. If you turn it on, you'll see... Kilvin made a low sound that could have been an amused chuckle or an irritated grunt. He set the lamp down on the table and walked around the room, snuffing all the lamps but one. Do you know how many sympathy lamps I have had explode in my hands over the years, Ilirkvoth? I swallowed and shook my head. How many? None, he said gravely, because I am always careful. I am always absolutely sure of what I hold in my hands. You must learn patience, Ilirkvoth. A moment in the mind is worth nine in the fire. 
I dropped my eyes and tried to look appropriately chastised. Kilvin reached out and extinguished the one remaining lamp, bringing the room to near total darkness. There was a pause. Then a distinctive reddish light welled from the hand lamp to shine against a wall. The light was very dim, less than that of a single candle. The action on the switch is graded, I said quickly. It's more of a rheostat than a switch, really. Kilvin nodded. Cleverly done. That is not something most bother with on a small lamp such as this. The light grew brighter, then dimmer, then brighter again. The sigildry itself seems quite good, Kilvin said slowly as he set the lamp down on the table. But the focus of your lens is flawed. There is very little diffusion. It was true. Instead of lighting the whole room as was typical, my lamp revealed a narrow slice of the room, the corner of the work table and half of the large black slate that stood against the wall. The rest of the room remained dark. It's intentional, I said. There are lanterns like that, bullseye lanterns. Kilvin was little more than a dark shape across the table. Such things are known to me, Lirkwald. His voice held a hint of reproach. They are much used for unsavory business. Business Arcanus should have no mingling with. I thought sailors used them, I said. Burglars use them, Kilvin said seriously. And spies, and other folk who do not wish to reveal their business during the dark hours of night. My vague anxiety grew suddenly sharper. I had considered this meeting mostly a formality. I knew I was a skilled artificer, better than many who had worked much longer in Kilvin's shop. Now I was suddenly worried that I might have made a mistake and wasted nearly thirty hours of work on the lamp, not to mention over a whole talent of my own money that I'd invested in materials. Kilvin made a non-committal grunt and muttered under his breath. The half-dozen oil lamps around the room sputtered back into life, filling the room with natural light. I marveled at the master's casual execution of a six-way binding. I couldn't even guess where he had drawn the energy from. It's just that everyone makes a sympathy lamp for their first project, I said to fill the silence. Everyone always follows the same old schema. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to see if I could make something new. I expect you wanted to demonstrate your extreme cleverness, Kilvin said matter-of-factly. You wished to not only finish your apprenticeship in half the usual time, you wanted to bring me a lamp of your own improved design. Let us be frank, Ilirkvoth. You're making this lamp as an attempt to show that you are better than the ordinary apprentice, is it not? As he said this, Kilvin looked directly at me, and for a moment there was none of his characteristic distraction lurking behind his eyes. I felt my mouth go dry. Underneath his shaggy beard and heavily accented A. Turin, Kilvin had a mind like a diamond. What had made me think I could lie to him and get away with it? Of course I wanted to impress you, Master Kilvin, I said, looking down. I would think that that goes without saying. Do not grovel, he said. False modesty does not impress me. I looked up and squared my shoulders. In that case, Master Kilvin, I am better. I learn faster, I work harder, my hands are more nimble. 
My mind is more curious. However, I also expect you to know this for yourself without my telling you. Kilvin nodded. That is better. And you are right. I do know these things. He thumbed the lamp on and off while pointing it at different things around the room. And in all fairness, I am duly impressed with your skill. The lamp is tidily made. The signature is quite cunning. The engraving precise. It is clever work. I flushed with pleasure at the compliments. But there is more to artificing than simply skill, Kilvin said as he laid the lamp down and spread his huge hands out flat on either side of it. I cannot sell this lamp. It would gravitate to the wrong people. If a burglar were caught with such a tool, it would reflect badly on all arcanists. You have completed your apprenticeship and distinguished yourself in terms of skill. I relaxed a bit. But your greater judgment is still somewhat in question. The lamp itself we will melt down for metals, I suppose. You're going to melt down my lamp? I had worked for a full span on the lamp and invested almost all the money I had on the purchase of raw materials. I had been counting on making a tidy profit once Kilvin sold it. But now... Kilvin's expression was firm. We are all responsible for maintaining the university's reputation, Elirkvoth. An item like this in the wrong hands would reflect badly on all of us. I was trying to think of some way to persuade him when he waved a hand at me, shooing me toward the door. Go tell Manette your good news. Disheartened, I made my way out into the workshop and was greeted by the sounds of a hundred hands busily chiseling wood, chipping stone, and hammering metal. The air was thick with the smell of etching acids, hot iron, and sweat. I spotted Manette off in the corner, loading tile into a kiln. I waited until he closed the door and backed away, mopping sweat off his forehead with the sleeve of his shirt. How did it go? he asked. Did you pass, or am I going to be stuck holding your hand for another term? I passed, I said dismissively. You were right about the modifications. He wasn't impressed. Told you, he said without any particular smugness. You have to remember that I've been here longer than any ten students. When I tell you the masters are conservatives at heart, I'm not just making noise. I know. Manette ran a hand idly over his wild gray beard as he eyed the heat waves rolling off the brick kiln. Any thoughts on what you're going to do with yourself now that you're a free agent? I was thinking of doping a batch of the blue lamp emitters, I said. The money is good, Manette said slowly. Risky, though. You know I'm careful, I reassured him. Risky is risky, Manette said. I trained a fellow maybe ten years back. What was his name? He tapped his head for a moment, then shrugged. He made a little slip. Manette snapped his fingers sharply. But that's all it takes. Got burned pretty badly and lost a couple fingers. Wasn't much of an artificer afterward. I looked across the room at Kamar with his missing eye and bald, scarred head. Point taken. I flexed my hands anxiously as I looked over at the burnished metal canister. People had been nervous around it for a day or two after Kilvin's demonstration, but it had soon become just another piece of equipment. The truth was, there were ten thousand different ways to die in the fishery if you were careless. Bone tar just happened to be the newest, most exciting way to kill yourself. I decided to change the subject. 
Can I ask you a question? Fire away, he said, glancing at the nearby kiln. Get it? Fire away? I rolled my eyes. Would you say you know the university as well as anyone? He nodded. As well as anyone alive. All the dirty little secrets. I lowered my voice a bit. So, if you wanted to, you could get into the archives without anyone knowing? Manette's eyes narrowed. I could, he said, but I wouldn't. I started to say something, but he cut me off with more than a hint of exasperation. Listen, my boy, we've talked about this before. Just be patient. You need to give Lauren more time to cool off. It's only been a term or so. It's been half a year. He shook his head. That only seems like a long time to you because you're young. Believe me, it's fresh in Lauren's mind. Just spend another term or so impressing Kilvin, then ask him to intercede on your behalf. Trust me, it'll work. I put on my best hangdog expression. You could just... He shook his head firmly. No, 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 I won't show you. I won't tell you, I won't draw you a map. He softened his expression and lay a hand on my shoulder, obviously trying to take some of the sting out of his bald refusal. Hey, Lou, anyway, why all the hurry? You're young. You have all the time in the world. He leveled a finger at me. But if you get expelled, it's forever. And that's what'll happen if you're caught sneaking into the archives. I let my shoulders slump, dejected. You're right, I suppose. That's right, I'm right, Manette said, turning back to look at the kiln. Now run along. You're giving me an ulcer. I walked away, thinking furiously about Manette's advice and what he had let slip in our conversation. In general, I knew his advice was good. If I were well behaved for a term or two, I would get access to the archives. It was the safe, simple route to what I wanted. Unfortunately, I couldn't afford patience. I was painfully aware of the fact that this term would be my last unless I could find a way to make a great deal of money rather quickly. No. Patience wasn't an option for me. On my way out, I peered inside Kilvin's office and saw him sitting at his work table, idly thumbing my lamp on and off. His expression was distracted again, and I didn't doubt that his vast machine of a brain was busy thinking about a half-dozen things all at once. I knocked on the doorframe to get his attention. Master Kilvin? He didn't turn to look at me. Yes? Could I buy the lamp? I asked. I could use it to read at night. Right now I'm still spending money on candles. I briefly considered wringing my hands before deciding against it. Too melodramatic. Kilvin thought for a long moment. The lamp in his hand gave a soft tick as he switched it on again. You cannot buy what your own hands build, he said. The time and materials that made it were yours. He held it out to me. I stepped into the room to take it, but Kilvin drew his hand back and met my eye. I must make clear one thing, he said seriously. You cannot sell or lend this, not even to someone you trust. If it is lost, it would eventually end up in the wrong hands and be used for skulking about in the dark, doing dishonest things. I give you my word, Master Kilvin. No one will be using it but me. 
As I left the shop, I was careful to keep my expression neutral, but inside I was wearing a wide, satisfied smile. Manette had told me exactly what I needed to know. There was another way into the archives, a hidden way. If it existed, I could find it. Chapter 65 Spark I lured Will and Sim to the Aeolian with the promise of free drinks, the one piece of generosity I could afford. You see, while Ambrose's interference might keep me from gaining a wealthy noble as a patron, there were still plenty of regular music lovers who bought me more drinks than I could comfortably consume on my own. There were two simple solutions to this. I could become a drunk, or use an arrangement that has been around for as long as there have been taverns and musicians. Attend to me as I draw back the curtain to reveal a long-kept minstrel secret. Let's say you are out at an inn. You listen to me play. You laugh, cry, and generally marvel at my craft. Afterward, you want to show your appreciation, but you don't have the wherewithal to make a substantial gift of money like some wealthy merchant or noble. So you offer to buy me a drink. I, however, have already had a drink or several drinks, or perhaps I am trying to keep a clear head. Do I refuse your offer? Of course not. That would just waste a valuable opportunity and most likely leave you feeling snubbed. Instead, I graciously accept and ask bartender for a Graysdale mead, or a Sauntern, or a particular vintage of white wine. The name of the drink isn't the important thing. The important thing is that the drink doesn't really exist. The bartender gives me water. You pay for the drink. I thank you graciously, and everyone walks away happy. Later, the bartender, the tavern, and the musician share your money three ways. Better yet, some sophisticated drinking establishments allow you to keep drinks as a sort of credit for future use. The Aeolian was just such a place. That is how, despite my poverty-stricken state, I managed to bring an entire dark bottle of Scutton back to the table where Will and Sim waited. Will eyed it appreciatively as I sat down. What's the special occasion? Kilvin approved my sympathy lamp. You're looking at the Arcanum's newest journeyman artificer, I said a little smugly. Most students spend at least three or four terms finishing their apprenticeships. I kept my mixed success with the lamp to myself. About time. Will said dryly. Took you what, almost three months? People were beginning to say that you had lost your touch. I thought you'd be more pleased, I said as I peeled the wax off the top of the bottle. My days of being a pinchpenny might be coming to an end. Sim made a dismissive noise. You stand your round well enough, he said. I drink to your continued success as an artificer. Will said, sliding his cup toward me. Knowing it will lead to more drinks in the future. Plus, I said as I stripped the last of the wax away, there's always the chance that if I get you drunk enough, you'll let me slip into the archives someday when you're working the desk. I kept my tone carefully jovial as I glanced up at him to gauge his reaction. Will took a slow drink, not meeting my eye. I can't. Disappointment nestled sourly in the pit of my stomach. I made a dismissive gesture, as if I couldn't believe he'd taken my joke seriously. Oh, I know. I thought about it, Willem interrupted. 
seeing as how you didn't deserve the punishment you got, and I know how much it's been bothering you. Will took a drink. Lauren occasionally suspends students. A handful of days for too loud talking in the tomes. A few span if they are careless with a book. But band is different. It hasn't happened in years. Everyone knows. If anyone saw you... He shook his head. I'd lose my position as Scrive. We could both get expelled. Don't beat yourself up, I said. Just the fact that you considered it means... We're getting maudlin here, Sim broke in, knocking his glass against the table. Open the bottle and we'll drink to Kilvin being so impressed that he talks to Lauren and gets you unbanned from the archives. I smiled and began to work a screw into the cork. I have a better plan, I said. I vote we drink to the perpetual confusation and botherment of a certain Ambrose Jackis. I think we can all agree to that, Will said, raising his glass. Great God, Simmons said in a hushed tone. Look what Dioc found. What's that? I asked, concentrating on getting the cork out all in one piece. He managed to get the most beautiful woman in the place again. Sim's grumble was uncharacteristically surly. It's enough to make you hate a man. Sim, your taste in women is questionable at best. The cork came free with a pleasing sound, and I held it up triumphantly for them to see. Neither of them paid me any attention, their eyes pinned to the doorway. I turned to look, paused. That's Denna. Sim turned back to look at me. Denna? I frowned. Diane, Denna. She's the one I told you about before. The one who sang with me. She goes by a lot of different names. I don't know why. Willem gave me a flat look. That's your girl? He asked, his voice thick with disbelief. Deox girl, Simon amended gently. It seemed to be the case. Handsome, muscular Deoc was talking to her in that easy way he had. Denna laughed and put an arm around him in a casual embrace. I felt a heavy weight settle in my chest as I watched them talk. Then Deoc turned and pointed. She followed his gesture, met my eyes, and lit up as she smiled at me. I returned the smile by reflex alone. My heart began to beat again. I waved her over. After a quick word to Dioc, she began to make her way through the crowd toward us. I took a quick drink of Scutton as Simmon turned to look at me with an almost reverent disbelief. I had never seen Denna dressed in anything other than traveling clothes, but tonight she was wearing a dark green dress that left her arms and shoulders bare. She was stunning. She knew it. She smiled. The three of us stood as she approached. I was hoping to find you here, she said. I gave a small bow. I was hoping to be found. These are two of my best friends. Simmon, Sim smiled sunnily and brushed his hair away from his eyes. And Willem, Will nodded. This is Diane. She lounged into a chair. What brings such a group of handsome young men out on the town tonight? We're plotting the downfall of our enemies, Simmons said, and celebrating, I hurried to add. Willem raised his glass in a salute. Confusion to the enemy. Simmons and I followed suit, but I stopped when I remembered Denna didn't have a glass. I'm sorry, I said, 
Can I buy you a drink? I was hoping you would buy me dinner, she said, but I would feel guilty about stealing you away from your friends. My mind raced as I tried to think of a tactful way to extricate myself. You're making the assumption that we want him here, Willem said with a straight face. You'd do us a favor if you took him away. Denna leaned forward intently, a smile brushing the pink corners of her mouth. Really? Willem nodded gravely. He drinks even more than he talks. She darted a teasing look at me. That much? Besides, Simmon chimed in innocently, he'd sulk for days if he missed a chance to be with you. He'll be completely worthless to us if you leave him here. My face grew hot and I had the sudden urge to throttle Sim. Denna laughed sweetly. I suppose I better take him then. She stood with emotion like a willow wand, bending to the wind, and offered me her hand. I took it. I hope to see you again, Willem, Simmon. They waved and we started to make our way to the door. I like them, she said. Willem is a stone in deep water. Simmon is like a boy splashing in a brook. Her description startled a laugh from me. I couldn't have said it better. You mentioned dinner. I lied she said with an easy delight, but I would love the drink you offered me. How about the taps? She wrinkled her nose. Too many old men, not enough trees. It is a good night to be out of doors. I gestured toward the door. Lead the way. She did. I basked in her reflected light and the stares of envious men. As we left the Aeolian, even Dioc looked a little jealous, but as I passed him, I caught a glimmer of something other in his eye. Sadness? Pity? I spared no time for it. I was with Denna. We bought a loaf of dark bread and a bottle of a Venice strawberry wine, then found a private place in one of the many public gardens scattered throughout Imre. The first of autumn's falling leaves danced along the streets beside us. Denna removed her shoes and danced lightly through the shadows, delighting in the feel of the grass beneath her feet. We settled on a bench beneath a great spreading willow, then abandoned it and found more comfortable seats on the ground at the foot of the tree. The bread was thick and dark, and tearing chunks of it gave us distraction for our hands. The wine was sweet and light, and after Denna kissed the bottle, it left her lips wet for an hour. It had the desperate feel of the last warm night of summer, we spoke of everything and nothing, and all the while I could hardly breathe for the nearness of her, the way she moved, the sound of her voice as it touched the autumn air. Your eyes were far away just then, she said. What were you thinking? I shrugged, buying a moment to think. I couldn't tell her the truth. I knew every man must compliment her, bury her in flattery more cloying than roses. I took a subtler path. One of the masters at the university once told me that there were seven words that would make a woman love you. I made a deliberately casual shrug. I was just wondering what they were. Is that why you talk so much? Hoping to come on them by accident? I opened my mouth to retort. Then, seeing her dancing eyes, I pressed my lips together and tried to fight down my embarrassed flush. She lay a hand on my arm. Don't go quiet on my account, Quoth, she said gently. I'd miss the sound of your voice. 
She took a drink of wine. Anyway, you shouldn't bother wondering. You spoke them to me when we first met. You said, I was just wondering why you're here. She made a flippant gesture. From that moment, I was yours. My mind flashed back to our first meeting in Rowan's caravan. I was stunned. I didn't think you remembered. She paused in tearing a piece of dark bread away from the loaf and looked up at me quizzically. Remember what? Remembered me. Remembered our meeting in Rowan's caravan. Come now, she teased. How could I forget the red-haired boy who left me for the university? I was too stunned to point out that I hadn't left her. Not really. You never mentioned it. Neither did you, she countered. Perhaps I thought that you had forgotten me. Forget you? How could I? She smiled at that, but looked down at her hands. You might be surprised what men forget, she said, then lightened her tone. But then again, perhaps not. I don't doubt that you've forgotten things, being a man yourself. I remember your name, Denna. It sounded good to say it to her. Why did you take a new one? Or was Denna just the name that you were wearing on the road to Annalyn? Denna, she said softly. I'd almost forgotten her. She was a silly girl. She was like a flower unfolding. I stopped being Denna years ago, it seems. She rubbed her bare arms and looked around as if she was suddenly uneasy that someone might find us here. Should I call you Diane, then? Would you like it better? The wind stirred the hanging branches of the willow as she cocked her head to look at me. Her hair mimicked the motion of the trees. You are kind. I think I like Denna best from you. It sounds different when you say it. Gentle. Denna it is, I said firmly. What happened in Annalyn, anyway? A leaf floated down and landed in her hair. She brushed it away absent-mindedly. Nothing pleasant, she said, avoiding my eyes. But nothing unexpected, either. I held out my hand and she passed me back the loaf of bread. Well, I'm glad you made it back, I said. My Aloween. She made a decidedly unladylike noise. Please. If either of us is Savian, it's me. I'm the one that came looking for you, she pointed out. Twice. I look, I protested. I just don't seem to have a knack for finding you. She rolled her eyes dramatically. If you could recommend an auspicious time and place to look for you, it would make a world of difference. I trailed off gently, making it a question. Perhaps tomorrow? Denna gave me a sideways glance, smiling. You're always so cautious, she said. I've never known a man to step so carefully. She looked at my face as if it were a puzzle she could solve. I expect noon would be an auspicious time tomorrow. At the Aeolian? I felt a warm glow at the thought of meeting her again. I was just wondering why you're here, I mused aloud, remembering the conversation that seemed so long ago. You called me a liar afterward. 
She leaned forward to touch my hand in a consoling way. She smelled of strawberry, and her lips were a dangerous red even in the moonlight. How well I knew you, even then. We talked through the long hours of the night. I spoke subtle circles around the way I felt, not wanting to be overbold. I thought she might be doing the same, but I could never be sure. It was like we were doing one of those elaborate Modegan court dances, where the partners stand scant inches apart, but, if they are skilled, never touch. Such was our conversation. But not only were we lacking touch to guide us, it was as if we were also strangely deaf. So we danced very carefully, unsure what music the other was listening to. Unsure, perhaps, if the other was dancing at all. Diak was standing vigil at the door, same as always. He waved to see me. Master Quoth, I'm afraid you missed your friends. I thought I might have. How long have they been gone? Only an hour. He stretched his arms above his head, grimacing, then let them fall to his sides with a weary sigh. Did they seem put out that I abandoned them? He grinned. Not terribly. They happened on a couple of lovelies of their own, uh, not as lovely as yours, of course. He looked uncomfortable for a moment, then spoke slowly as if he were picking his words with great care. Looks. Quoth, I know it's not my place, and I hope you don't take it wrong. He looked around and suddenly spat. Damn, I'm no good at this sort of thing. He looked back at me and gestured vaguely with his hands. You see, women are like fires, like flames. Some women are like candles, bright and friendly. Some are like single sparks or embers like fireflies for chasing on summer nights. Some are like campfires, all light and heat for a night and willing to be left after. Some women are like hearth fires, not much to look at, but underneath they are all warm, red coal that burns a long, long while. But Diane... Diane is like a waterfall of spark pouring off a sharp iron edge that God is holding to the grindstone. You can't help but look, can't help but want it. You might even put your hand to it for a second, but you can't hold it. She'll break your heart. The evening was too fresh in my memory for me to pay much heed to Diak's warning. I smiled. Diak, my heart is made of stronger stuff than glass. When she strikes, she'll find it strong as iron-bound brass, or gold and adamant together mixed. Don't think I am unaware, some startled deer to stand transfixed by hunter's horns. It's she who should take care, for when she strikes, my heart will make a sound so beautiful and bright that it can't help but bring her back to me in winged flight. My words startled Diak into bemused laughter. God, you're brave, he shook his head, and young. I wish I were as brave and young as you. Still smiling, he turned to enter the Aeolian. Good night, then. Good night. Diak wished that he were more like me. It was as great a compliment as any I had ever been given. 
but even better than that was the fact that my days of fruitlessly searching for Denna were at an end. Tomorrow, at noon in the Aeolian, lunch and talking and walking, as she had phrased it, the thought filled me with a giddy excitement. How young I was! How foolish! How wise! Chapter 66 Volatile I woke early the next morning, nervous at the thought of lunch with Denna. Knowing it would be useless to attempt to get back to sleep, I headed to the fishery. Last night's extravagant spending had left me with exactly three pennies in my pocket, and I was eager to take advantage of my newly earned position. Usually I worked nights in the fishery. It was a different place in the mornings. There were only fifteen or twenty people there pursuing their individual projects. In the evenings, there were usually twice that many. Kilvin was in his office, as always, but the atmosphere was more relaxed. Busy, but not bustling. I even saw Fella off in the corner of the shop, chipping carefully away at a piece of obsidian the size of a large loaf of bread. Small wonder I'd never seen her here before, if she made a habit of being in the shop this early. Despite Manette's warning, I decided to make a batch of blue emitters for my first project. Tricky work, as it required the use of bone tar, but they would sell fairly quickly, and the whole process would only take me four or five hours of careful work. Not only could I be done in time to meet with Denna at the Aeolian for lunch, but I might be able to get a small advance from Kilvin so I could have a bit of money in my purse when I went to meet her. I gathered the necessary tools and set up in one of the fume hoods along the eastern wall. I chose a place near a drench, one of the five hundred gallon tanks of twice tough glass that were spaced throughout the workshop. If you'd spilled something dangerous on yourself while working in the hoods, you could simply pull the drench's handle and rinse yourself clean in a stream of cool water. Of course, I would never need the drench so long as I was careful, but it was nice having it close, just in case. After setting up the fume hood, I made my way to the table where the bone tar was kept. Despite the fact that I knew it was no more dangerous than a stone saw or the sintering wheel, I found the burnished metal container unnerving. And today, something was different. I caught the attention of one of the more experienced artificers as he walked past. Jackson had the haggard look common to most artificers in the middle of large projects as if he were putting off sleep until it was entirely finished. Should there be this much frost? I asked him, pointing out the tar canister. Its edges were covered in fine white tufts of frost, like tiny shrubs. The air around the metal actually shimmered with cold. Jackson peered at it, then shrugged. Better too cold than not cold enough, he said with a humorless chuckle. <laughs> Kaboom! I couldn't help but agree, and guessed that it might have something to do with the workshop being cooler this early in the morning. None of the kilns had been fired up yet, and most of the forge fires were still banked and sullen. Moving carefully, I ran through the decanting procedure in my head, making sure I hadn't forgotten anything. It was so cold that my breath hung white in the air. The sweat on my hands froze my fingers to the canister's fastenings the same way a curious child's tongue sticks to a pump handle in the dead of winter. I decanted about an ounce of the thick, oily liquid into a pressure vial and quickly applied the cap. 
Then I made my way back to the fume hood and started preparing my materials. After a few tense minutes, I began the long, meticulous process of preparing and doping a set of blue emitters. My concentration was broken two hours later by a voice behind me. It wasn't particularly loud, but it held a serious tone you never ignore in the fishery. It said, Oh my God. Because of my current work, the first thing I looked at was the bone tar canister. I felt a flash of cold sweat roll over me when I saw black liquid leaking from one corner and running down the work table's leg to pool on the floor. The thick timber of the table's leg was almost entirely eaten away, and I heard a light popping and crackling as the liquid pooling on the floor began to boil. All I could think of was Kilvin's statement during the demonstration. In addition to being highly corrosive, the gas burns when it comes in contact with air. Even as I turned to look, the leg gave way and the work table began to tip. The burnished metal canister tumbled down. When it struck the stone floor, the metal was so cold it didn't simply crack or dent. It shattered like glass. Gallons of the dark fluid burst out in a great splay across the workshop floor. The room filled with sharp crackling and popping sounds as the bone tar spread across the warm stone floor and started to boil. Long ago, the clever person who designed the fishery placed about two dozen drains in the workshop to help with cleaning and managing spills. What's more, the workshop's stone floor rose and fell in a gentle pattern of peaks and troughs to guide the spills toward those drains. That meant as soon as the container shattered, the wide spill of oily liquid began to run off in two different directions, heading for two different drains. At the same time, it continued to boil, forming thick, low clouds, dark as tar, caustic, and ready to burst into flame. Trapped between these two spreading arms of dark fog was Fella, who had been working by herself at an out-of-the-way table in the corner of the shop. She stood, her mouth half open in shock. She was dressed practically for work in the shop, light trousers and a gauzy linen shirt cuffed at the elbow. Her long, dark hair was pulled back into a tail, but still hung down to nearly the small of her back she would burn like a torch. The room began to fill with frantic noise as people realized what was happening. They shouted orders or simply yelled in panic. They dropped tools and knocked over half-finished projects as they scrambled around. Fella hadn't screamed or called for help, which meant no one but me had noticed the danger she was in. If Kilvin's demonstration was any indication, I guess the whole shop could be a sea of flame and caustic fog in less than a minute. There wasn't any time. I glanced at the scattered projects on the nearby work table, looking for anything that could be of some help, but there was nothing. A jumble of basalt blocks, spools of copper wire, a half-inscribed hemisphere of glass that was probably destined to become one of Kilvin's lamps. And as easy as that, I knew what I had to do. I grabbed the glass hemisphere and dashed it against one of the basalt blocks. It shattered, and I was left with a thin, curved shard of broken glass about the size of my palm. With my other hand, I grabbed my cloak from the table and strode past the fume hood. I pressed my thumb against the edge of the piece of glass and felt an unpleasant tugging sensation, followed by a sharp pain. Knowing I'd drawn blood, I smeared my thumb across the glass and spoke a binding. As I came to stand in front of the drench, I dropped the glass to the floor, concentrated, and stepped down hard, crushing it with my heel, cold.
unlike anything I'd ever felt stabbed into me. Not the simple cold you feel in your skin and limbs on a winter day. It hit my body like a clap of thunder. I felt it in my tongue and lungs and liver. But I got what I wanted. The twice-tough glass of the drench spiderwebbed into a thousand fractures, and I closed my eyes just as it burst. Five hundred gallons of water struck me like a great fist, knocking me back a step and soaking me through to the skin. Then I was off, running between the tables. Quick as I was, I wasn't quick enough. There was a blinding crimson flare from the corner of the workshop as the fog began to catch fire, sending up strangely angular tongues of violent red flame. The fire would heat the rest of the tar, causing it to boil more quickly. This would make more fog, more fire, and more heat. As I ran, the fire spread. It followed the two trails the bone tar made as it ran toward the drains. The flames shot up with startling ferocity, sending up two curtains of fire, effectively cutting off the far corner of the shop. The flames were already as tall as me and growing. Fella had worked her way out from behind the workbench and hurried along the wall toward one of the floor drains. Since the bone tar was pouring down the grate, there was a gap close to the wall, clear of flame or fog. Fella was just about to sprint past when dark fog began to boil up out of the grate. She gave a short, startled shriek as she backed away. The fog was burning even as it boiled up, engulfing everything in a roiling pool of flame. I finally made my way past the last table. Without slowing, I held my breath, closed my eyes, and jumped over the fog, not wanting to let the horrible, corrosive stuff touch my legs. I felt a brief, intense flash of heat on my hands and face, but my wet clothing kept me from being burned or catching fire. Since my eyes were closed, I landed awkwardly, banging my hip against the stone top of a work table. I ignored it and ran to Fella. She had been backing away from the fire toward the outer wall of the shop, but now she was staring at me, hands half-raised protectively. Put your arms down! I shouted as I ran up to her, spreading my dripping wet cloak with both hands. I don't know if she heard me over the roar of the flames, but regardless, Fella understood. She lowered her hands and stepped toward the cloak. As I closed the final distance between us, I glanced behind and saw the fire was growing even faster than I'd expected. The fog clung to the floor over a foot deep, black as pitch. The flames were so high I couldn't see to the other side, let alone guess how thick the wall of fire had become. Just before Fella stepped into the cloak, I lifted it to completely engulf her head. I'm going to have to carry you out, I shouted as I bundled the cloak around her. Your legs will burn if you try to wade through. She said something in reply, but it was muffled by the layers of wet cloth, and I couldn't make it out over the roar of the fire. I picked her up, not in front of me like Prince Gallant out of some storybook, but over one shoulder, the way you carry a sack of potatoes. Her hip pressed hard into my shoulder, and I pelted toward the fire. The heat battered the front of my body, and I threw my free arm up to protect my face, praying the moisture on my pants would save my legs from the worst of the corrosive nature of the fog. I drew a deep breath just before I hit the fire, but the air was sharp and acrid. I coughed reflexively and sucked down another lungful of the burning air just as I entered the wall of flame. I felt the sharp chill of the fog around my lower legs, and there was fire all around me as I ran, coughing and drawing in more bad air. I grew dizzy and tasted ammonia. 
some distant rational part of my mind thought, of course, to make it volatile. Then nothing. When I awoke, the first thing that sprang to my mind was not what you might expect. Then again, it may not be that much of a surprise if you have ever been young yourself. What time is it? I asked frantically. First bell after noon, a female voice said. Don't try to get up. I slumped back against the bed. I was supposed to have met with Denna at the Aeolian an hour ago. Miserable and with a sour knot in my stomach, I took in my surroundings. The distinctive antiseptic tang in the air let me know that I was somewhere in the Medica. The bed was a giveaway, too. Comfortable enough to sleep in, but not so comfortable that you'd want to lie around. I turned my head and saw a familiar pair of striking green eyes framed by close-cropped blonde hair. Oh! I relaxed back onto the pillow. Hello, Mola. Mola stood next to one of the tall counters that lined the edges of the room. The classic dark colors of those who worked at the Medica made her pale complexion seem even more so. Hello, Quoth, she said, continuing to write her treatment report. I heard you finally got promoted to Eltha, I said. Congratulations. Everyone knows you deserved it a long time ago. She looked up, her pale lips curving into a small smile. The heat doesn't seem to have damaged the gilding on your tongue. She lay down her pen. How does the rest of you feel? My legs feel fine, but numb, so I'm guessing I got burned, but you've already done something about it. I lifted up the bedsheet, looked underneath it, then tucked it carefully back into place. I also seem to be in an advanced state of undress. I felt a momentary panic. Is Fella all right? Mola nodded seriously and moved closer to stand by the side of the bed. She has a bruise or two from when you dropped her, and is a little singed around the ankles, but she came out of it better than you did. How is everyone else from the fishery? Surprisingly good, all things considered. A few burns from heat or acid, one case of metal poisoning, but it was minor. Smoke tends to be the real troublemaker with fires, but whatever was burning over there didn't seem to give off any smoke. It did give off a sort of ammonia fume. I took a few deep experimental breaths. But my lungs don't seem to be burned, I said relieved. I only got about three breaths of it before I passed out. There was a knock on the door, and Sim's head popped in. You're not naked, are you? Mostly, I said, but the dangerous parts are covered up. Willem followed in, looking distinctly uncomfortable. You're not nearly as pink as you were before, he said. I'm guessing that's a good sign. His legs are going to hurt for a while, but there's no permanent damage, she said. I brought fresh clothes, Sim said cheerfully. The ones you were wearing were ruined. I hope you chose something suitable for my vast wardrobe, I said dryly to hide my embarrassment. Sim shrugged off my comment. You showed up without shoes, but I couldn't find another pair in your room. I don't have a second pair, I said as I took the bundle of clothes from Sim. It's fine. I've been barefoot before. I walked away from my little adventure without any permanent damage. 
However, right now, there wasn't a part of me that didn't hurt. I had flash burn across the backs of my hands and neck, and mild acid burns across my lower legs from where I'd waded through the fire fog. Despite all this, I made my limping way the long three miles across the river to Imre, hoping against hope that I might still find Denna waiting. Diak eyed me speculatively as I crossed the courtyard toward the Aeolian. He looked me up and down pointedly. Lord boy, you look like you fell off a horse. Where are your shoes? A good morning to you too, I said sarcastically. A good afternoon, he corrected with a significant glance up at the sun. I began to brush past him, but he held up a hand to stop me. She's gone, I'm afraid. Black, sodding damn, I slumped, too weary to curse my luck properly. Diak gave me a sympathetic grimace. She asked about you, he said consolingly, and waited for a good long while, too, almost an hour, longest I've ever seen that one sit still. Did she leave with someone? Diak looked down at his hands where he was toying with a copper penny, rolling it back and forth over his knuckles. She's not really the sort of girl who spends a lot of time alone. He gave me a sympathetic look. She turned a few away, but did eventually leave with a fellow. I don't think she was really with him, if you catch my meaning. She's been looking for a patron, and this fellow had this sort of look about him. White-haired, wealthy, you know the type. I sighed. If you happen to see her, could you tell her... I paused, trying to think of how I could describe what had happened. Can you make unavoidably detained sound a little more poetic? I reckon I can. I'll describe your hangdog look and shoeless state for her, too. Lay you a good solid groundwork for some groveling. I smiled despite myself. Thanks. Can I buy you a drink? he asked. It's a little early for me, but I can always make an exception for a friend. I shook my head. I should be getting back. I've got things to do. I limped back to Anchors and found the common room buzzing with excited folk talking about the fire in the fishery. Not wanting to answer any questions, I slunk into an out-of-the-way table and got one of the serving girls to bring me a bowl of soup and some bread. As I ate, my finely-tuned eavesdropper's ears picked out pieces of the stories people were telling. It was only then, hearing it from other people, that I realized what I had done. I was used to people talking about me. As I've said, I had been actively building a reputation for myself. But this was different. This was real. People were already embroidering the details and confusing parts, but the heart of the story was still there. I had saved Fella, rushed into the fire and carried her to safety, just like Prince Gallant out of some storybook. It was my first taste of being a hero. I found it quite to my liking. Chapter 67 A Matter of Hands after lunch at Anchors, I decided to return to the fishery and see how much damage had been done. The stories I'd overheard implied that the fire had been brought under control fairly quickly. If that was the case, I might even be able to finish work on my blue emitters. 
If not, I might at least be able to reclaim my missing cloak. Surprisingly, the majority of the fishery made it through the fire without much damage at all, but the northeast quarter of the shop was practically destroyed. There was nothing left but a jumble of broken stone and glass and ash. Bright blurs of copper and silver spread over broken tabletops and portions of the floor where various metals had been melted by the heat of the fire. More unsettling than the wreckage was the fact that the workshop was deserted. I'd never seen the place empty before. I knocked on Kilvin's office door, then peered inside. Empty. That made a certain amount of sense. Without Kilvin, there was no one to organize the cleanup. Finishing the emitters took hours longer than I'd expected. My injuries distracted me, and my bandaged thumb made my hand slightly clumsy. As with most artificing, this job required two skilled hands. Even the minor encumbrance of a bandage was a serious inconvenience. Still, I finished the project without incident and was just preparing to test the emitters when I heard Kilvin in the hallway, cursing in Siaru. I glanced over my shoulder just in time to see him stomp through the doorway toward his office, followed by one of Master Arwill's gillers. I closed the fume hood and walked toward Kilvin's office, mindful of where I set my bare feet. Through the window, I could see Kilvin waving his arms like a farmer shooing crows. His hands were swathed in white bandages nearly to the elbow. Enough, he said. I will tend them myself. The man caught hold of one of Kilvin's arms and made adjustments to the bandages. Kilvin pulled his hands away and held them high in the air, out of reach. Linsatva! Enough is enough! The man said something too quiet for me to hear, but Kilvin continued to shake his head. No! And no more of your drugs! I have slept long enough! Kilvin motioned me inside. Ilirkvoth! I need to speak to you! Not knowing what to expect, I stepped into his office. Kilvin gave me a dark look. Do you see what I find after the fire is quenched? He asked, gesturing toward a mass of dark cloth on his private work table. Kilvin lifted one corner of it carefully with a bandaged hand, and I recognized it as the charred remains of my cloak. Kilvin shook it once, sharply, and my hand lamp tumbled free, rolling awkwardly across the table. We spoke about your thieves' lamp not more than two days ago. Yet today, I find it lying about where anyone of questionable character might take it for their own. He scowled at me. What do you have to say for yourself? I gaped. I'm sorry, Master Kilvin. I was... They took me away. He glanced at my feet, still scowling. And why are you unshod? Even an Elir should have better sense than to wander naked-footed in a place such as this. Your behavior lately has been quite reckless. I am dismayed. As I fumbled about for an explanation, Kilvin's grim expression spread into a sudden smile. I am joking with you, of course, he said gently. I owe you a great weight of thanks for pulling Relar Fella from the fire today. He reached out to pat me on the shoulder then thought better of it when he remembered the bandages on his hand. I felt my body go limp with relief. I picked up the lamp and turned it over in my hand. It didn't seem to have been damaged by the fire or corroded by the bone tar. Kilvin brought out a small sack and laid on the table as well. 
These things were also in your cloak, he said. Many things. Your pockets were full as a tinker's pack. You seem in a good mood, Master Kilvin, I said cautiously, wondering what painkiller he had been given at the Medica. I am, he said cheerfully. Do you know the saying, Chan Van Aden Coat? I tried to puzzle it out. Seven years... I don't know coat. Expect disaster every seven years, he said. It's an old saying and true enough. This has been two years overdue. He gestured to the wreckage of his shop with a bandaged hand. And now that it has come, it proves a mild disaster. My lamps were undamaged. No one was killed. Of all the small injuries, mine were the worst, as it should be. I eyed his bandages, my stomach clenching at the thought of something happening to his skilled artificer's hands. How are you? I asked carefully. Second-grade burns, he said, then waved away my concerned exclamation before it hardly began. Just blisters. Painful, but no charring. No long-term loss of mobility. He gave an exasperated sigh. Still, I will have a damn time getting any work done for the next three span. If all you need is hands, I could lend them, Master Kilvin. He gave a respectful nod. That is a generous offer, Elir. If it were merely a matter of hands, I would accept. But much of my work involved sigildry. That would be... He paused, choosing his next words carefully. Unwise for an Elir to have contact with. Then you should promote me to Relar, Master Kilvin, I said with a smile. So I might better serve you. He gave a deep chuckle. I may at that if you continue your good works. I decided to change the subject rather than push my luck. What went wrong with the canister? Too cold, Kilvin said. The metal was just a shell protecting a glass container inside and keeping the temperature low. I suspect that the canister sigildry was damaged, so it grew colder and colder. When the reagent froze... I nodded, finally understanding. He cracked the inner glass container, like a bottle of beer when it freezes, then ate through the metal of the canister. Kilvin nodded. Jackson is currently under the weight of my displeasure, he said darkly. He told me you brought it to his attention. I was sure the whole building would burn to the ground, I said. I can't imagine how you managed to get it under control so easily. Easily? he asked, sounding vaguely amused. Quickly, yes, but I did not know it was easily. How did you manage it? He smiled at me. Good question. How do you think? Well, I heard one student say that you strode out of your office and called the fire's name, just like Taberlin the Great. You said, fire be still, and the fire obeyed. Kilvin gave a great laugh. I like that story he said, grinning wildly behind his beard. But I have a question for you. How did you make it through the fire? The reagent produces a most intense flame. How is it you are not burned? I used a drench to wet myself, Master Kilvin. Kilvin looked thoughtful. 
Jackson saw you leaping through the fire just moments after the reagent spilled. The drench is quick, but not so quick as that. I'm afraid I broke it, Master Kilvin. It seemed the only way. Kilvin squinted through the window of his office, frowned, then left and walked to the other end of the shop toward the shattered drench. Kneeling down, he picked up a jagged piece of glass between his bandaged fingers. How in all the four corners did you manage to break my drench, Lirkvold? His tone was so puzzled that I actually laughed. Well, Master Kilvin, according to the students, I staved it in with a single blow from my mighty hand. Kilvin grinned again. I like that story, too, but I do not believe it. More reputable sources claim I used a piece of bar iron from a nearby table. Kilvin shook his head. You are a fine boy, but this twice-tough glass was made by my own hands. Broad-shouldered Kemar could not break it with an anvil hammer. He dropped a piece of glass and came back to his feet. Let the others tell whatever stories they wish, but between us, let us share secrets. It's no great mystery. I admitted. I know the sigildry for twice-tough glass. What I can make, I can break. But where was your source? Kilvin said. You could have nothing ready on such short notice. I held up my bandaged thumb. Blood? He said, sounding surprised. Using the heat of your blood could be called reckless, Ilirkvoth. What of binders chills? What if you had gone into hypothermic shock? My options were rather limited, Master Kilvin, I said. Kilvin nodded thoughtfully. Quite impressive to unbind what I had wrought with nothing more than blood. He started to run a hand through his beard, then frowned in irritation when the bandages made this impossible. What of you, Master Kilvin? How did you manage to get the fire under control? Not using the name of fire, he conceded. If Elodin had been here, matters would have been much simpler. But as the name of fire is unknown to me, I was left to my own devices. I gave him a cautious look, not sure whether he was making another joke or not. Kilvin's deadpan humor was hard to detect at times. Elodin knows the name of fire? Kilvin nodded. There may be one or two others here at the university, but Elodin has the surest grip of it. The name of fire, I said slowly. And they could have called it, and the fire would have done what they said, like Taberlin the Great? Kilvin nodded again. But those are just stories, I protested. He gave me an amused look. Where do you think the stories come from, Ilirkvolf? Every tale has deep roots somewhere in the world. What sort of name is it? How does it work? Kilvin hesitated for a moment, then shrugged his massive shoulders. It is troublesome to explain in this language. In any language. Ask Elodin. He makes a habit of studying such things. I knew firsthand how helpful Elodin would be. So how did you stop the fire? There is little mystery in it, he said. I was prepared for such an accident and had a small vial of the reagent in my office. I used it as a link and drew heat from the spill. The reagent grew too cold to boil and the remaining fog burned away. 
The lion's share of the reagent drained down the grates while Jackson and the others scattered lime and sand to control what was left. You can't be serious, I said. It was a furnace in here. You couldn't have moved that many thalms of heat. Where would you have put it? I had an empty heat eater ready for just such an emergency. Fire is the simplest of troubles I have prepared for. I waved his expression aside. Even so, there's no way. It must have been... I tried to calculate how much heat he would have had to move, but stalled out, not knowing where to begin. I estimate 850 million thomes, Kilvin said, though we must check the trap for a more accurate number. I was speechless. But... how? Quickly. He made a significant gesture with his bandaged hands, but not easily. Chapter 68 The Ever-Changing Wind I trudged through the next day barefoot, cloakless, and thinking grim thoughts about my life. The novelty of playing hero faded quickly in light of my situation. I had one ragged suit of clothes. My flash burns were minor but incessantly painful. I had no money to buy painkillers or new clothes. I chewed bitter willow bark, and bitter was my mood. My poverty hung around my neck like a heavy stone. Never before had I been more aware of the difference between myself and the other students. Everyone attending the university had a safety net to fall back on. Sim's parents were Aturin nobility. Will came from a wealthy merchant family in the Shald. If things got rough for them... They could borrow against their family's credit or write a letter home. I, on the other hand, couldn't afford shoes. I only owned one shirt. How could I hope to stay in the university for the years it would take me to become a full arcanist? How could I hope to advance in the ranks without access to the archives? By noon, I had worked myself into such a grim mood that I snapped at Sim during lunch and we bickered like an old married couple. Willem offered no opinion, keeping his eyes carefully on his food. Finally, in a blatant attempt to dispel my foul mood, they invited me to go see Three Pennies for Wishing across the river tomorrow evening. I agreed to go, as I heard the players were doing Feltemi's original and not one of the expurgated versions. It was well suited to my mood, full of dark humor, tragedy, and betrayal. After lunch, I found Kilvin had already sold half my emitters, since they were going to be the last blue emitters made for some time, the price was high and my share was slightly over a talent and a half. I expected Kilvin might have padded the price a little, which rankled my pride a bit, but I was in no position to look a gift horse in the mouth. But even this did nothing to improve my mood. Now I could afford shoes and a second-hand cloak. If I worked like a dog for the remainder of the term, I might be able to earn enough to eke out my interest to Devi and tuition as well. The thought brought me no joy. More than ever, I was aware how tenuous my situation was. I was a hair's breadth away from disaster. My mood spiraled downward, and I skipped advanced sympathy in favor of going over the river to Imre. The thought of seeing Denna was the only thing that had the potential to raise my spirits a little. I still needed to explain to her why I'd missed our lunch date. 
On my way to the Aeolian, I bought a pair of low boots, good for walking and warm enough for the winter months ahead. It nearly emptied my purse again. I sullenly counted my money as I left the cobbler's shop. Three jots and a drab. I'd had more money living on the streets of Tarbian. Your timing's good today, Diok said as I approached the Aeolian. We've got someone waiting for you. I felt a foolish grin spread to my face and clapped him on the shoulder as I headed inside. Instead of Denna, I spotted Fella sitting at a table by herself. Stanchion stood nearby, chatting with her. When he saw me approaching, he waved me over and wandered back to his usual perch at the bar, clapping me affectionately on the shoulder as he walked by. When she saw me, Fella came to her feet and rushed toward me. For a second, I thought she was going to run into my arms as if we were reunited lovers in some overacted Aturan tragedy. But she pulled up short of that, her dark hair swinging. She was lovely as always, but with a heavy purpling bruise darkening one of her high cheekbones. Oh no, I said, my hand going to my face in sympathetic pain. Is that from when I dropped you? I'm so sorry. She gave me an incredulous look then burst out laughing. You're apologizing for pulling me out of a fiery hell? Just the part where I passed out and dropped you. It was sheer stupidity. I forgot to hold my breath and suck down some bad air. Were you hurt anywhere else? Nowhere I can show you in public, she said with a slight grimace, shifting her hips in a way I found most distracting. Nothing too bad, I hope. She put on a fierce expression. Yes, well, I expect you to do a better job next time. A girl gets her life saved. She expects gentler treatment all around. Fair enough, I said, relaxing. We'll treat this as a practice run. There was a heartbeat of silence between us, and Fella's smile faded a bit. She reached out halfway to me with one hand, then hesitated and let it fall back to her side. Seriously, Quoth. I... That was the worst moment of my whole life. There was fire everywhere. She looked down, blinking. I knew I was going to die. I really knew it. But I just stood there like... like some scared rabbit. She looked up, blinking away tears, and her smile burst out again, dazzling as ever. Then you were there, running through the fire. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It was like... Have you ever seen Dayanica? I nodded and smiled. It was like watching Tarsus bursting out of hell. You came through the fire and I knew everything was going to be all right. She took a half step toward me and rested her hand on my arm. I could feel the warmth of it through my shirt. I was going to die there. She broke off, embarrassed. I'm just repeating myself now. I shook my head. That's not true. I saw you. You were looking for a way out. No, I was just standing there, like one of those silly girls in those stories my mother used to read to me. I always hated them. I used to ask, why doesn't she just push the witch out the window? Why doesn't she poison the ogre's food? Fella was looking down at her feet now, her hair falling to hide her face. Her voice grew softer and softer until it was barely louder than a sigh. Why does she just sit there waiting to be saved? Why doesn't she save herself? 
I lay my hand on top of hers in what I hoped was a comforting way. When I did, I noticed something. Her hand wasn't the delicate, fragile thing I had expected. It was strong and calloused, a sculptor's hand that knew hard hours of work with hammer and chisel. This isn't a maiden's hand, I said. She looked up at me, her eyes luminous with the beginning of tears. She gave a startled laugh that was half-sob. I... what? I flushed with embarrassment as I realized what I'd said, but pushed ahead. This isn't the hand of some swooning princess who sits tatting lace and waiting for some prince to save her. This is the hand of a woman who would climb a rope of her own hair to freedom, or kill a captor ogre in his sleep. I looked into her eyes. And this is the hand of a woman who would have made it through the fire on her own if I hadn't been there. Singed, perhaps, but safe. I brought her hand to my lips and kissed it. It seemed like the thing to do. All the same, I am glad I was there to help. I smiled. So, like Tarsus? Her smile dazzled me again. Like Tarsus, Prince Gallant, and Orin Valsiter all rolled into one, she said laughing. She gripped my hand. Come see, I have something for you. Fella pulled me back to the table where she'd been sitting and handed me a bundle of cloth. I asked Will and Sim what I could get you as a gift, and it seemed somehow appropriate. She paused, suddenly shy. It was a cloak. It was a deep forest green, rich cloth, fine cut. It hadn't been bought off the back of some fripperer's cart, either. This was the sort of clothing I could never hope to afford for myself. I had the tailor sew a bunch of little pockets into it, she said nervously. Will and Sim both mentioned how that was important. It's lovely, I said. Her smile beamed out again. I had to guess at the measurements, she admitted. Let's see if it fits. She took the cloak out of my hands and stepped close to me, spreading it over my shoulders, her arms circling me in something very near to an embrace. I stood there, to use Fella's words, like a scared rabbit. She was close enough that I could feel the warmth of her, and when she leaned to adjust the way the cloak lay across my shoulder, one of her breasts brushed my arm. I stood still as a statue. Over Fella's shoulder, I saw Diok grin from where he leaned in the doorway across the room. Fella stepped back, eyed me critically, then stepped close again and made a small adjustment to the way the cloak fastened across my chest. It suits you, she said. The color brings out your eyes. Not that they need it. They're the greenest thing I've seen today. Like a piece of spring. As Fella stepped back to admire her handiwork, I saw a familiar shape leaving the Aeolian through the front door. Denna. I only caught a brief glimpse of her profile, but I recognized her as surely as I know the backs of my own hands. What she had seen and what conclusions she had drawn from it, I could only guess. My first impulse was to bolt out the door after her, to explain why I had broken our date two days ago to say I was sorry, to make it clear that the woman with her arms around me had just been giving me a gift, nothing more. Fella smoothed the cloak over my shoulder 
and looked at me with eyes that only moments before had been luminous with the beginnings of tears. It fits perfectly, I said, taking the cloth between my fingers and fanning it out to the side. It's much better than I deserve, and you shouldn't have, but I thank you. I wanted to show you how much I appreciated what you did. She reached out to touch my arm again. This is nothing, really. If there's anything I can ever do for you, any favor, you should stop by. She paused, looking at me quizzically. Are you all right? I glanced past her toward the doorway. Denna could be anywhere by now. I'd never be able to catch her. I'm fine, I lied. Fella bought me a drink, and we chatted for a while about small things. I was surprised to learn that she'd been working with Elodin for the last several months. She did some sculpting for him, and in exchange, he occasionally tried to teach her. She rolled her eyes. He woke her in the middle of the night and took her to an abandoned quarry north of town. He put wet clay in her shoes and made her spend the entire day walking around in them. He even... She flushed and shook her head, breaking off the story. Curious but not wanting to make her uncomfortable, I didn't pursue it any further, and we agreed between the two of us that he was more than half mad. All the while I sat facing the door, vainly hoping that Denna might return and I could explain the truth of matters to her. Eventually, Fella headed back to the university for abstract maths. I stayed at the Aeolian, nursing a drink and trying to think how I could make things right between Denna and myself. I would have liked to have had a good, maudlin drunk, but I couldn't afford it. So I made my slow, limping way back across the river as the sun was setting. It wasn't until I was getting ready to make one of my regular trips to the roof of Mainz that I realized the significance of something Kilvin had said to me. If the majority of the bone tar had gone down the grates... Ari! She lived in the tunnels underneath the university... I bolted to the Medica, moving as quickly as I could despite my weary, foot-sore state. Halfway there, I had a stroke of luck and spotted Mola crossing the courtyard. I shouted and waved to get her attention. Mola eyed me suspiciously as I approached. You're not going to serenade me, are you? I shifted my loot self-consciously and shook my head. I need a favor, I said. I have a friend that might be hurt. She gave a weary sigh. You should... I can't go to the Medica for help. I let my anxiety creep into my voice. Please, Mola. I promise it won't take more than a half hour or so, but we have to go now. I'm worried I might be too late already. Something in my tone convinced her. What's the matter with your friend? Maybe burns, maybe acid, maybe smoke. Like the people who were caught in the fishery fire yesterday. Maybe worse. Mola started walking. I'll get my kit from my room. I'll wait here if you don't mind. I took a seat on a nearby bench. I'll just slow you down. I sat and tried to ignore my various burns and bruises, and when Mola returned, I led her to the southwestern side of Mainz where there were a trio of decorative chimneys. We can use these to get on the roof. She gave me a curious look but seemed content to hold on to her questions for now. I made my slow way up the chimney, using the protruding pieces of fieldstone as hand and footholds. This was one of the easiest ways onto the roof of Mainz. I'd chosen it partly because I wasn't sure of Mola's climbing ability, and partly because my own injuries had left me feeling less than athletic.
Mola joined me on the roof. She still wore her dark uniform from the Medica, but had added a gray cloak from her room. I took a roundabout path so we could stay on the safer sections of Mains. It was a cloudless night, and there was a sliver of moon to light our way. If I didn't know better, Mola said as we made our way around a tall brick chimney, I'd think that you were luring me somewhere quiet for a sinister purpose. What makes you think that I'm not? I asked lightly. You don't seem like the type, she said. Besides, you can barely walk. If you tried anything, I'd just push you off the roof. Don't spare my feelings, I said with a chuckle. Even if I weren't half crippled, you could still throw me off this roof. I stumbled a little on an unseen ridge and nearly fell because my battered body was slow to respond. I sat on a piece of roof slightly higher than the rest and waited for the momentary dizziness to pass. Are you all right? Mola asked. Probably not. I pushed myself to my feet. It's just over this next roof, I said. It might be best if you stood back a ways and stayed quiet, just in case. I made my way to the edge of the roof. I looked down at the hedges and the apple tree. The windows were dark. Ari, I called softly. Are you there? I waited, growing more nervous by the second. Ari, are you hurt? Nothing. I began to curse under my breath. Mola crossed her arms. Right, I think I've been plenty patient here. Care to tell me what's going on? Follow me and I'll explain. I headed for the apple tree and began to climb carefully down. I walked around the hedge to the iron grate. The ammonia smell of bone tar wafted up from the grate, faint but persistent. I tugged on the grate and it lifted a few inches before catching on something. I made a friend a few months ago, I said, nervously sliding my hand between the bars. She lives down here. I'm worried that she might be hurt. A lot of the reagent went down the drains from the fishery. Mola was silent for a while. You're serious? I felt around in the dark under the grate, trying to figure out how Ari kept it closed. What sort of person would live down there? A frightened person, I said. A person who's afraid of loud noises and people and the open sky. It took me nearly a month to coax her out of the tunnels, let alone get close enough to talk. Mola sighed. If you don't mind, I'll have a seat. She walked over to the bench. I've been on my feet all day. I continued to feel around under the grate, but try as I might, I couldn't find a clasp anywhere. Growing increasingly frustrated, I grabbed the grate and tugged on it hard again and again. It made several echoing metallic thumps, but didn't come free. Cloth? I looked up to the edge of the roof and saw Ari standing there, a silhouette against the night sky. Her fine hair made a cloud around her head. Ari! The tension poured out of me, leaving me feeling weak and rubbery. Where have you been? There were clouds, she said simply as she walked around the edge of the roof toward the apple tree. So I went looking for you on top of things. But the moon's coming out, so I came back. Ari scampered down the tree, then pulled up short when she saw Mola's cloaked form sitting on the bench. I brought a friend to visit, Ari, I said in my gentlest tones. I hope you don't mind. There was a long pause. 
Is he nice? It's a she, and yes, she's nice. Ari relaxed a bit and came a few steps closer to me. I brought you a feather with a spring wind on it, but since you were late... She looked at me gravely. You get a coin instead. She held it out at arm's length, pinched between her thumb and forefinger. It will keep you safe at night, as much as anything can, that is. It was shaped like an Aeturin penance piece, but it gleamed silver in the moonlight. I'd never seen a coin like it. Kneeling, I opened my loot case and brought out a small bundle. I've got some tomatoes, beans, and something special. I held out the small sack I'd spent most of my money on two days ago, before all my troubles had started. Sea salt. Ari took it and peered inside the small leather sack. Why, this is lovely, Quoth. What lives in the salt? Trace minerals, I thought. Chromium, basalt, mallium, iodine. Everything your body needs but probably can't get from apples and bread and whatever you manage to scrounge up when I can't find you. The dreams of fish, I said, and sailors' songs. Ari nodded, satisfied, and sat down, spreading out the small cloth and arranging her food with the same care as always. I watched her as she began to eat, dipping a green bean into the salt before taking a bite. She didn't seem hurt, but it was hard to tell by the pale moonlight. I needed to be sure. Are you okay, Ari? She cocked her head at me, curious. There was a big fire. A lot of it went down the grates. Did you see it? Holy God, yes, she said, her eyes wide. It was all over and all the shrews and raccoons were running everywhere, trying to get out. Did any of it get on you? I asked. Did you get burned? She shook her head, grinning a child's sly smile. Oh, no, it couldn't catch me. Were you close to the fire? I asked. Did you breathe any of the smoke? Why would I breathe smoke? Ari looked at me as if I were simple. The whole underthing smells like cat piss now. She wrinkled her nose. Except by downing and in the belows. I relaxed a bit, but I saw Mola began to fidget where she was sitting on the bench. Ari, can my friend come over? Ari froze with a bean halfway to her mouth, then relaxed and bobbed her head once, sending her fine hair swirling around her. I beckoned to Mola, who began to walk slowly toward us. I was a little uneasy at how their meeting would go. It had taken me over a month of gentle coaxing to draw Ari out from the tunnels underneath the university where she lived. I worried that a bad reaction from Mola might startle her back underground where I would have no chance of finding her. I gestured to where Mola stood. This is my friend, Mola. Hello, Mola. Ari looked up and smiled. You have sunny hair like me. Would you like an apple? Mola's expression was carefully blank. Thank you, Ari. I'd like that. Ari jumped up and ran back to where the apple tree overhung the edge of the roof, then ran back toward us, her hair flying behind her like a flag. She handed Mola an apple. This one has a wish inside it, she said matter-of-factly. Make sure you know what you want before you take a bite. That said... She settled back down and ate another bean, chewing primly. Mola looked over the apple for a long moment before taking a bite. Ari finished her meal quickly after that 
and tied up the bag of salt. Now play, she said excited. Play! Smiling, I brought out my lute and brushed my hands over the strings. Thankfully, my injured thumb was on my cording hand, where it would be a relatively minor inconvenience. I looked at Mola as I turned the strings. You can go if you like, I told her. I wouldn't want to accidentally serenade you. Oh, you mustn't go! Ari turned to Mola, her expression deathly serious. His voice is like a thunderstorm, and his hands know every secret hidden deep beneath the cool, dark earth. Mola's mouth quirked into a smile. I suppose I could stay for that. So I played for both of them, while overhead the stars continued in their measured turning. Why haven't you told anyone? Mola asked me as we made our way across the rooftops. It didn't seem like anyone's business, I said. If she wanted people to know she was there, I imagine she'd tell them herself. You know what I mean. Mola said, irritated. I know what you mean, I sighed. But what good would come of it? She's happy where she is. Happy? Mola sounded incredulous. She's ragged and half-starved. She needs help, food, and clothes. I bring her food, I said. And I'll bring her clothes, too, as soon... I hesitated, not wanting to admit my abject poverty, at least not in so many words as soon as I can manage it. Why wait? If you just told someone, right, I said sarcastically, I'm sure Jameson would rush out here with a box of chocolates and a feather bed if he knew there was a starveling half-crack student living under his university. They'd crock her and you know it. Not necessarily. She didn't even bother finishing, knowing what I'd said was true. Mola, if people come looking for her, she'll just rabbit down into the tunnels. They'll scare her away, and I'll lose what chance I have to help her. Mola looked down at me, her arms folded across her chest. Fine. For now. But you'll have to bring me back here later. I'll bring her some of my clothes. They'll be too big for her, but they'll be better than what she has. I shook my head. It won't work. I brought her a second-hand dress a couple span ago. She says wearing someone else's clothes is filthy. Mola looked puzzled. She didn't look sealedish. Not even a little. Maybe she was just raised that way. Do you feel any better? Yes, I lied. You're shaking. She stretched out a hand. Here, lean on me. Pulling my new cloak close around me, I took her arm and made my slow way back to anchors.